Okay. Um, so, let me say step down. Uh, so this afternoon.
when Johnny arrived.
Good morning. Morning, Your Honor. Do we have any preliminary matters? We have some exhibits to hand Oh, out. that would be fantastic. That'll make Jamie's day. All right, we're ready for the jury then? Ladies and gentlemen, have a seat. All right, your next witness. Your Honor, Amber calls Dr. Richard Moore. All right, Dr. Moore. Good morning, Dr. Moore. Good morning. Can you please tell the jury your full name? Uh, Richard Salter Moore, Jr. Where do you work? Uh, Emerge Ortho in Wilmington, North Carolina. And what is your position there? I'm a uh, shareholder physician, orthopedic surgeon, uh, practicing hand upper extremity microvascular surgery. For how many years have you been an orthopedic surgeon? So I completed my fellowship in 1997. Um, so for 25 years. And I believe that you, you mentioned this, but tell the jury uh, what area of orthopedic surgery in which you specialize. So, so I'm an uh, um, orthopedic surgeon. I, I finished medical school, went to a five-year orthopedic surgery residency. At the completion of my residency, I wanted to specialize in hand surgery. So um, I did an additional year of training specifically in hand and upper extremity surgery before starting uh, practice in my first year as, a, as an attending. Where are you currently licensed? North Carolina. For how long have you been licensed? Since 1991 or 6. I, uh, I think it was 1996 when I was licensed in North Carolina. Okay. Beginning with your undergraduate studies, Dr. Moore, could you please tell the jury a bit about your educational background. I know you, you mentioned a little bit of it just now. So I uh, attended University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, graduated in 1987 with a BS in biology. I went on to medical school at UNC and I graduated in 1991 
I then went to the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, did a five-year orthopedic surgery residency there. And in 1996, I went to Duke University Medical Center and did a year fellowship in hand, upper extremity, and microvascular surgery. Um, and, and on completion of my fellowship, I was invited to join the faculty, um, and my role was, was hand and trauma. And so I went to Los Angeles for about six months for a, a preceptorship in pelvic trauma, and then went back to Duke and uh, practiced uh, as a director of the orthopedic trauma service and a member of the hand, upper extremity, and microvascular reconstruction team until 2000 when I relocated to North Carolina, to, to Wilmington. And you maintained an active clinical practice since 2000? Yes. And before that when you were at Duke, correct? Uh, yes. Just very briefly, can you tell the jury what is a residency? Uh, residency is an, a largely an apprenticeship. So when, when you finish medical school, you have an MD medical degree, but you really um, can't practice medicine um, and, and you take a tract of internal medicine or pediatrics or OBGYN or orthopedics, and then it's a graduated training program anywhere from three to five or six years. And what's a fellowship? And a fellowship is a year beyond training. When I completed my residency, had I chose to, I could have practiced as a general orthopedic surgeon, uh, but I wanted to subspecialize, and, and therefore that required an additional year of training. And I believe you mentioned this, but your subspecialization was in the hand, is that, that right? That's correct. Why did you choose to specialize in the hand? Um, patient population, uh, the types of problems we treat, uh, the, and the anatomy is really the, the biggest reason I chose it. Um, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's really pretty beautiful anatomy. And uh, let's talk about that anatomy. There's, there's bones in the hand, right? Correct. And then there's tissue and blood vessels, right? Objection leading. Overruled. I'm sorry, you can go ahead and answer that. Yep, that's correct. And what, what is the surgery um, called where you operate on tissues and blood vessels in the hand? Uh, well, um, that, that would be hand surgery. I mean, there are different components of it. There's, there's trauma where we do repairs of tendons or blood vessels. There's a microvascular element where we repair injured nerves, um, in, in my practice at Duke, I was on the replant team, and so we would we would do replantations when digits were cut off. We would uh, we would try to reattach the bones and tendons and nerves and vessels to to uh, uh, reattach the digits, and hopefully I'm survive. Um, and have you performed surgeries of that nature? Yes. When you perform surgeries of that nature, what assessment do you make of the cause of those injuries? So, so cause is a is a big element. It's a it's a uh, it's an uh, an important um, element to appreciate because it can impact management in a lot of those settings. You know, there's a there's a difference between a laceration caused by a razor blade and a laceration caused by, say, a serrated knife. There's a, a larger zone of injury. So, what we anticipate having to manage is is based on on uh, uh, how the injury was created. There's also other elements, contamination, you know, farm, farmyard injuries are totally different than clean injuries and kitchen injuries with raw chicken are totally different than, than um, some other, other settings. And so it does play a large role in, in management. After your fellowship at Duke University, I believe you mentioned you had another role at Duke for a few years. Is that right? Can you tell the jury about that? 
So I, I did my fellowship and I joined the faculty as an assistant professor. And I, so I was uh, in charge of teaching residents and fellows. I was the director of the orthopedic trauma service. And I um, was on the hand call team uh, in addition. Have you had um, academic appointments at any universities other than Duke? I, I have a um, adjunct uh, assistant professor um, appointment at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is, has affiliated training programs in the center where I practice now. Have you held any leadership positions in your field? Um, I've been the, uh, <clears throat> an officer and the past president of the North Carolina Society Surge of the Hand, the Duke Hand uh, Club or Society now. Um, uh, I'm in the, I'm a member of the American Society of Surgery of the Hand of the Orthopedic Trauma Association of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and of the uh, uh, American Orthopedic Association, the AOA. Are the majority of your surgeries hand surgeries? Yes. How many hand surgeries ballpark would you say you've performed in your career? Over 25 years thousands. Have you seen finger injuries similar to the one sustained by Mr. Depp in Australia? Yes. And have you evaluated injuries like that? Yes. Have you treated injuries like that? Yes. Have you operated on fingers that looked like that? Yes. How many times? Ballpark. Uh, uh, hundreds if not, if not more. What does it mean to be board certified? in your field? So uh, board certification is a process that um, that you pursue after you complete training. So at the time, there have been some changes, but at the time that I finished my training, um, after residency, we took a written examination. And if you passed the written examination, you had to practice for two years. At the end of that two years, you submitted a list of cases over six months to the board, and they picked 12 cases, and then you gathered up 10 and went to Chicago and, uh, and had an oral examination based on those cases. Um, and if you passed the oral examination, then you were board certified. And your board certification is in, is in what? Orthopedic surgery. Do you, what is a certificate of added qualification? So in the, in, in the event that you elect to, to do a fellowship and subspecialize, hand surgery is one of the, the um, specialties that uh, you can uh, um, apply for a certificate of added qualification. And so once I was board certified, I practiced uh, for an additional year or two, had to resubmit a list of cases and take a written examination to become certified in hand surgery. Do you teach other surgeons how to do hand surgery? Uh, occasionally, on occasion, yes. When was the last time you did so? Uh, day before yesterday. Tell the jury about that. Um, I was uh, over the weekend. I, I went to um, Miami to um, service faculty for a course, a bioskills course we call it, on shoulder and wrist surgery. And um, surgeons come in and we have case presentations and panels. And then um, they had a uh, cadaver lab and we were able to. to um, allow them to perform the surgery and cadavers to become familiar with the equipment. Have you published in your field? I have. In peer-reviewed re literature? Yes. Your Honor, at this time, um, 
We'd like to offer Dr. Moore as an expert in the field of orthopedic surgery and specifically hand surgery and injuries to the hand. All right. Any objection? No objection, Your Honor. So moved. Yes, sir. Dr. Moore, now we, we get to talk about this case. Um, at, at our request, what have you reviewed, just general categories of information, have you reviewed at our request in this case? So, uh, so a tremendous amount of material. Um, I reviewed the uh, video deposition and, and uh, trial testimony of Mr. Depp regarding the injury, um, the medical records from Australia, the photographs of the injury from Australia and Los Angeles, um, texts and emails, the deposition of Dr. Kipper, um, and I'm sure there's more. And when you reviewed the deposition of Mr. Depp, was that just in paper form? It was a video deposition. And so what did you review of that deposition? Uh, the section where he describes the injury. And did you see a video of him describing it? I did. And you, you watched the testimony from this trial of him describing it? Yes. And you mentioned that you reviewed some texts as well. What are those? Uh, there were... There were, there were communications amongst um, Mr. Depp and his physician and, and, and others. And, and what did you specifically review in those texts relating to the finger injury? Well, with relation to the finger, there was a, there was a text where he had stated he, he cut his finger off. Now, Dr. Moore, I'm going to ask you some questions about this case regarding the opinions that you formed. Uh, relating to Mr. Depp's finger injury. Um, when I ask you those questions, do you agree to answer my questions to a reasonable degree of medical probability? Yes. And do you agree to advise the jury and the court if you are not answering any of them to a reasonable degree of medical probability? Yes. Dr. Moore, based on your analysis, did Mr. Depp's finger injury happen as a result of a vodka bottle being thrown at him? Objection no. leading. Overrule. I'm sorry. Uh, no. And what is the basis for that opinion? Well, the, the medical data is inconclusive. Uh, it's it's uh, not consistent with what we see in the, in the described injury pattern or in the, uh, the clinical photographs. And there are, there are several elements. There's, there's uh, you know, the description was of the hand being flat on a bar and the, and the bottle crushing the finger from the top. But looking at the images, there's really no, no significant injury to the dorsum of the finger. And to create the type of injury with that, with that uh, uh, type of a crush injury, we would anticipate both injury to the fingernail um, and other parts of the finger. Um, can, you know, can, I, can I stop you there and just, sure. just break down a few things? Um, you said the hand resting flat on the bar. Can you show the jury what direction the hand was resting based think, on the documents you've reviewed. I think that the demonstration was was with the hand flat, like this, um, across, maybe even curled over the edge of the of the bar, like this. Which side was facing upward? Which side the, of the, the hand? The back of the hand, or the, we call it the dorsal surface of the hand, was up. Doctor, if you could get closer to the microphone, oh, I just appreciate sorry. It. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. So you referred to the back of the hand as the dorsal side of the hand, is that That's right? That's correct. Sort of like the dorsal fin on a shark? Correct. Fair. And what is the other side of the hand called? The palmer surface. Palmer? Okay. 
So what direction was Mr. Depp's hand resting on the bar? So the dorsal side was up, which with the descriptive um, mechanism of injury or the injury, the bottle would have struck the top of the finger at the fingernail. And you also mentioned a term that I'd like you to explain to the jury, crush injury, please. So, so the, with review of, of the images and the x-rays, I mean, this, this was a crush injury. That's the, that would generate the findings clinically on x-ray that we saw. Um, the fracture is, is a, um, we call it comminuted, and the, and the tip of the finger is in multiple splinters, so there are multiple fragments, and typically you see that with a, with a crush-type injury. So a comminuted fracture is one where there's multiple fragments of bone? That's correct. And what was the basis, other than what you've read and heard, but from the, from the pictures, what was the basis um, of your opinion that the, the the hand was resting palmer side down. Well, that was, that was the way the the injury was described um, and demonstrated in the videos. And so, um, in that position, were the bottle to strike the finger the way it was described, it would have it would have struck on the nail, um, and 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 the nail was really not injured. And and so that's not consistent with with that pattern of injury. Michelle, could I get you to pull up uh, exhibit uh, DX369, page 26? Your Honor, this is admitted. Okay. Ask for permission to publish. Yes, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Dr. Moore, is this um, one of the images that you reviewed? Yes. What Tell us, in relation to your expert opinion on the cause of Mr. Depp's injury. Tell us what you see in this picture, please. So, so this is a, um, looks like an avulsion type injury uh, where tissues actually pulled or pinched away. Um, I think it, what's important in this picture is that the tissue loss is uh, on the palmer aspect from underneath the finger rather than than all uh, transversely in the finger, which you would anticipate if the if the bottle struck the finger, you would expect more of a this this level of injury rather than isolated to the palmar aspect. And what do you notice about the condition of the fingernail in this picture? So, so from this image, the fingernail appears to be uh, intact. Um, you you can't necessarily see the entire nail, but um, there there are other images that have a better uh, uh, profile of that. Um, and, and the nail's not elevated, it's not, there's no um, subungual hematoma beneath it or there's no bruise underneath it. Anyone that's ever stuck their finger in a drawer or caught it in a car door or hit it with a hammer knows that almost immediately there's typically um, bleeding underneath the nail which creates this hematoma. So, not being a doctor, I'm, I'm going to try to, to summarize what you just said. Are you saying that in an injury like this, if something had come from the top that there would be an immediate impact to the fingernail bed? That's correct. Michelle, could you please pull up Plaintiff's Exhibit 144? Your Honor, this has been admitted as well. All right. Thank you. Dr. Moore, I believe you mentioned just a few minutes ago that there were other pictures that showed uh, uh, more of the nail uh, is this one of those pictures? Yes. And, and explain to the jury 
Again, and I'm sorry for the, the graphic nature of this photo, but it's important that the jury understands the basis for your opinion that a bottle couldn't have caused this coming in from above. Yeah, so it's, so it's it, it, again, the mechanism described would have almost certainly led to uh, severe nail injury. You know, I see no subungual hematoma. Again, it's, it's a palmar tissue loss, and the loss is from distal to proximal, which is, in, which is from the tip back far below the nail. And so for it to, to create that tissue loss down there, there would almost certainly have to be injury dorsally with that described mechanism. So what you're saying is that something coming from the top could not have left the nail intact and yet caused injury from the tip of the finger underneath the nail. Objection leading. Overruled. You can answer. So, so, uh, so I believe that um, it, with the mechanism described that if the, if the bottle struck the nail, there would have certainly been an injury to the nail bed. Um, and in order for the, for the uh, soft tissue injury to be created by that mechanism, there would have almost certainly been tissue loss on the top of the finger as well. Does Mr. Depp's description of what happened line up with the undisputed photographic evidence that you've reviewed? No. Now, we mentioned the term crush injury a few minutes ago. Um, I'd like to show you DX360, please. And, Your Honor, this is, um, we won't publish this at this time. Um, did, are these, is this a document that you reviewed in connection with your expert opinion in this case? Yes. And, um, Michelle, if you can please go to pages, I believe they're five and six. Your Honor, I'd ask for permission to publish these as a demonstrative to the jury. Just page five and six. Um, sorry, uh, sorry. Um, 09 and 10. Page two pages. And 10. Could you go to 10 also so plaintiff can see it? Okay, any objection to 09? No objection, Your Honor. Okay, 09 or 10 can be published. Dr. Moore, are the, what are these pictures of? So uh, these are x rays of the uh, injured digit. And what do you observe in these x rays? Explain so to the jury um, what you see. So these are, these are uh, two views, so one in the plane looking through the finger in this direction, one in the plane looking through the finger sideways. And you can see that the, the tuft or the, the tip of the finger, uh, the last bone in the finger called the distal phalanx is shattered. You can see there's multiple little spicules of bone. Um, and there's also a transverse fracture uh, at that level um, which runs through the bone. Uh, so this is, this is what we would describe as a comminuted fracture, and it's, and it's commonly associated with crush injury. In your decades of practice, Dr. Moore, have you ever seen a comminuted fracture like this result from an object thrown in the way that Mr. Depp described? Uh, well, n not, in, not with the constellation of findings shown on the x-rays. I mean, I think that could create a fracture, but in, the, in this setting, it wouldn't create a fracture with the, without the associated um, other injuries that we would anticipate. And in your decades of practice, when you see a comminuted fracture like this, what are some things that have typically caused it? So crush mechanisms could be um, slammed in a drawer, caught between two logs in the, in the fireplace, uh, car door, um, uh, sliding glass door. Those are all any mechanism that, that 
squeeze the finger between two hard opposing surfaces could create this type of injury. In the statements of Mr. Depp that you reviewed, how did he describe what happened to the alleged bottle when it hit the bar? Uh, I believe um, he said it exploded, shattered. If a bottle had exploded near his finger um, in the way that he alleges, what would you expect to see in the documents that you have reviewed? Uh, well, I, I think that, that the uh, physicians uh, did a good job of documenting the presentation, the appearance of the wound. Uh, they, they did not document the presence of any glass shards, um, and there were no other associated injuries elsewhere on the hand. Okay. And I just want to step back for one minute. Uh, Michelle, can you pull up the next page of the x-ray here? Um, thank you. And Dr. Moore, just before we move on from x-rays, um, can you, I know that this one is blown up like this, it's a little bit blurry, but can you point out um, or describe to the jury where the, where the multiple bone fragments are in the finger? Um, so they're in the very tip, you know, the, if, if you see the joint and then there's the, what we call the transverse fracture, which is across the, the middle of the bone in the, in the same plane as the joint, and then the multiple fragments are in the tuft. Um, and and the, with a Xerox copy, the quality is not as detailed as a, a true x-ray. You can take that down, please, Michelle. Thank you. So, so back to, to, to the glass. In the records that you reviewed, Dr. Moore, did you see any adjacent injuries? In other words, injuries to any other part of Mr. Depp's hand other than the tip of his middle finger? No. And is that observation consistent with the explosion of glass type phenomenon that Mr. Depp alleges? Well, I think in the setting of a, of a glass explosion like that, where there's multiple fragments and the tip of the fingers cut off, you would, you would anticipate that there would be other lacerations. Did you review the documentation in the medical records from the hospital in Australia? Yes. Did any of those providers report retrieving glass from the wound? No. What about any glass near the site of the injury? Uh, no. What about any glass in other parts of the hand? No. What about any glass in any of the other fingers? No. Is there any reference at all, Dr. Moore, that you've seen to any glass in the records that you've reviewed? No. And Dr. Moore, in your decades of practice, have you ever seen an injury associated with a glass explosion that was focused on the end of a single finger in the way Mr. Depp describes? Well, not consistent with the, with the clinical images and the findings in this case, no. Have you ever seen an injury associated with an alleged glass explosion where no other glass was found on any part of the patient's body or clothing or anything? No. And because there's been talk of a, of a glass explosion, um, Dr. Moore, there, there's seems to have been a suggestion that somehow glass may have sliced off the end of, of Mr. Depp's finger. Is that what's going on here? No, uh, this wound doesn't really appear to be a, a sharp glass laceration. You referred earlier to an avulsion, um, which is a term I had never heard before your opinion in this case. Explain to the jury what that is, please. So, so often with crush injuries and, and, um, and we'll see uh, tissue loss that we call an avulsion or uh, where the, the tissues actually um, 
pinched or or pulled away uh, rather than than sliced or cut. Um, and and it, it's not uncommon with crush injuries to see that. In your decades of practice, Dr. Moore, have you ever seen an avulsion injury with a partial amputation that results from an object thrown um, from the top of the finger um, in the way that Mr. Depp describes? No. Again, I think that the description differs from the clinical appearance on the, the images. Michelle, can you please pull up Exhibit 369 at page 12? This has been admitted, Your Honor. All right. We published to the jury. Dr. Moore, you've, you said you've treated uh, thousands of hand injuries over the course of your career, correct? Correct. Um, what is that on Mr. Depp's hand? Uh, so we, we describe that as a... Objection. As Calls for speculation. The picture just changed. Sorry, page 12, please. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What is that on Mr. Depp's hand? So that's a, that's a, a plaster oh, splint. Overruled objection. Okay, sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry. Please tell the jury what that is on Mr. Depp's hand. Uh, so that's a, that's a plaster splint. Um, a half a cast is, is how I sometimes describe it to patients, and it, it provides stability uh, for comfort and to protect fractures in the course of treatment. Is that plaster splint hard or soft? Uh, what's plaster Paris? It's, it's, uh, it hardens like a cast does. Dr. Moore, um, does Mr. Depp's description of how his finger became injured line up with the facts that you've seen? No. I have no further questions. All right. Question. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Cross-examination. Good morning, Dr. Moore. Good morning. You said you reviewed Mr. Depp's video deposition, is that correct? That's correct. And you said you reviewed Mr. Depp's testimony at this trial, correct? That's correct. And was that also a video of his testimony? Yes. Okay. And you testified that Mr. Depp demonstrated that his hand was flat on a surface, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That's not entirely accurate, is it, though? No. Uh, his, his description was relatively uh, consistent in both, um, including turning and, and resting the hand on the, on the edge. Isn't it true, Dr. Moore, that when Mr. Depp did the demonstration in his deposition, he showed that his fingers were hanging over the bar? Well, uh, even hanging over the bar, it still leaves the dorsum of the hand or the nail vulnerable That's to not my question, Dr. Moore. My question is, isn't it true that Mr. Depp said his fingers were not laying flat on a table, they were hanging over the bar? Yes. Okay. And in fact, you knew that when you made that opinion. Isn't that correct? Well, I, I believe that I, uh, as I demonstrated sitting here, that I said that he had, he had said they were slightly curled or slightly curled over, I think, was the description that I gave. Your description in this courtroom was that it was laying flat, and I think you've done that now twice. But in your deposition, you testified that his fingers were actually hanging over the bar. Isn't that correct? Objection, Your Honor. Misstates the witness's testimony. He oh. clearly indicated they were curled. Overruled. Overruled. So that's a so so that's a distinction that that perhaps I um, misstated in one of the two descriptions. However, 
that does not substantially change my opinion of uh, the impact it would have on the mechanism. Isn't it true that Mr. Depp also testified that the bottle came from an off angle? Yes. Okay. And you consider that in rendering your opinions today, correct? Yes, I believe he stated that uh, it came from between six and ten feet. Uh, I think it was off to, I think he demonstrated it was off to his right. I can't recall specifically, but it was off angle, yes. So it didn't come from the top, as you previously testified just a few minutes ago, correct? Uh, well, no, it would have struck the, the top of the finger, but it may have been slightly off angle in its approach based on the description. Mr. Depp described it as off angle, correct? Correct. Right. Dr. Moore, just at the outset, your billing rate for providing deposition testimony is $1,000 per hour? That's correct. And you were deposed in this action for several hours on March 22nd, 2022? That's correct. And your billing rate for providing trial testimony is $5,000 per day? That's correct. You were retained in this case by Ms. Hurd's legal team, correct? Correct. And over the last few years, you've provided expert services for one of Ms. Hurd's law firms on at least two other cases, right? That's correct, yes. Dr. Moore, is it fair to say that you have no personal knowledge as to how Mr. Depp injured his finger in Australia, correct? Uh, no, I, I have no personal knowledge. My, my impression is based on his, uh, his description of the injury and the available medical records for review. But you weren't in Australia I, I with Mr. Was, Depp and Ms. Hurt, correct? I was not in Australia, no. And, and so therefore you have no personal knowledge as to how that injury was sustained? Correct. You also never personally examined Mr. Depp's finger, did you? Correct. You didn't examine Mr. Depp's finger at the time he was injured? I did not. And you never provided any medical treatment to Mr. Depp in connection with his finger injury, did you? I did not. Now, you've testified that you identified Mr. Depp's finger injury as a crush injury, correct? Correct. And a crush injury is when a body part is crushed or trapped between two opposing firm surfaces, yes? Yes. And a crush injury to a finger can occur when a foreign object hits the finger, right? Yes. And uh, based on the pictures that you reviewed of Mr. Depp's finger injury, you cannot determine what particular object caused the injury to his finger. Yes? Uh, well, I, I, can't, I can't determine exactly what, what object did it. I think that um, I, can, I can say with confidence that the described mechanism of the bottle hitting and shattering the finger um, was not consistent with the appearance of the injury. I understand that. My I think question it, is just very specific. You can't determine the object that caused the injury to Mr. Depp's finger. Well, it's, it's a little bit more of a, of a non-specific answer. I mean, I, you know, I, it, again, I, I can't determine the exact object, but I can determine that, that it's unlikely that it was uh, sustained in the manner described. A bottle is a foreign object, isn't it? Yes. Okay. So you can't rule out that the injury to Mr. Depp's finger was caused by a vodka bottle, correct? Well, based on the injury pattern, I can say that the described mechanism of injury is inconsistent with medical findings. Right. But because a vodka bottle is a foreign object, you can't rule out that a vodka bottle is what caused Mr. Depp's injury. Well, I, I can't rule out that a vodka bottle caused the injury, but I can rule out that it was caused in the manner described in his testimony. 
you can't rule out that the injury was caused by a knife, right? I think it's unlikely that the injury was caused by a knife. But you can't uh, rule it out. Well, if a simple knife laceration wouldn't impart the energy to the distal phalanx to result in the comedy fracture. Um, now, a, a chopping type, uh, th but again, that would likely come from a direction that would that would create a dorsal uh, injury to create the fracture that was developed. Do you remember giving testimony in this case, Dr. Moore? Uh, deposition? Yes. Yes. Okay. And you were under oath, correct? Correct. All right. And that was on March 22nd, 2022. Yes? Correct. Okay. May I approach, Your Honor? Yes, ma'am. Dr. Moore, may I please have you go to page 163 of your deposition, specifically line 17? One Actually, apologies, 164. Line four. Correct. Question, but you can't rule it out completely, right? Answer, I can't rule anything out completely. I can't rule out that he caught it in the door, cut it with a knife, or slammed it in the car door. Or, again, as Dr. Gilmer said, we can't definitively say what caused this injury. Did I read that correctly? You did. Okay. Your, Your Honor, I, I would object as to the incomplete impeachment. I think if she's going to read his answer, she also needs to read or give Dr. Moore the chance to read the paragraph below. She just picked out half of his answer. You, you can redirect. I'll, yeah, I'll as well the as the paragraph above. Uh, Dr. Moore, there's no question pending. Thank you, though. So you can't rule out that the injury was caused by a car, car door either. Is that right? Correct. But it's your testimony sitting here today that you can rule out that the injury was caused by a vodka bottle. Is that your testimony? My testimony is that I can rule out the injury as caused by the mechanism described by Mr. Depp in his deposition. But you can't definitively say what caused the injury to Mr. Depp's finger. Well, the definitive injury is a crush injury, um, but I, but it, uh, again, I, I, I can't say. I mean, I think it's... I think that, that it's quite likely that the initial uh, uh, mechanism described at the time of presentation of the accordion doors would, would classically create this injury pattern. You know, the, the hand up in front, if you picture accordion doors as the, end, as the edge is closed, if the hand's up, the palm is exposed, if the door's pushed, the hand closes about the fingers. I understand that. But, but my I, question is... I think it's important that they understand that. This is the time for me to ask you questions. Your counsel will have the ability to rehabilitate you and ask you questions on redirect. Right now, let's try my question. Okay. You can't definitively say what caused the injury to Mr. Depp's fingers, yes or no? No. Okay. In conducting your analysis of Mr. Depp's finger injury, you did not attempt to reconstruct the incident. Is that right? Well, I think the, the incident was reconstructed you mean did i throw a vodka bottle at something no you're 
no, Dr. Moore, I mean, you didn't do any type of accident reconstruction, either computerized or any, you didn't conduct no. any type of accident reconstruction of the alleged. No, that's correct. My opinion is based on the medical records and the clinical images and Mr. Depp's description. And, and your analysis is based on an understanding of how Mr. Depp described the exact positioning of his finger at the time of the injury, yes? Yes. Okay. And your analysis is also based on the assumption that Mr. Depp's hand remained completely still in the instance that a vodka bottle was hurled at him, yes? No, my assessment is on his description of the vodka bottle striking the top of his finger. But his hand stayed still, according to your analysis, yes? Uh, I guess it was still long enough for the bottle to hit it, but natural reaction would be to try to pull away. When you perform traumatic finger surgeries, you inquire about the cause of the injuries, correct? Correct. And your best information on that is typically just the self-report of the patient, yes? Correct. And your assumption is that the patient is trying to get care. Because the patient is trying to get care, that person, that patient, is generally telling the truth, right? You would hope so. Yeah. You reviewed Dr. Kipper's deposition testimony informing your opinion about Mr. Depp's finger injury, correct? Correct. Informing your opinion, did you consider Dr. Kipper's deposition testimony that while Dr. Kipper was providing emergency treatment Objection, for Mr. Your Depp... Objection, we approach? Okay. Let's start over, because it's important the jury hears this. So informing your opinion, did you consider Dr. Kipper's deposition testimony that while Dr. Kipper was providing emergency treatment for Mr. Depp's finger injury in Australia in the driveway of the house, Mr. Depp told him that his finger was injured when Ms. Hurd threw a vodka bottle at him. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't recall that from the deposition. I'd, I'd be happy to review it if you have the deposition available. Did you consider Dr. Kipper's testimony that he recalled that Mr. Depp's finger was found in the kitchen? I do recall that. So you must have also seen Dr. Kipper's deposition testimony that he wasn't the one who actually found the finger, correct? That's correct. Dr. Kipper testified that someone he thought was the chef told him he found the finger in the kitchen area, correct? Uh, I'm going to assume so without reading the deposition now. Did you review uh, any testimony from Ben King in rendering your opinions today? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. Did you see any of Mr. King's testimony at this trial? I did not. Okay. So you're not aware that Mr. King testified that he is the one who found Mr. Depp's finger, are you? No. And you're not aware that Mr. King testified that he found Mr. Depp's finger in the bar area, right? Correct. And you're not aware that Mr. King testified he found Mr. Depp's finger in a piece of tissue in the bar area, either? No. And you're not aware that Mr. King testified that multiple broken liquor bottles were also found in the bar area, right? Correct. If we could please pull up Defendant's Exhibit 1817, which is already in evidence. And it may be published, please. I, I just don't have it yet. That would help. Yes. <laughs> I just have a blank screen at the moment. There we go. Oops, sorry, something. Thank there you. There we go. Okay. Have you ever seen this picture before, Dr. Moore? No. So you're not aware that this is the bar area where Mr. King testified he found Mr. Depp's finger? 
No. Okay. Do you see that broken vodka bottle in the back corner near the bottom of the bar? Yes. Okay. Do you see the blood drops on the floor? Yes. Can we please pull up Defendant's Exhibit 1820, which is already in evidence? Have you seen this picture before, Dr. Moore? I have not. So you're not aware that this is also a picture from the bar area where Mr. King testified he found Mr. Depp's finger? Correct. Do you see the bloody tissue on the ground at the bottom of the bar? Yes. Do you see the blood drops around that tissue? Yes. So you didn't consider any of this evidence in rendering your opinion about how Mr. Depp injured his finger in Australia, did you? I did not. Okay. Nothing further, Your Honor. Thank right. you. Redirect. Yes, sir. Can you pull up um, Exhibit 1817 that was just shown to the witness, please? And can you um, blow up that what, what Ms. Vasquez referred to as a broken vodka bottle, Michelle, please? Dr. Moore, what, what, based on your review of the documents in this case, what did you understand to be the size of the bottle of vodka that Mr. Depp alleged uh, cut off his finger? The description was that it was a... Uh, a handle, a half-gallon bottle. And that's bigger than a, a 750 mil or fifth of liquor, correct? Yes. And what size bottle, if to the extent that's even a bottle, what size does that appear to be to you? Calls for speculation, Your Honor. I'll sustain the objection. Okay. Does that appear to be a handle? It is objection not. calls for speculation. I'll sustain the objection. You can take that down. Um, Dr. Moore, Ms. Vasquez just... just um, ask you about Dr. Kipper's deposition testimony. Um, and she said, is that uh, where, where she claims that Mr. Depp allegedly told him that the finger was severed from a vodka bottle? Do you remember that question a few minutes ago? Objection leading. Overruled. I do is, remember that question. Yes. Thank you. Is that consistent, that alleged account, is that consistent with the texts you, the texts you reviewed between Mr. Depp and Dr. Kipper? Uh, no. And what did those texts say? Uh, as I recall, um, Mr. Depp indicated that he had cut his finger off. Now, Ms. Vasquez wouldn't let you finish when you were trying to explain to the jury um, how Mr. Depp's account of injuring his finger in an accordion door would be perfectly consistent with the photographs you saw. Could you please explain that to the jury? Well, well so uh, again, uh, we tend to, to try to believe patients, we hope that they come in with an honest history initially, and, and that's a reasonable mechanism for this to have occurred. And, and it, again, if you picture your hand up with a with a, either a, a closure of a hinge or a closure of a door, the palmar surface is exposed. If it's caught in that hinge as it closes, it could be, it could sli be slightly off-center. It would pinch that tissue away in a similar fashion, but because it's below the level of the nail bed, it could create this injury with the fracture, the tissue loss, and preserve the nail bed. Can you look at page 164 of your deposition, the one that Ms. Vasquez just showed you? Yes. Objection, Your Honor. I'm going to object on hearsay grounds. Your Honor, she only... Oh, overruled. Thank you. Ms. Vasquez asked you a question, and then she read your answer, trying to impeach you, but she only read half of the answer. So I'm going to read the whole answer to the jury, and I'm going to ask you to tell me if I'm reading your answer right. Okay? The, the question is on page 164, line 4, but you can't rule it out completely, right? Uh, 
and you answered, I can't rule anything out completely. I can't rule out that he caught it in the door, cut it with a knife, or slammed it in the car door. Or again, as Dr. Gilmore said, we can't definitively say what caused this injury. And then you go on to say, this is where Ms. Vasquez cut you off and didn't let you finish. What I, the I don't think that's in the transcript objection. <laughs> I'll sustain that. The, the, rest of, the rest of your answer that she didn't read to you, Dr. Moore, is what I, the question I can answer is, is that the mechanism that was described by Mr. Depp and demonstrated by Mr. Depp is inconsistent with the injury pattern that's found on the images and the description. Did I read that right? Yes. And it, does that remain your opinion today? Yes. Has anything that's been presented to you on cross-examination changed any of the opinions that you hold in this case? No. I have nothing further. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Thank you. All right, Dr. Moore, you're free to go or you can stay in the courtroom. It's up to you. All right, thank you. All right, your next witness. Your Honor, we'd uh, like to call Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel. All right, that's fine. Yes, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Will you please tell the jury your full name and business address? Uh, David uh, R. Spiegel. I'm a physician. I uh, work at uh, 825 Fairfax Avenue in Norfolk, Virginia, as part of the Eastern Virginia Medical School. And what is your occupation? I'm a physician psychiatrist. And, and where do you work? Do you work at... I work at Eastern Virginia. I'm employed by Eastern Virginia Medical School, but I also work at uh, Norfolk General Hospital, which is the teaching hospital in Norfolk. Okay. How many years have you been practicing as a psychiatrist? I entered residency in 1989. I graduated residency in 1993. So from 1993 to today, I've been physician uh, practicing. So that's almost 30 years. That's 30 years, years yeah. Okay, thank you. Please describe for the jury the nature of your clinical practice. So my clinical practice is comprised of both inpatient care at Norfolk General Hospital, as well as my outpatient practice at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Um, about 
85 to 90 percent of my day is clinical between the two components. And what is involved in a comprehensive evaluation? So in a comprehensive evaluation, in addition to reviewing historical information that you receive from collateral other sources, uh, you undertake a history from the patient. You get, whether it's the history of current illness, the past psychiatric history, family history, social history, legal substance history, then you do what's called a mental status exam, which is the psychiatric version of the physical exam, where you're actually giving a description of what you see in front of you. Uh, then you can do cognitive testing, which tests the patient memory, attention, concentration, etc. cetera. Uh, then you come up with a working and a differential diagnosis, describe any other additional testing you may need or not need, and then you come up with a treatment plan. How many patients have you treated over the 30 years? Uh, quite a lot, uh, probably in the tens of thousands. And how many patients do you regularly see? So inpatient is generally about five to eight, sometimes more. Uh, outpatients probably five to six, sometimes more. Uh, I should point out that my inpatient work is divided between uh, consultation, psychiatry, and I believe we're going to talk about that, as well as working on the inpatient service. So I think we will talk about that. Um, what, if any, differences are there on how many patients you see on weekends as opposed to weekdays? So when I'm on call, which is uh, on a, either a Saturday or a Sunday meeting, I have to be in the hospital and around. That's probably an additional 35-plus patients. How frequently do you treat patients who abuse drugs and alcohol? Uh, unfortunately, drugs and alcohol are part of psychiatric practice, uh, and so probably three-fourths of my patients have substance abuse problems. Okay. Does this include both legal and illegal drugs? Yes. Put them both together, probably 75%. And how frequently do you treat patients who have suffered from someone in their lives who abuses alcohol and drugs? on a regular basis, like I said, on a daily basis. This is part of what psychiatry is. Okay. And as part of that treatment of patients who abuse drugs and alcohol, do you evaluate the impact of the abuse on their brains and personal interactions with others? Yes. Uh, substance of abuse, both in the short term and the long term, can affect the brain in terms of mood, behavior, cognition, meaning uh, attention, concentration, memory, ability to control your behavior, as well as your overall uh, level of functioning. It can affect it in the short term, uh, such as alcoholic blackouts. It can affect it by causing strokes, such as stimulants can. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, it's a rather lengthy uh, list of what substance abuse can do to the human brain. Dr. Spiegel, how frequently have you treated patients who have suffered intimate partner violence? Again, it's very unfortunate that probably 50% of my patients suffer from trauma. If I had a guess of those 50%, probably 25% of my practice is people who have suffered uh, intimate partner violence. And how consistent is that with the national average? In America, unfortunately, uh, it's about 20 to 25 percent, depending on the study of uh, 
women have complained, have reported uh, intimate partner violence. And how frequently have you treated patients who have perpetrated the intimate partner violence? So again, in the outpatient setting, I don't see it quite as much. But in the inpatient setting, again, it's a really relative uh, common phenomenon that we'll see uh, perpetrators of partner violence. Uh, and, you know, they're patients who need treatment too. And overall, how many patients have you treated who have been perpetrators of intimate partner violence? Perpetrators? Yes. Uh, probably 5 to 10% of the patients I do is in, uh, perpetrators. And would you say uh, tens of thousands over the 30 years? Yes, it's leading. Overall, thank you. As part of treating patients relating to intimate partner violence, do you regularly evaluate these patients? Do I regularly evaluate the patient? Evaluate the patient, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, regularly. I mean, they get the same comprehensive valuation that I described before. Are you licensed in Virginia? Yes, I am. And when did you first become licensed in Virginia? 1993. Have you been qualified by courts as an expert witness? Yes, I have. In how many states have you been qualified as an expert? Three, which would be Virginia, Maryland, and South Carolina. Okay. Dr. Spiegel, can you please review for the jury your educational background beginning with your undergraduate studies? So uh, I went to Duke University undergrad. I went to medical school at the State University of New York Health Science Center in Brooklyn, formerly known as Downstate Medical Center. I did my internship and residency between Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and Penn State Hershey Medical Center. And I'm also fellowship uh, uh, board certified in consultation liaison psychiatry. Okay. And. Uh, did you, so where did you do your residency and your internships? So I did my residency for Penn State and internship at Dartmouth. Okay. And what is your current title and position? So I am in the acting chair, uh, endowed chair, and professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Are you board certified? Yes, I am. And what are you board certified in? general adult psychiatry and consultation ways on psychiatry as a subspecialty. Okay. So you have two board certifications. Yes. Okay. Can you explain to the jury what's involved in board certifications in those two fields? So board certification is the standard we strive to in uh, being a physician or any other uh, mental health practitioner. Uh, it involves uh, taking a very comprehensive uh, test at the beginning of your career to initiate board certification. Then you get tested again after 10 years. Then you have to go through continual medical education uh, throughout the entire period. Um, you have to do what's called performance in practice, which is basically ways to improve things uh, in, your, in your practice. Uh, and again, this is throughout, this is, occurs always throughout the, the years. Now, are you a member of any professional organizations? Yes, I am. Could you I'm please tell the jury? I'm a member of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, as well as the fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. I'm a member of the Medical Society of Virginia. I'm a member of the uh, uh, Psychiatric Society of Virginia. I'm a member of the Tidewater Academy of Psychiatry. And I'm a member of the uh, Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry.
Do you have any teaching responsibilities? Teaching responsibilities? Teach, oh, yeah. Teaching, yes. So, yes. So, teaching is a daily occurrence as part of my job when, I'm in, when I do my inpatient rounds, uh, residents, medical students, physician assistant students are assigned. So, we round together and there's teaching with every single encounter. Uh, in addition to that, I teach lectures to the residents, to the uh, third, second, and first year medical students, as well as a fourth year medical student lecture as well. So I'm constantly teaching. Have you engaged in any hands-on training of psychiatrists practicing in Virginia? Hands-on training with the residents? With psychiatrists. Oh yeah, so again, uh, I I'm teaching at bedside, I mean we don't speak in front of the patient obviously, but I'm teaching at bedside meeting after we see a patient we discuss the important points to, to learn. And again, that includes residents at every level. That includes medical students, third, second, and first year physician assistant students. So every day is a teaching explanation session to the uh, students and residents. What is your role at Eastern Virginia Medical School as the acting chair? Please tell the jury what that means. So as the acting chair, you are not only accountable for your own practice, but you are accountable for your faculty members' practices. So I have to make sure that everyone is treating, seeing, evaluating a, a, a certain number of patients. I have responsible for their academic requirements, so in terms of publishing, et cetera. I'm responsible for their uh, uh, teaching assignments to other residents, to other students. I'm responsible for fiscally that they are uh, accountable to their uh, fiscal productivity. So I know a heck of a lot of other administrative uh, meetings that I go to. Okay. Have you published in your field? Uh, to the tune of about 80 manuscripts. Uh, in, I have my own book on catatonia, the consultation liaison setting. I, I have a book chapter in, on uh, the uh, uh, current and uh, trying to current and contemporary approaches temporomandibular disease, at least the psychiatric portion. I'm also in a dissociative uh, identity disorders chapter on a, uh, a, a wiki book. And have you peer-reviewed literature? Yes. So I'm a I'm a reviewer on. I've served as a reviewer on uh, uh, Lancet. I've served as a reviewer as uh, innovations in uh, clinical neuroscience. I've served on a uh, reviewer for clinical neuropharmacology, and I'm actually editor-in-chief of, at this point, of clinical neuropharmacology. Have you lectured on the effects of drugs and alcohol on the human brain? Yes. Uh, I teach to the residents. I teach a uh, lecture to the second-year medical students, third-year medical students. So I am fully aware of not only what I teach, but what I see in the emergency room and the consultation and in patient settings. Have you published and lectured on the causes and effects of intimate partner abuse? Yes, I've punctured, uh, I believe, two articles on the effects of trauma, and in that trauma was intimate partner violence. Okay. Are you familiar with the hallmarks of intimate partner violence? Yes. Are you familiar with what causes intimate partner violence? One more, excuse me? What causes intimate partner violence? I'm a, yes, I'm, there's a multiple explanations that cause intimate partner violence. And if, I can I just uh, mention at this point too that when we are discussing intimate partner violence, I think it's imperative for the jury to you know we are talking about repetitive behavior, 
over periods of time. And the type of abuse can be any physical, psychological, sexual, but just as important is for somebody, one of the partners to maintain some uneven element of control or to maintain power, control, or authority. So there are a lot of facets to intimate partner violence. I know people tend to think of it as just the actual abuse act, but there's more to it than just the actual abuse act. Abuse act's important, but it's not the sole thing. Your Honor, I'd move to qualify Dr. Spiegel as an expert in the field of psychiatry and behavioral sciences with specific emphasis on drug and alcohol abuse, intimate partner violence, and the effect of these as they pertain to the issues in this case. All right, any objection? Yes, Your Honor. You wish to avoid dear? I do. Okay. To his qualifications. His qualifications. Okay, thank you. Sir, you talked about two board certifications, general adult psychiatry. Yes. And liaison consultation psychiatry. Uh, other way around, but consultation, consultation liaison. liaison psychiatry. Subtle point. Right. Now, that is not intimate partner violence. That deals with the, with the issue of comorbidity between people who have medical problems and health problems. So you're saying subspecialty? Yes. So consultation liaison psychiatry does have that, but you're also treating patients who have medical illness who have comorbid psychiatric illness or people who have psychiatric illness that have comorbid medical illness. And many of the patients that I see on the trauma service have tried to take their own life. And unfortunately, as part of that, intimate partner violence and trauma in general is part and parcel of that. So it's very, very uh, narrow to say it's just the medical psychiatric interface. It's much more of psychiatric patients who need medical help, medical patients who develop psychiatric problems, but also that interface. So as a subset of your trauma patients, which you say are about 50% of your practice, as a subset of that practice, some people have been involved with intimate partner violence. So as a subset of my overall practice, 50% have suffered from trauma, about half of that number have suffered from, I'm sorry, about 20, so it's 20, about 20% that suffer from IP, intimate partner violence. All right. You've never conducted any empirical research on individuals who experienced intimate partner violence, have you, sir? If your definition is trials, is that what you're saying? Yes. Like pharmaceutical trials, or what are you saying? Is that what you're saying? Because I've done review articles on patients who've suffered from trauma. So the answer is, oh, I haven't done any studies like where you uh, give them medication for treatment or try one treatment versus another. I've reviewed the body of literature on intimate partner violence to get two review articles, yes. So, you, so you've read about it, is what you just testified to. I would have to disagree with you on that, sir. Reading about it and writing a review article are completely two different things, sir. All right. You haven't authorized, authored any articles specifically on IPV, have you, sir? As a subset of trauma, the answer is yes. In terms of in the name of the title of the article, the answer is no. You've never written any books specifically on IPV? I've never written any books on IPV, although, although temporomandibular disease 
okay, in terms of psychiatric issues, does have a higher frequency in those patients who have suffered from trauma, including intimate partner violence. You've never and I am part of that book. Okay. Temporal mandibular disease deals with problems with the jaw. Is that what a is question, temporal, sir? What is temporal mandibular? The temporal mandibular disease problem with oral issues, yeah, but there are many patients who complain of oral issues where the, uh, where the oral surgeon cannot find a reason for it, and the reason why they can't is because people who have suffered from trauma and intimate partner violence are prone to increased sensitivity of somatic sensations, which can manifest in temporal mandibularies. Thank you. I appreciate that. Nice plug for my book, too. Thank you. Didn't hear it, but there we go. Um, so, you, you haven't written any chapters of any books specifically about IPV. Again, I think I've gone over that. I've written two articles on that, and I've written parts of chapters. And dissociative identity disorder, I should add, where I did write a chapter on, is completely based on trauma and intimate partner violence. Right. I'm not asking you about trauma because you want to talk about trauma. I'm asking you about IPV specifically. I will reiterate again, you cannot separate intimate partner violence and say that is a separate rubric aside from trauma. Trauma is overall, intimate partner violence is part of trauma. And the answer to the question is, any individual who suffers from a dissociative disorder, which I am the author of a chapter of, suffers from trauma, whether it be at the hands of childhood or it be at the hands of an intimate partner. Right, but you've already testified that half your practice is trauma and a subset of that practice is IPV, correct? Which is, a, actually, I treat the national average of patients. About 20% of patients suffer from it, and that's about my practice number. That, except you're discounting the fact that half your practice is not trauma at all. So 10% of your practice is IPV. I don't know if the numbers add up exactly like I'm that. I'm just using yours. I don't know if I'm doing, uh, I don't know if those numbers add up like that, uh, because I'm not sure if that's the case. If you take 25%, then maybe 12.5% of my practice, that's being rather specific. So again, a significant number of my patients have suffered from intimate partner violence. I see it on a daily basis, and I'm not sure exactly why I'm getting asked the same question again. Okay. Thank you, sir. You listed 60 references to articles. I guess you said 80 now, and publications. Um, and I said around, sorry, I said around 80. I said around 80. 60, 80, whatever it is, right? No, 60 and 80 is not. If you go to the PubMed app, you want you go to PubMed right now and Google, not Google, put PubMed, Spiegel DR, and you'll find that number is 72 with two waiting to be impressed. One submitted, so that'd be 75. So I said around 80. So again, what's on my CV is not necessarily the most updated version because I still publish since the CV's been uh, uh, given to you, sir. Right. And not one of the 72, 80 articles has IPV in the title, right? Correct. Not one of them has IPV. It does have trauma, but not IPV. Right. And you've never presented on the topic of IPV specifically. Are you, as a function of trauma and as a function of somatic illness, again, I would say to you that it's part and parcel of these illnesses. So the answer is, yes, I have. Okay? Right. The answer is, yes, I have. And IPV doesn't appear in your CV at all. 
If, if you say it's not in my CV, I will believe you. Okay. There's a lot of things that are not in my CV that I do. So. And you're not associated with any professional literature on IPV. I'm sorry, repeat the question, sir? Is there any professional literature that you've contributed to relative to IPV specifically as, as opposed to trauma generally? The answer to the question again, sir, is that you cannot separate this artificial separation you are trying to do between trauma and intimate partner violence. It is part and parcel of trauma. We don't thread it like that. Your Honor, uh, plaintiff would accept this witness as an expert on general psychiatry, but uh, and with respect to the drug usage issues that uh, Ms. Bredehoff referenced, but not with respect to IPV. All right, over objection, he's entered as an expert as, as, as uh, stated on the record. All right, you may continue. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Your Honor. Dr. Spiegel, at our request, what have you reviewed in this case? And just go ahead and give me more so it's, uh, it's a lengthy review, but court filings, uh, psychological testing that was done on Ms. Heard by both uh, Dr. Hughes and Dr. Curry, uh, other physicians' medical records, other physicians' you know, Dr. Kipper, um, counsel, uh, counselors and therapists that both parties and psychiatrists that they went to, uh, text messages, depositions, uh, snippets of uh, the uh, UK trial, um, and I'm sure uh, pictures of uh, physical injuries, so I've, I've seen a lot. What, if anything, have you seen in terms of emails, audios, videos? Yes, so I've seen videos of um, uh, Mr. Depp. I think the video was showing right, of uh, Mr. Depp. Uh, destroying, uh, slamming cupboards and breaking glass and yelling at Miss Heard while having a wine glass in his, uh, with wine in his hands. Um, I've seen videos of uh, destruction of property in the house. Um, okay. Uh, and what, if any, review have you conducted of the deposition and testimony of Mr. Depp's uh, hired witness, Dr. Curry? Objection. Sure. Do you remember my question? Did Did you review the, the, uh, the deposition the, and testimony of Dr. Curry? Dr. Curry. Yes, I reviewed Dr. Yes, I'm sorry. And, yes, so I reviewed testimony of Dr. Curry. I reviewed Dr. Curry's reports. I reviewed Dr. Curry's testimony. Okay. And what if did you review the deposition and trial testimony of Dr. Hughes? Yes. Objection, Your Honor, beyond the scope of the disclosure. I, I, I'll allow that. Thank you, Your Honor. Overruled. Did you interview Mr. Depp? No, I did not. Did but you request to interview? I requested to interview Mr. Depp twice, and both times Mr. Depp and his lawyers refused. Dr. Spiegel, I'm going to ask you some questions in this case respecting your opinions and, and the opinions you have formed and the basis for them. And I'm going to ask you to provide me with, in a reasonable degree of medical probability or certainty, can you do that? Yes. Okay. On what were you requested to analyze and opine in this case? So it's fourfold. Uh, one, I was asked to opine about the risk factors that are associated with intimate partner violence. 
and behaviors that are shown, risk factors that are shown in intimate partner violence to be consistent with behaviors that Mr. Depp has demonstrated. Two, I've been asked to opine about the acute effects on alcohol and substance use, and I mentioned that including mood, behavior, cognition, functional impairment. Three, talking about the psychological profile, if you would, of, I'm, is there a question? I'm sorry. Oh, no. Okay. Of uh, psychological and medical sequelae of patients who have suffered uh, intimate partner violence and perpetrated intimate partner violence and whether or not Mr. Death's behavior is consistent with that. And lastly, about uh, alcohol and other substance use disorders, their diagnostic criteria, their medical and psychological effects, psychiatric effects, their cognitive effects, and their functional effects. And I think I would like to just, just go with the jury one other thing. When we talk about this, when, we, when psychiatry talks about substance use disorders, I, it's imperative to understand we're not talking about someone who rarely uses and happens to have a bad night. We're not talking about someone who uses on a weekly basis and has a bad night. We're talking about repetitive patterns of behavior that meet a list of 11 criteria that can be deemed mild, moderate, or severe. Because I think people get confused when they hear the word substance abuse that they think of, oh, I may abuse this because I use it twice. There is a whole criteria of behavior and sequelae and consequences that go with a substance use disorder. I'm not just talking about someone who will occasionally smoke a joint or smokes a joint or snorts occasionally coke, okay, or has alcohol on weekends. So I really need to reiterate that because I think when you look at psychiatric behavior, we tend to look, people look online and say, my gosh, I have all seven of these, right? And they, they're reading it not quite the way the psychiatric literature is supposed to go. So please, when I'm talking about this, I need you to understand, one, that that's what's going on. As I told you about intimate partner violence, it's horrible that anyone would strike anyone, okay? But again, we're talking about repetitive behaviors for means of control, right? So that's real important to understand when you're moving forward. And I may say occasionally substance abuse, but what I'm referring to is substance Objection abuse. beyond the scope of the question. I, I, I don't sustain. Next question. Okay. Dr. Spiegel, could you please just summarize for the jury the conclusions you came to with your opinions, and then we'll take you through the specifics. So in my opinion, based on my re review of the evidence, based on my clinical experience, based on my publishing experience, based on my teaching experience, that Mr. Depp has behaviors that are consistent with both someone who has a substance use disorder as well as consistent behaviors for someone who is a perpetrator of intimate partner violence. Thank you. I'm going to start with the impact of drug and alcohol abuse over time. First of all, based upon your review of the record evidence, what type of drugs has Mr. Depp used? So, Mr. Depp, and I will get, I'm talking about use, we're talking about a substance use disorder here. We're not just talking about use, okay? So we are talking about alcohol. We are talking about amphetamines. We are talking about marijuana. We are talking about cocaine. We are talking about LSD. We are talking about ecstasy. We are talking about opiates. We are talking about prescription benzodiazepines. And 
we'll get into a separate thing about the abusability of Seroquel and or gabapentin in Iran. And we're talking about much of the time concurrent use, meaning simultaneously. In your practice, do some patients suggest to you that drugs and alcohol actually help them? So I think it's patients who lack insight or are in the very early stages of recognizing they have a quote-unquote problem will sometimes actually say that they have this medication actually calms me down, this medication makes me feel better. And in actuality, they may not acutely feel anything, but chronic and continual use will take its toll on the brain. So the answer is yes, but again, people who have substance use disorders have a very have lack of insight and a lack of judgment about what's going on, the very poor uh, moderates of their own behavior. Has Mr. Depp suggested, based on your review of the record evidence, that alcohol and drugs actually help him? In review of the evidence, he has suggested that alcohol, Xanax, I'm in the list of medications, do help. Although I will also tell you on review of the evidence that there were at least two times I can remember that uh, Mr. Depp was referring to uh, at least short-lived periods of sobriety, and I cannot exactly tell you what that included, that both times he said that he functioned better and that he recognized that alcohol and drugs was at the root of his problems. Now, there have been, there's been testimony that Mr. Depp is quite charming, both off and on the drugs and the alcohol. What is your answer to that? So, again, let me put one thing clear here. I am not here to impeach Mr. Depp's acting skills or his persona. He has way greater skills than I do in that. What I'm here to say is talk about how drugs and alcohol affect what we all have in common. We're all human beings. We can all only get so much, take so much when something is going to happen. And that's what I see every day in the emergency room, on the consult service, and in patient psychiatry. Bad things happen, not because of anything special, except we're all human beings and our brains, substance of abuse are not titrated, they're not regulated by the FDA. We don't know what we're getting, we don't know how much we're getting. There is no control over what makes it to our brain. So it is not the actor, it is not the persona, okay? It is a person just like the rest of us who are human beings who will have these effects and that's what we all share in common. Everyone in this courtroom shares that in common. When Mr. Depp was in his relationship with Amber Heard, was he a polysubstance abuser? Was he in what substance abuse? Polysubstance yes. abuser. So Can you explain leaving your, what that is? Yeah. Overruled. I'm sorry. Okay. Get, go ahead. Okay, so polysubstance abuse is the use of three or more substances. And I answer, like I said, concurrently, um, he was. Even while I was getting ready for rehab on the island he was. So, yes, he did engage in that. Did Mr. Depp's drug and alcohol abuse affect him cognitively? Yes. So, if, if nothing else to look at, uh, Dr. Uh, Blaustein, a psychiatrist at Valley, Mr. Depp, 
uh, did a mini mental state exam on him. And as part of that mini mental state examination, you're asked to remember three words and then come back five minutes later and repeat those three words. And in the meanwhile, you're getting other types of testing for attention and concentration and visual, spatial, and language. So other things that are being tested too. Um, Mr. Depp was unable to recall any of them. And that is very unusual for a 50-ish year old male. I don't remember how old he was when he took that. Um, generally speaking, um, uh, that age group should be remembering two or all three of those words. Um, one, I do know that his uh, lines were also fed to him by earpiece. Uh, again, affecting memory. I did see in deposition, I'm sorry, video deposition about having to have uh, questions. I don't want to say repeat as much as completely forgotten. So the answer is yes. And, and you know, any, again, any one of us who use alcohol and cocaine to that level of degree, and I'm talking about a severe level of substance use disorder, are going to have effects it is inescapable because we all have brains that are malaffected by extensive substance use, and potentially sometimes less, but certainly what we're talking about here is extensive. What, if any, uh, anything did you, did you observe from the record evidence about Mr. Depp having difficulty focusing his attention span, processing whether he could function as an actor? So, Objecting compound. I, compound is only oh, if it's overruled. Thank you. So again, in terms of the acting part, we do know that he needed his lines fed to him for movies. Part of that could have been also due to uh, and I don't know which movie, and please forgive me about that, that he actually confessed he did a movie entirely wasted. So I imagine it would be harder to do that. Um, additionally, like I said, when I looked at that position, you can tell that the processing speed was down. His thinking rate was down. If your thinking rate is down, and I'm not talking about, again, I'm getting older. My, I'm probably not as sharp as I was at 25, okay? But I'm talking about it so slow that when we're trying to move on to other questions, we're still trying to answer the original data that's presented to us. So attention span is very much impaired. And if your attention span is impaired, your memory is going to be impaired. It is inescapable that that's going to happen. So all that comes into play there. And that's what I witnessed in the, um, in the uh, uh, video deposition. Fortunately for Mr. Depp, I do see that during this trial, that's he's, uh, uh, his cognition has improved some, which will happen if you are sober. Uh, so I commend him on that. Uh, but again, I'm specifically referencing the time with Ms. Hearns and Mr. Depp's relationship. So we're talking about that. What if any... Uh, I uh, observations from the record evidence did you have about Mr. Depp having alcoholic blackouts or foggy mind? Again, there were reported times where he would be essentially, quote unquote, passed out drunk. You saw pictures of him passed out drunk and not being able to remember what he did, which is, again, if you look at the record evidence, you will see that, and this is linking intimate partner violence and substance uses together. I know we're going to get to that, which is basically if you have blackouts and you're using alcohol or using cocaine, 
it's going to be near impossible to remember what happened the night before. I don't think I'm the first person that's ever told you that alcohol can cause blackouts. And basically, alcohol uh, decreases a brain chemical, glutamate, which is involved in memory formation. If it blocks that to an extensive degree, the individual cannot remember what happened because they didn't have enough time for their brain to process the memory. We need this brain chemical. So does alcohol blackouts happen every time? So, no, of course not. But are they a complication of a use disorder? Absolutely, yes. And there was record evidence of that. Dr. Spiegel, you said at one point alcohol and cocaine. Is it possible to have blackouts with alcohol and different types of substances? Yes. So uh, my clinical experience, and I'll, be, I'll date it back within the last month, uh, we had a patient who was using both, especially cocaine, and she had these kind of stroke-like lesions around the brain center known as the hippocampus, which is involved in memory formation. So Objection combined, relevance. Just giving an yeah. example. Overruled. Combining the two subs together increases the likelihood, even if you don't get what is a major stroke. And again, we think of a major stroke as someone who has speech difficulties and movement difficulties. There's a lot of different types of stroke that can just affect cognition. They don't necessarily have to have severe movement deficits or severe language deficits. They can solely affect you in terms of your cognitive symptoms and actually known as a vascular neurocognitive disorder. So I, I, you need to understand, and that's part of the psychiatric diagnosis, you need to understand that you can have these insults, these lesions, these strokes, without demonstrating physical features. And at a minimal, we know that he was using both substances concurrently, and at a minimal, we know he had cognitive issues that we talked about, or at least had some of them. Thank you, Dr. Spiegel. What, if any, correlation is there between domestic abuse, heavy alcohol abuse, and cognitive disorders? So um, the risk factors, if you would, for intimate partner violence, okay, and there are probably many of them. I don't have time to go over all of them, but the ones in particular, the characters in particular, are one, having someone in the relationship who is jealous or suspicious. Two, having someone who has an, a, a higher than average acceptance of violence ideations. Three, someone who has rapid and extreme mood shifts. Four, someone who has limited self-control. One of the roles of cognition, one of the roles of our brain, is to prevent inappropriate behaviors and acting out on thoughts. We all get angry at people. That's human. We all get angry at people. We all think things about people. The difference is when our brains are intact and working well, most of us don't act them out. Okay? Most of us do not act them out. So that's, that's because your frontal lobe and other parts of the brain are involved in making sure these negative thoughts don't get acted on. Okay? So, when you have the effects of alcohol, acutely, it causes disinhibition, which means you are, by definition, losing control and having rapid mood swings. Two, you are affecting parts of the brain that are involved in what we call social processing clues, cues. So you no longer can interpret what's in front of you that is, I would say, right or wrong or what I should act on and what I shouldn't act on. 
So we act on them. Even though sober, and I've seen it in Mr. Depp's, Depp, uh, Mr. Depp's record evidence, I've seen it clinically, sober, we can contain that. We can contain that. But when you have these mixtures together, knowing, by the way, that about 40 up to 60 percent of intimate partner violence is um, uh, uh, done under the influence of alcohol and or substance use disorders, okay? Knowing that treating it gets it better, improves, I'm not saying removes it, but improves it. Hearing from Mr. Depp's own uh, text to Dr. Kipper that he was better with that, that things are going better, will show you that given those confluence of factors, given them all lining up the risk factors, combined with something that when any of us, any of us, use to a certain amount, if we're novice at it, it'll be a lot less. If we're more experienced and have more tolerance and dependence, it's gonna take a lot more. But inevitably, will make us disinhibited and will make us act out. And acting out could be done in a lot of different ways in intimate partner violence, okay? With also remembering, control is the end game of intimate partner violence. So that's how they basically interact in a nutshell. Ms. Bitterhop, I assume you have... Uh, I, I have quite a bit more. Let, let's go ahead and take our uh, morning recess. Ladies and gentlemen, just do not discuss the case and don't do any outside research. We'll be back with you. Oh, I'm sorry. In 15 minutes. We're just, sorry, I told we're just you. Taking a break. No, no, we're just taking a break. Let's just take a break till 11 then, and we'll come back at 11, okay? Thank you. All right, ready for the jury? Okay. Yes, Your Honor, can we approach before the jury can Okay, sure. Thank you. May be seated. All right, your next question. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Your Honor. Dr. Spiegel, before we took the break, you were talking about the correlation between domestic abuse, heavy alcohol abuse, and cognitive disorders. Does the literature support uh, your, your testimony on this? Yes, the literature fully supports everything I just said. Okay. Give me that interaction. Thank you. Um, now, you indicated that you reviewed Mr. Depp's video depositions. Is that correct? The yes. ones from November 10 through 12 of 2020 and December 14 of 2021. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Did you reach any conclusions about his cognitive symptoms, insight, and judgment in watching those? So during the uh, video deposition, 
what was readily apparent was a gentleman who had a significant delay in processing speed. Uh, and like I said, when you have a delay in processing speed, many other cognitive functions are going to follow. You're going to be impaired attention, concentration, memory, all that's going to, ha to happen. In terms of uh, uh, having to, the, the, the speech process, if you heard the deposition, the way the thoughts were conveyed were much more in the way of kind of disconnected, disjointed statements. It wasn't that they were not necessarily understandable, but they didn't have any coherent pattern until he was more structured by of his Bredehoff to kind of get to the point of the question, which happened throughout most of the deposition. Um, and so you could see there that there was obviously some form of cognitive issue that should not be happening in someone in their mid-50s. And it, probably due to the alcohol and substances. What, if any, observations did you make about impulse control? So, during the deposition? Or, yes, or, okay. or and, any and other other record evidence either. Um, so, again, I, I think that under the guise of not being acutely intoxicated, I think Mr. Depp was able to control much of his behavior, much of his thinking, even if it was uh, aberrant or negative, he was able to control that. I think that once you start getting to the point of adding substances to that, that will set it over. Um, if you saw the, the video, I think you, you all did about the, uh, in the uh, uh, kitchen where there was smashing of glasses, slamming of cupboards and yelling at Ms. Her that you don't exist. Um, and throughout the deposition of uh, Dr. Kipper, uh, Mr. Depp is firing him and rehiring him and yelling and screaming. And I, and I do believe that a lot of it had to do with the interaction of, hey, we're trying to help you get sober. Okay. And it is obviously something you are resisting, not ready for, not wanting. And so you saw a lot of yelling, a lot of, uh, a lot of acting out, if you would which puts you on the state of, hey, this is a gentleman who has really significant trouble with delaying gratification, okay, delaying reward. Um, and certainly one way to, one way to uh, uh, make that significantly worse is with substances. There's no question about that. And you may have subsumed this in, but what, if anything, did you observe relating to erratic behavior based on the record evidence? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, when you talk about erratic behavior, um, the uh, uh, I, uh, Dr. Kipper's deposition, I believe it was, where, uh, and I think I made particular note of this only because I'm, in, I'm a psychiatrist myself, um, there was a very... Uh, large ranting about Dr. Cowan, who was Ms. Hearn's um, uh, psychologist, therapist. Um, and the, the language, I, I, you can be dissatisfied with your provider. I have no problem with that. You could be dissatisfied and you have a right to go to wherever you want to go to. But the, the texting 
that it were involved in this in terms of erratic behavior um, was disturbing in terms of the verbiage used, the, the phrases used. I, I'm, am I free to uh, use some of the language, or should I reserve that, Your Honor? Go ahead. I, I can't? Believe me, the jury's been hearing it. Okay. <laughs> All right. I want to make sure. Sure, I want to make sure. Okay. So it's something along the line that uh, uh, Dr. Kipper is an effing charlatan. Um, he ought to Objection hearsay. He's entitled to rely on it and he's to give his examples. He, he can talk about what he uh, developed from the hearsay, but not repeated himself. He's entitled to give examples of it. I'll sustain the objection. Uh, without giving the exact words that you recall. Oh, without giving the exact ahead, words? Just, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, without giving the exact words, it was basically vulgar language directed towards Dr. Cowan throughout multiple tests, texts, multiple um, things that Dr. Cowan were doing in, th uh, in therapy. Uh, 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 it was, like I say, it was without relaying it, the exact thing I'm trying to be as accurate as I can. Um, and I think at the end of it, I think he was also talking about that Dr. Cowan was filling Amber with positive thoughts, a therapeutic... Objection here, say. I think he's keeping it more general. He's, he's entitled to rely oh, on it. Thank you. So, more along the line of giving Amber psychiatric uh, 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 jargon to put on him. And, and, and actually, what I read and interpreted with Dr. Cowan's uh, was getting blasted for was he was t you know kind of teaching Amber how to be heard how to use conflict resolution in a more appropriate manner and learning to express things more rationally rather than express things as irrational as they have been expressed and uh, and for that uh, there were a lot of negativity being sworn at so again erratic behavior in terms of writing a text but I have no problem with people being angry okay none whatsoever it's just the expressing of it and the continual ranting of it is is was was very uncomfortable for me to read but regardless I think we have seen in terms of erratic behavior uh, much of the psychological and the physical uh, maltreatment uh, we talked about objection that. beyond the scope of the question I don't agree. Sustain next question. Okay. Mr. Dipp is 58 years old. Are the behaviors that you have been describing for the jury, are those typical uh, and age-related? No. So, well, I don't consider 58 years old. I'm 59, okay? I will tell you that the age-related changes that occur in humans are very, er they're very um, erratic, hit-and-miss meaning they'll occasionally bear, be there. You may need a little bit more time to answer a question or pull things out of memory. Just, you're just a little bit slow and a lot more inconsistently slow. Um, you wouldn't describe what uh, Dr. Blaustein's changes were or what I saw in the deposition attributed to age. Dr. Spiegel, what is Seroquel? Seroquel or quetiapine is an, actually an atypical antipsychotic, which is indicated for many things, including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, adjunctive treatment for major depression. So it's indicated for a lot of things. 
And, and but what what uh, what effects may it have? I mean, this is this is one of the drugs that that Mr. Depp was taking. Yes. correct? It was a prescribed drug. Yes. Okay. So. What, what, yeah, please explain. So the effect of Seroquel is, is, is it's very often used as a sleeping agent uh, because it doesn't have a lot of the side effects that are associated with conventional antipsychotics, movement disorders, tired dyskinesia, et cetera, or at least it's a very low risk of that. So uh, people have used it off-label. Physicians have used it off-label to help them sleep. The problem is the effect is very barbiturate-like, and it really knocks people out, or certainly if you use it at high enough doses, it can, okay? And the problem is, the problem is it also has street value. So it's absolutely used on the street for that downer-like effect, and obviously it's a little bit more readily available because it's prescribed. Um, so, it, so it does have that street value portion of it. And Dr. Spiegel, what effect would this have on Mr. Depp based on the dosages he was taking? So, I think what you're looking at is a... Objection, a, speculation. Overrule. Please continue. What you will see in patients who have substance use disorders are people who unfortunately kind of wake up and fall asleep only through pharmacological assistance, meaning that their own circadian rhythms are no longer in control of that behavior. So you will take stimulants to quote unquote get you up in the morning, and then you will take things like quetiapine, Seroquel to knock you out. So basically what these are being used for is, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna get knocked out. And that's very characteristic of what would be actually legal prescribed substances. That's not illegal at all. That's very legal. Um, and that's the seemingly these, what these medicines affect are on patients of substance use disorder. Dr. Spiegel, what is Neurontin? So Neurontinogabpentin uh, is actually an anti-seizure medicine, which is, I think is it's indicated for seizures, and it might be indicated for one chronic pain condition, although I can't swear that to you. That said, that said, again, in a substance use disorder population, it has significant street value, and people who misuse opiates often supplement that with neuron because it has this anti-pain calming effect. So, unfortunately, it also can cause respiratory suppression, and so when you use it with opiates, they're very, there are uh, people that are lucky enough to succumb to respiratory suppression as a result, but it has a very additive, calming effect that people use it for. And what effect would this have on Mr. Depp in the dosage he was taking? Again, I was looking for an objection. Okay, again, what it would do is have the street value of using it with the opiates. The advantage is you're using with opiates, and it's making, because opiates in general, despite everything else it does, are calming, and you use it with it, it offers further calming, which is why doctors have been warned not to prescribe medications like gabapentin and opiates together unless under significant strict 
following because it can cause serious problems, such as death, respiratory and, suppression. And Mr. Depp was also taking Adderall, correct? Yes. Can you please describe to the jury what that impact would have, and particularly in connection with the dosages? So Adderall is a psychostimulant, which is prescribed relatively regularly for uh, ADHD. Um, the problem comes again when you're, you're, you sh shouldn't be prescribing or receiving Adderall when you're already using, misusing cocaine. Okay, you're now doubling your stimulant doses here. And basically, what you are talking about, again, it comes down to in the substance use disorder population, you are using it to stay awake, have energy, keep yourself going, getting high, getting energetic, and then the only way to kind of combat that, because you have this effect, is to kind of take downers during the day and downers being anything that's calming. So anywhere from opiates, prescription, anywhere from Neurontin, anywhere from Seroquel, all medications that are potentially, not potentially, which are abusable. And so that's what this is going on. That's what the substance use disorder patient has. And you, you know, it can't be given with someone using cocaine because that's an extreme risk for, for death. You can't be getting together. And what, if any, effect would these drugs have if they were mixed with MDMA or cocaine? So when you combine the two together, like I talked about before, there are effects where you are looking at, right, the, the, the predisposing traits of intimate partner violence. So jealousy, rapid mood changes, poor self-control, and to some degree, and to some degree, condoning violence to a certain degree. Um, when you combine them all together, you get this disinhibiting euphoria effect from cocaine and Adderall. And then when you combine the two together, what happens? You get too much, and then you start getting irritable. You start getting agitated. Okay? You start becoming suspicious, jealous, potentially uh, disinhibited, psychotic, and these are the risks. And again, we're talking about not your average everyday use of these substances. We are talking about chronic use together. And we also know that alcohol and cocaine use independently increase significantly the risk of intimate partner violence. These aren't statistics I'm coming up with. They all depend, anywhere from reports up to seven to 27 fold. So you are quote unquote colloquially playing with fire when you are talking about substances and intimate partner violence. You are playing with fire. And, and that's all of us. And the substances that Mr. Depp was taking and the record evidence relating to those, um, did you draw any conclusions concerning uh, whether he met these, this criteria or these risk factors? So in terms of substance use disorder, when you, when you look at it, um, so major role obligations not being fulfilled, don't have any evidence about operating under the influence or not. Uh, social issues, especially disagreements and arguments with your spouse or family, Obviously, there was tolerance and dependence for the amount he was using, because if anyone is naive to this, these medications, most of us would be dead. Uh, unsuccessful efforts, difficulty cutting back, using more than intended, 
giving up social uh, occupational obligations because this. I know it was part of it. Right after the rehab on the island in Australia, we, Mr. Deb went out partying with Marilyn uh, Manson. Um, and objection it. beyond the scope of the question. Actually, so that's asking for the record evidence I'll for this. Same objection. Next question. Um, okay. What other record evidence did okay. you have supporting um, this? So, uh, psychological using, despite the fact you know it causes known psychological, psychiatric, or medical effects, and I think that's been pretty well documented. So, in this case, you're talking about someone who has a severe substance use disorder. I, I do want to emphasize. Uh, letting them the jury, that intimate partner violence and substance use disorders are two scourges in this country. They are two plagues. This is very serious stuff we're playing with. And when you are just getting someone closer and closer to the threshold... Objection, Your Honor. Relevance. This is highly relevant. Uh, I'll overrule as to relevance. It's beyond the scope. Go ahead. Beyond the scope of the question? Yes. All right, I'll sustain that objection. All right. Um, to tell me more about the relationships between substance abuse and IPV, please. Yeah, so again, that you are talking about this and you are, you may be able to control the risk factors for IT, any of us may be able to control the risk factors for IPV. Any of us might be able to, okay, when we're thinking and we're not disinhibited, not having these hyper-intense emotions from substances. Once you add that to this mix, your brain can no longer do what it's supposed to do. And it's supposed to prevent you from doing this, quite frankly, because it's wrong. Did you arrive at any conclusions concerning substance abuse and potential self-harm that may have led to Mr. Depp injuring his finger? So I think the physician uh, before me uh, explained that pretty well, but I'll tell you that Mr. Depp has a history of self-injurious behavior, meaning cutting himself. Mr. Depp has a history of burning himself. Um, I know when the actual event happened, there was uh, texting to Dr. Kipper paraphrasing, not saying exactly, that Amber and him got into a disagreement related to her wanting him to be sober. And then as a result of that, he said he got so angry, he, uh, he cut the tip of his finger off. So if you're asking me, can someone who has, or have I seen, and can someone who cuts themselves, burns themselves, can cut a tip of their finger off with or without alcohol, or cocaine, or the rest, the answer is- Objection yeah. beyond the scope of the question. That's exactly what he Thank you. Please continue. Was it overruled? It okay. was overruled. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so that that is not a very far jump. I've certainly seen patients do a lot worse than that who started out with similar risk factors of you know burning self and cutting self. I'm not going to get into the descriptions, but I've it has seen people do a lot worse than that. Okay. So the answer is yes. Okay. I'm going to turn now specifically to intimate partner violence, and I know you've, you've talked certainly about it. Um, but can you tell the jury, please, uh, a little bit more about intimate partner violence and, and what is included in that? So uh, the APA Task Force on Violence in the Family defined more or less this topic of domestic abuse and intimate partner violence as 
recurrent abusive behavior by means of psychological, sexual, or physical maltreatment for the purpose of achieving control or maintaining power, authority, and control. Can it include threats and intimidation? It includes, so in the part of psychological abuse, which is done essentially as a means of emotionally and mentally hurting someone, but with the same end goal to achieve control, it can be uh, destroying property, it could be financial, which is part of that, verbal abuse, verbal outbursts, I'm sorry, um, threats, intimidation, body language, all of that goes under the concept of psychological abuse. And you may be able to divide it, the verbal, nonverbal, what's exactly emotional versus verbal, but they're all under that rubric and they're all under the guise of maintaining control. Do survivors of intimate partner violence experience mental health issues? Can you repeat the question? Do survivors of intimate partner violence experience mental health issues? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So survivors of uh, intimate partner violence. And by the way, I should start out by saying we don't expect in psychiatry, we don't expect our victims to be perfect. We don't expect our victims to be unscathed by what they've received. So starting with that, okay, it is not unusual as survivors to see substance use, substance abuse, substance-induced symptoms, chronic depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, or sub-syndromal sub post-traumatic stress disorder along the lives of Banner Wise syndrome. And some emotional unpredictability. That's, and again, you are a victim here. You are a victim. Do perpetrators typically seek treatment or counseling? No. Perpetrators are, are not receiving counseling uh, treatment. One, because they're going to be probably having to tell someone that they actually struck someone, which is what they're thought of is about the big problem that intimate partner violence is just the hitting. Again, important, but not the sole part of it. So perpetrators very rarely will go into uh, any type of formal counseling. Victims go into counseling. Victims are seeking actually couples counseling. Victims are seeking couples advice to try to repair what's happening. Okay, but in terms of actual perpetrators, they don't do that. In your review of this case, is there record evidence of physical violence by Mr. Depp? So, objection, Your Honor. No foundation. Do you want to approach him? So, what have you reviewed that correlates with the risk factors for IPV that Mr. De related to Mr. Depp? So risk factor review that correlated, uh, so starting uh, with the, I guess we'll start with the physical because that was a question that was put out there. What I have reviewed has demonstrated uh, pushing, shoving, uh, grabbing. Objection, Your Honor. Let me, let me see if I can direct this a little differently, Dr. Spiegel. Um, rather than 
giving the summary of what that was, what did you review that correlates? In other words, uh, did you review witness statements? Did oh, you okay, review okay. depositions, so uh, photos? Yes. So what I reviewed was in terms of like, um, uh, witness statements, Dr. Kipper's notes. Very, very interestingly, actually, early on in, the, in, I think it was 2012, around that time, circa 2012, 2014, uh, Ms. Hurd was... Uh, Action beyond the scope of the question. What he reviewed is the question. All right, let's, uh, let's so see. So I reviewed... Oh, just the, so Ms. Hurd's... Objection, there's no question pending. If he's he's okay. answering, go ahead and answer what you reviewed. Please continue with what you reviewed. Therapists' notes, counselors' notes, text messages, depositions, video, uh, pictures, um, psychologists' notes and evaluations, uh, and I said, I said physicians' notes. That's what I reviewed. All right. Now, you've indicated that uh, intimate partner violence includes physical violence, sexual abuse, and psychological aggression. Can you please describe for the jury what psychological aggression is and what it entails? So, I said psychological aggression would be the engaging in behavior for the sole purpose of emotionally and or mentally harming someone with the main purpose of again to maintaining control so behaviors that can occur with psychological aggression include uh, insults intimidation um, by holding things financially against someone um, uh, jealousy rants um, property destruction so all that is involved uh, a nonverbal communication so threatening looks glances things like that all that is involved in psychological maltreatment and intimate partner violence what if any uh, what if anything would be psychological aggression if it was trying to control somebody's career? Would that be a factor? Yeah, so Section leading. Overruled. So yeah, I'm trying to so, trying to control someone's career. That would be under financial. The trying to uh, to uh, mistreat someone, uh, especially you know someone wants to succeed uh, and trying to have a career, and you're preventing them from doing so by maltreatment. That's another example. So I'm going to ask specifically about the risk factors for intimate partner violence. Is substance abuse a risk factor for intimate partner violence? Yes, it is a risk factor as well as a precipitating cause. Okay. And what uh, record evidence did you review that correlates to Mr. Depp engaging in substance abuse? So. The record evidence of, I'll just start with Dr. Kipper and the, the substances that Mr. Depp was using and misusing both in terms of prescribed and on your drug screen were uh, brought out through that. Okay. 
uh, is lack of behavioral control and impulsiveness risk factors for intimate partner violence? Yes, they are. Okay. Um, and what, if any, uh, record evidence were you aware of that Mr. Depp had lack, exhibited lack of behavioral control and impulsiveness? Uh, again, threatening. Uh, Objection. Record evidence. That correlates with, and I'm on the risk factors oh, at this point. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, threatening. Um, um, uh, destroying furniture, property, breaking things, uh, writings on uh, walls, mirrors, um, writing in blood on furniture. Um, all that would be go with, with that. Okay. All right. Um, and what, if any, risk factor is narcissism for intimate partner violence? So, a patient, before we get into narcissistic personality traits or disorder, the overall, it's categorized under what's called cluster B personality. Objection, disorder. Your Honor, beyond the scope of the question. He's explaining the narcissism. Well, I'll sustain objection if okay. you ask question. Can you explain to the jury what's involved with narcissism as it relates to the risk factors of intimate partner violence and so what that realm is? So narcissism patients have, again, poor self-control, okay, rapid mood shifts, okay. As a result, they, they have an undue sense of admiration. They worship power, they worship control. Um, they are, they have lack of empathy and people are generally kept around as long as they're useful to them. Um, a, a large sense of entitlement. Um, anything else? Uh, need, need for, need for, need for praise. So that would go under narcissistic personality and, and IPV. What if any, uh, uh, Require what if any traits would be requiring admiration? Would that fit into it? Yeah, oh, yes, I'm requiring admiration, need to be admired part and parcel of uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Yes. Would, would being envious fit within that? Yes, fragile self esteem. Yes, okay. uh, and uh, what if any record evidence do you have that correlates with Mr. Depp uh, being narcissistic? Well, I do think that the fact that he thought that Amber owed him, Ms. Heard owed him. Objection, Your Honor. Overruled. Thank you. Go ahead. The fact that Ms. Heard owed him and only wanted to be together with him because of his fame uh, is an example of that. Um, I do think the jealousy aspects are uh, an example of that. Um, I do think, you know, uh, as I think Mr. Uh, Mr. Tillett had testified that, you know, being admired is one thing, but then behind your back saying something else about people is another thing. Um, and I can probably say with a reasonable certainty that to some degree this whole trial is that. Objection, Your Honor. What's the objection? That's not record evidence. Speculation. Please continue. 
that this whole trial in terms of narcissism, narcissistic insult is what's going on. I believe that uh, Mr. Depp was very much a mainstay appropriately in, in, in Hollywood, and then this was pulled the rug without... Objection, Your Honor. Can we be... He's able to explain uh, when he sustained that objection. Um, can you explain what you mean by this whole trial? Yeah, this Monica, proceeding we approach? Yeah. the This court yeah, case we're going through. Right. There's an objection, sir. What other conduct is in the record evidence that correlates uh, with Mr. Depp having, being narcissistic, having those traits? What's the thing about the trial rule? I can't yeah, speak to you. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that. Not say that. Okay. okay. Um, the, the, uh, the only other thing about narcissism, I think, in terms of the trial would be in order to maintain any sense of control, a, a narcissistic person really has to have lack of empathy because in order to engage in behaviors that quote-unquote are used to keep individuals in control you don't really think about the other person you're not really caring what happens to that other person so I think that's another facet so are attitudes accepting or justifying intimate partner violence a risk factor for intimate partner violence? Yes. Um, do some perpetrators in intimate partner violence try to minimize the IPV? Yes. So it is unfortunately not uncommon, especially during, especially during the calm phases of the abuse cycle where there is no increased tension. There is no acting out. Okay, you are talking about more of the honeymoon, apologetic phase, begging for forgiveness, telling them how you're going to change, maybe giving them gifts. And then when the dust settles later in the day, a day or two later, it is not uncommon for the perpetrator to kind of switch the blame over to the victim, saying that, hey, you know, this either denial, this never actually happened and trying to make me look bad or an allopathic defense where um, you instigated it or an altruistic effect where I'm doing it for you, transformative effect that society kind of accepts this. So it is very uncommon for all of a sudden for that to start shifting during that time because it is during the calm phase and everything is, is relatively calm. This, of course, is when the victim wants to engage in, in treatment. But beyond that, uh, the ability to kind of quote unquote, for lack of a better phrase, win people over, family, friends, uh, the law. I mean, the very ability to do that is part and parcel of that calm, charming phase where it looks like the victim is, you know, just fabricating this. Okay. Um, and is victim blaming uh, a characteristic? 
Yes, like I said, I mean, to blame the victim that one of the defenses are the allopathic uh, defense uh, comes along with victim blaming. That's what sense you're doing. I'm blaming you for what you made me do. And is there record evidence that you reviewed uh, that correlates with Mr. Depp engaging in this type of behavior? So uh, I think for a lot of the issues seen, the big precipitant was going to be the need for sobriety. Coming again, coming back to that severe objection, Your Honor, non-responsive. I, I think he's trying to explain it. Thank you. Please continue this severe substance use disorder and many of their arguments but what i reviewed in the record stemmed around ms hurd's desire for mr depp to maintain sobriety and that what was happened so as a result she was blamed for you know bothering him in a way he didn't want to be bothered and that triggered what was going on are you familiar with the term gaslighting um i'm familiar with the term gaslighting okay it, what if any gaslighting uh, is consistent with intimate partner violence and the risk factors so again when you start being able to be when a person starts to be able to be manipulative and charming you start to be able to win people over and especially when you see someone who's a victim who is essentially vulnerable emotionally uh, emotionally uh, labile okay you see that person and then you see this calm demeanor in front of you who is very charming very engaging very personable and then all of a sudden it starts looking like the victim is just a a I was essentially losing it and i.e. they make their being gaslighted. Is there examples where an intimate partner, uh, violent uh, perpetrator, uh, claims that the victim is the person who's actually committing the abuse? Yeah, oh yes, oh yes. How common is that? That's very common. Again, that's part of the, that is very common in the occurrence of the, like it's the, the, the um, honeymoon phase and the calm period of the abuse cycle very common during that time where the victim where they shifting the blame or anything along that line that's very common for that to happen and you indicated that you reviewed some audio tapes in this case correct yes and, and what if any evidence did you review there that correlates with mr. Depp attempting to claim that amber was the one well I think that was what was said that amber uh, was the abuser. objection your honor I don't understand the objection. What record evidence? Thank you. Please, please continue. So that claiming that uh, Amber was uh, the abuser in this particular scenario, and what what I will reiterate again is that one victims aren't perfect, and two, it is not uncommon in the context of being a victim when you know that person is about to proceed or relapsing to a substance or going to a substance and anticipating what's going to happen that you anticipate the next mood and start initiating self-defense but by and large that's not what's going on here by and large Mr. Depp 
behavior. Objection, Your Honor. Behavior was consistent. There's an objection, sir. Oh, sorry. I'll sustain the objection. Okay. All right. We can, we can move on to the next one. Is prior victimhood of abuse a risk factor for intimate partner violence? Yes. And what? So, Go ahead. There is something known as intergenerational theory of violence, which is basically along the line of uh, observation, imitation, reinforcement. So you observe a behavior that occurred in childhood, you imitate it when you see that there's no significant negative consequences, but you do get the positive consequence of maintaining control of a situation, solving the conflict in your way, if you would. So that theory is, interestingly, it's, it's, it applies to not only the victims, I'm sorry, not only the perpetrators, but also the victims, because there are many victims who grow up in a house of abuse that are not abused, but they're the victims of abuse. What are the warning signs of intimate partner violence? So warning signs would be increasing the tension, escalations of tension. So that's when you start seeing, hey, Partners getting angry, okay, starting to starting to break down the communication, starting to engage in verbal, nonverbal threats. Victim concedes due to this tension, and that leads you to the actual acts. So these acts progressively build, and then they occur. What if anything? Uh, have you seen an intimate partner violence about apologies and promises? So again, the apology is part and parcel of the honeymoon phase and promises are part and parcel of the honeymoon phase. And, you know, the victim wants to believe it's going to work. They want to believe their spouse is going to be faithful to this. And as part of the abuse cycle, um, it ends up... the. As I should say, in the, in the calming cycle, like I said, the victim tries to get some help to try to resolve this until the tension buildup phase where something bothers them. So again, it could be um, bothering someone about substance abuse. It can be bothering someone about finance. It could be bothering something about your career. Anything is liable to build up tension when you have this framework of limited self-control and erratic, intense moochies. So what, if any, record evidence did you review that reflected Mr. Depp engaging in these warning signs, including the apologies and the promises? I think it's, that was almost routine, that after it was all said and done, that he would apologize uh, for letting this monster out letting this anger out uh, almost routinely. Um, and there's very well record evidence of that starting as early, early on in the marriage uh, in, in, one of, in therapy from his herd. So um, that's, that's very common and very much occurred, recognizing what happened. And the other part of this is, again, when you can recognize that when you're sober, even short-lived sobriety, when you can recognize that, that things are better, 
things are happening better, life is better, then even that should show you that, hey, there's an issue here. There are issues here that when I don't use can be resolved. Thank you, Dr. Spiegel. I'm going to now move to the Goldwater Rule. Can you explain the Goldwater Rule, please? Uh, so the Goldwater Rule is when Senator Goldwater was running for presidency. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, I think it was in the late 60s when he was, early 70s, because I was too young to even follow politics then. So I, please don't quote me on exactly what it was. Um, but basically what's happening is... Um, Clinicians, psychiatrists were making these quote unquote armchair diagnoses from their homes or offices because they saw this person on TV, the way they acted, and were asked to comment about what they think their diagnoses are. And therefore, it was felt that that should not be done by professionals in these public settings. It, does it have any applicability here? No. Objection. It does not. Why not? No foundation. He was explaining what the Goldwater you rule approach. Dr. Spiegel, do you remember the question? Does the Goldwater the rule have any applicability oh. here so, to your testimony and your conclusions and opinions? Uh, no, it does not. And why? Multiple reasons. One, uh, the basics of expert witness testimony would almost be thrown away if you are not allowed to base things on what you evaluated of an individual, what you've read about an individual. So if I'm not allowed to comment on records or charts or information that I look, then expert witness testimony can't be done. But more specifically for this case, um, in the Goldwater rule, the pure version of it was the armchair diagnosis of watching someone on TV. Just, you don't make a diagnosis. More recently, I think that's even more recent, we've had examples of that. So you don't make diagnoses like that. Um, this is not the case here. Because I, like I said to you at the beginning, I have reviewed a lot of professional, uh, a lot of professionals and their evaluations and their treatment course. Uh, 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 video deposition, picture deposition, court filings, uh, email time. I mean, I reviewed a whole lot of things that directly describe uh, Mr. Depp and his behavior. So I'm not commenting on a public opinion, and I have absolutely no knowledge of, of uh, what's in Mr. Depp's history. Um, if I was just doing that, it would be like watching a movie. I, I, that's not relevant here. And in fact, I think you testified earlier. You invited Mr. Depp to. Oh yes. Give and again, objection leading. Uh, overruled. Thank so, you. to to be fair, uh, for an evaluation for my own direct evaluation, again, I was offered twice that I can do an evaluation of Mr. Depp directly, and both times, Mr. Depp and or his lawyers decided that that was going to happen. Okay. And, so, and in fact, the court did not require Mr. Depp to... No, and the court did not require Mr. Depp to undergo this evaluation. Okay. Dr. Spiegel, these opinions that you have offered here, do you hold them to within a reasonable degree of medical and psychiatric probability or certainty? Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Cross-examination. Thank you, Mr. Dennison. Sir, 
sir, I'm Wayne Dennison. Uh, we haven't met. But let me ask you, let's start with what you finished with. I'm sorry, one more time? Let's start with what you finished with. You understand that the court was twice asked by Ms. Hurd's counsel to order a medical exam of Mr. Depp, and those motions were denied. Well, I think the, the, your team told the court you didn't want to have them, and the court ruled on them, right? I don't think the court proactively did it. You kind of had a motion to them, right? No. When Ms. Hurd's lawyers moved for them and asked for them and did not get them. Is that right, sir? If, if you're saying that's what happened, my understanding of was that you, you all did not want him to ha undergo one. They petitioned for it. The court said no. Yes, that's what my understanding of it was. The court said no to ordering Mr. Depp to do the medical exam. Right. I said the court did not require it. Right. And there was one that was ordered, in fact, right? There was. All right. All right, so the last thing you talked about uh, was the Goldwater Rule. Yes, sir. Been around for almost 50 years, right? Uh, yeah, I'm 59. That sounds about right. Yeah. And it's been around as a result of a presidential election that you referenced. Yes. And who has that rule? What organization uh, maintains that rule? The American Psychiatric Association. An association you're a member of? Associated by a member of, yes. Yeah. Aren't you a fellow or something? Yes, I am. Okay. So, and this is an ethical rule, right? It is an ethical rule. And, yes, it's ethical. They say rules. It's an ethical guideline. Yes, they're guidelines. Mm -hmm. And you know that over time, the American Psychiatric Association has amended the rule so it's not just about diagnoses, but it's also about professional opinions. Could you be more specific say about professional opinion in regard to what? Well, let me, it, let me read this and see if you're familiar with it. It is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion about an individual based on publicly available information without conducting an examination. That's the rule, right? If you're reading it directly, I will believe you. Okay. However, a diagnosis is not required for an opinion to be professional. So my question is, it's not just diagnosis that this Goldwater rule applies to, it's professional opinions. So again, I will reiterate that that would come down to essentially nullifying witness testimony expert witness testimony without a direct evaluation. And as we know, it didn't happen. But regardless of that, the whole expert witness testimony thing would be basically rendered null, null and void. The rule, in fact, contemplates that issue, doesn't it, sir? The, again, I'm just telling you the answer to the question. When you're reading me those statements, I'm telling you the response by the other side who is publishes also is that 
If that was the case, there could be no expert witness testimony in the courtroom. Psychiatrists are ethically prohibited from evaluating individuals without, permit, without permission or other authorization such as a court order. That's the rule, right? Again, if you're reading that, then I have to believe you're not misrepresenting it. And I would come back to you again, then this whole thing on expert, we might as well get rid of all the expert witnesses we've had throughout all of time for court proceedings. Because what you're saying is unless a court orders it, and that's what you just said, or the APA said, then therefore expert witnesses cannot do an evaluation based on an observation of the medical records. Insurance companies cannot do evaluations solely based on the medical records where there are doctors rendering professional opinions. So at the end of the day, you are essentially saying that unless someone has directly evaluated it, there, this whole medical system we have, this whole legal system we have, is null and void. I, I'm not saying... No, yes, you are, sir. I, no, you are. Well, give, me a, give me a second, and I'll, okay. I'll give you more than a second. What, what I'm saying, and what I am reading to you, is a rule by your organization that takes into account that there could be court orders that would permit the, the exact kind of evaluation that you say I'm eliminating. And I think we're going in circles because I think I just said that means expert witness testimony would not be allowed and the branch of forensic psychiatry would be especially hindered and we know the branch of forensic psychiatry does not prohibit that. So. I am a member of the APA. That doesn't necessarily mean every single thing they put in there, everybody has to uncategorically agree with, because clearly that's not the case. Did you agree in your deposition that the, the professional opinions you rendered were um, inconsistent with the Goldwater rule? Yeah. My professional is inconsistent. If we're saying that I, if the Goldwater rule says, and I very much said that during deposition, that the Goldwater rule was made for presidents and public figures such as that, but regardless of that, because that's what it was made for, it's not made for Hollywood, but I'll even take that Mr. Depp's a public figure. What I'm saying to you is that the Goldwater rules say we cannot do any expert witness testimony in our field. That is exactly what the Goldwater rule is saying based on exactly what you read. And I'm just telling you what you are saying that rule encompasses. What I'm asking you, sir, is did you comply with the ethical requirements of the APA when, when rendering the professional opinions that you've rendered today? It is a it is a requirement of the APA. It is not the requirement of the APA. Secondarily, so the again, answer is no. Secondarily, 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 again, in order to not, you, we we waste our whole morning because of an expert witness before me. There's an expert witnesses everyone brought in. So all I'm saying to you that means the whole field of medical legal law is corrupt and unethical for engaging in an act that the APA clearly says. We should not do. So if you're saying that, then the answer is yes, I'm agreeing with that statement. You're agreeing that the APA would deem your t testimony and your professional opinions rendered unethical. I, again, I am saying you are saying that the whole, I'm an expert witness. I am saying as an expert witness and solely as an expert witness 
that guideline is permitting that from occurring. I would say then that the whole field of expert witness testimony, again, would be disavowed by what you are quoting in the Goldwater rule. And we know that's not the case. Because if it was, we would not be allowed to do it. And you said the rule was for presidents, right? And that was initially for presidents, yes. But, and the name of the rule came from that. But the rule says it is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion about an individual. That's right, sir. It's not just presidents. It's not public figures. It's individuals. Funny, it was named after the... According to your logic, if you don't put something in the title, it's not true. That's what you told me this morning, I believe, about my intimate partner violence. So what I would say to you then, sir, is that if you say this about an individual, again, any court would have to render an expert witness testimony invalid. Any doctor that reviews charts would have to render it invalid. I can go on the list of docs that do not see or interview patients directly, and that's a violation. So basically, you are saying that unless you do a direct clinical evaluation, then all of the field of forensic psychiatry and all of uh, managed care is doing an unethical violation because we are not seeing the presence. We deny patients medications all the time without seeing them. We deny patients treatments, unfortunately, without seeing them. And I'm on the receiving end of that. So the answer to your question, again, unless you were saying to me that all of this is unethical, which is what you are saying. This is what you are, this is how I'm interpreting what you are saying to me. That unless you do the evaluation directly yourself, therefore it cannot be considered ethical. And I'm telling you how that applicable to not just expert law, but also managed care, it applicable to multiple brands of medicine. Hospital, duration of hospitalization stay they get evaluated. So. Tell me, tell me where you want me to end this. Well, Sir. why don't we, why don't we, why don't we talk about what you just testified to? Because I didn't ask you anything about that. I asked you whether, under this rubric, under this principle of medical ethics, have you acted unethically? Yes I, or no? I, no. As an expert witness, I have not acted unethically. And if you want the jury to believe that expert witnesses are unethical, then I guess that's for them well, to decide. That's, yes and or that's no, for them sir. To decide. You said no. Let's go to the next question. Okay. Right? Psychiatric diagnosis occurs in the context of an evaluation based on thorough history-taking examination and where applicable collated or collateral information. You'll agree with that? I believe I said that earlier, yes. Yeah. And it's a departure from the, method, from the methods of the profession to render an opinion without an examination and without conducting an evaluation in accordance with the standards of psychiatric practice, mm -hmm. correct? Well, again, it, by the way, for the record, intimate partner violence is not a psychiatric diagnosis. I'll start with that. Substance usage by themselves is not a psychiatric diagnosis. If you want to cut to the chase, psychiatry is not a diagnosis of that. Narcissistic personality traits is not a diagnosis. Ergo, I am basically commenting on the things that were brought to me, which are not diagnosis. But an, but an evaluation, if I was going to treat a patient or anyone here, those are the steps I would take. We. I think started with the notion that this rule applies broader than diagnoses. It applies to professional opinions. I believe you, you just quoted 
professional opinions relative, relative to narcissistic personality traits, haven't you, sir, relative to Mr. Depp? Again, I believe you just commented on what it takes to do in a psychiatric evaluation to establish a diagnosis. I'm almost certain that's what you said. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you didn't say that. But I'm sure you did. And therefore, what I'm saying is neither IPV nor substance usage, nor narcissistic personality traits, a psychiatric diagnosis. And then under the rubric of expert witness testimony, you are saying I acted unethically under the rubric of expert witness testimony. So if you, sir, would like to perceive that expert witnesses are unethical based on that, I am not going to sit here and disagree with you and waste everyone's time. I think it's fairly obvious. So thank you. I'll go ahead. These were your words. I'm just saying them back how they're interpreted. Okay. Um, Let's start with the easy question then. Maybe we can. That was pretty easy. Go ahead. All right. yeah. Doctor, you're going to have to just answer the questions. Okay. okay. Sorry about that. I haven't been yeah. getting into it. You, you need to just answer the questions, okay. Dr. Speaker. You are not rendering any diagnosis whatsoever of Mr. Depp today or ever. No, I probably would say to you that certainly I would not say narcissistic personalities or I would say traits. Certainly from what I have read, intimate partner violence is not a diagnosis. So the answer is no right. for that. Uh, narcissistic personality traits is not a diagnosis. The answer is no. But if you want to tell me that substance use disorder is a psychiatric diagnosis, the answer is yes. And I but that wasn't an issue, was it, whether Mr. Uh, Mr. Depp used substances? I mean, you said you've gone through the record. That, that wasn't really an issue at this trial. He said it from day one. Oh, so you're saying he's already admitted to the diagnosis? He's Sorry. already admitted to the use of the substances. Oh. Well, again, there's a difference between admitting to substance use and substance use disorder. Let's go back to uh, what you just said about narcissistic personality traits. Yes. Narcissistic personality disorder is a DSM-5 diagnosis, correct? Correct. Diagnostic personality, and you haven't testified that Mr. Depp has um, narcissistic personality disorder, have you? I would certainly, if I didn't, I'm certainly thinking that, but at least I'm going to say he has traits, which are characteristics of provisional diagnosis of, it's a provisional diagnosis of probably narcissistic personality disorder, but yeah, I mean, I do believe that. Well, when you say provisional diagnosis, you know the DSM-5 requires, in order to find that diagnosis, five of the nine factors. Mm -hmm. And you haven't done that analysis, you've never made that diagnosis. You've just identified certain factors. That are criteria for the diagnosis. Right. But you need five of nine to get to the diagnosis. You've, you've already told us that you didn't make a diagnosis. You're just identifying traits, correct? I'm identifying traits that are consistent with the diagnosis, yes. Right. And you, you, did you testify in deposition that the existence of traits as opposed to the disorder, doesn't have a correlation with IPV. 
If I said traits do not have a correlation with the jury, if that's what I said, and I don't remember saying that, but that wouldn't be a correct saying. Narcissism has a correlation with the diagnosis. Yes, that part's true. How far are we going to back this up? Because there's a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, right? Yes, sir. And that one is type, has some correlation with IPV, right? Narcissism has correlation with IPV. Again, sir, you're not allowed me to answer. I'm, you're splitting hairs. You're splitting hairs between the traits that are consistent with, which all I'm commenting on is behaviors and traits that are consistent with the diagnosis and Mr. Depp. Narcissism absolutely has uh, risk factors associated with IPV. Let's go back again, and, and maybe we can, we can focus on the question I ask you, and we can get an answer that's addressed to that question. Mm-hmm. Narcissistic personality disorder is a risk factor for IPV, yes or no? Yes. And you've previously testified that there is no literature which you are currently aware that the mere presence of narcissistic traits is a risk factor for IPV. Am I answering the question? Yes. That's incorrect. You didn't testify that. A cluster, cluster B traits which narcissistic personality disorder is part of, is a huge risk factor for intimate partner violence, which include, cluster B traits include narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, amongst others. So the answer to the question is, every, every resource on intimate partner violence will support, will support that cluster B traits, where narcissistic personality falls under, is a risk factor for intimate partner violence. Any single trait under is a risk factor for IPV. I, again, I will repeat, cluster B traits. I didn't say any trait, I said cluster. No, I, oh, let, me any, be, let, let me be more precise then. Okay. Any narcissistic trait in and of itself is a risk factor for IPV. But you are mischaracterizing what I said. What I said, I, I'm pretty sure I said cluster, if you look at all the intimate partner violence literature, and I would behoove you to do so, you will see that cluster B traits, specific, I didn't say narcissistic per se, cluster B traits, where narcissistic personality disorder is part of, are risk factors for intimate partner violence part and parcel uniformly true and i'm not sure I, the thing i don't understand is i'm not sure why we're arguing psychiatry because i'm telling you what it is dr siegel you just need to answer the question okay so you want to talk about uh cluster b so let's do that for a minute borderline personality disorder is a risk fa factor for ipv as part of cluster b trade, yes Histrionic personality disorder is a risk factor for IPV. Less so. But it's less so. It's good. Less so. It's I mean, it's a risk factor, but less so, yes. Yeah. Less so. Significantly less so. All right. So, which traits under narcissistic. Oh, before I move on there, there's only been one diagnosis in court of personality disorders, correct? 
I'm not sure who you're referring to. Are you referring to Mr. Depp, Ms. Hurt? Who, I'm not sure what you were talking about. Do you understand that there was a medical examination done of Ms. Hurt? Yes, I did. Do you understand that the testimony was ultimately that Ms. Hurd suffers from two personality disorders? Okay, so I'm, I'm just being specific. I just wanted to know if you're talking about Ms. Hurd or Mr. Depp. So that was just, that's all I was asking you. Yes or no to my question. Which was his only one diagnosis of... Ms. Hurd was diagnosed with that. Yeah, and both of the diagnoses are in cluster B, and both of them are risk factors for IPV. But, but both those cluster B things are, I'm not, I'm not allowed to comment on the testing, so therefore, all right. I could say is that cluster B traits, and I'll tell you what they are, and by the way, I, I, I testified this before, which was that, one, I don't expect perfection from my victims, Two, I absolutely there were cluster B traits Ms. Hurd had. Absolutely Ms. Hurd had. Given that you've testified to it before, let's move on to a new question. Okay. All right. You indicated in your opinion today that you thought, well, why don't we, why don't we move a little differently? Are you a member of the American Medical Association? No. Okay. So you don't know what the ethical rule of the American Medical Association is relative to doing um, clinical diagnoses about individuals you've never talked to. So you're saying in terms of doing expert witness evaluations under that rubric, right? I'm just asking you, do you know the AMA's rule? Under doing, you're saying the a, AMA's ruling under the rubric of not doing evaluation with somebody you did not see, and I'm, and I'm questioning, I'm asking, so you are talking about expert witness testimony? No, I'm talking about, do you know the rule? I'm not a member of the AMA, so I don't, okay, I don't read the rule. Okay, move on. You don't know the rule. Huh? <laughs> All right. You rendered an opinion about Mr. Depp's purported cognitive impairment. Yes. Yeah. What do you use as a baseline? A baseline for processing speed? Yeah, for, for analyzing Mr. Depp before you watched his deposition. What is the baseline for that? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I guess my baseline would probably be what I, how I've seen him interact in public. I have seen him interact with others. I've seen him interact in media. I've seen him interact all, and his process speed is certainly not slow. I've seen him do commercials. His process speed was not slow. At deposition, didn't you say that what you did was compare Mr. Depp's performance in lots of pirate movies? against his deposition testimony what here? I, what I said was I've seen Mr. Depp do apology ads. I remember he did apology ad with Bad Dog with no delay in processing speed. I've seen him interact with the media regarding to that. I saw no delay in processing speed. All I'm saying Let me ask you about pirates, though. You compared pirates to the, tech, uh, to, to the depositions given in this I, case. Then I apologize for what I said. Then I misspoke. You misspoke, you didn't make the comparison? Right now, just a second ago? Just a second ago, I, I may have said that I misspoke. I apologize, I misspoke. Okay. Because you know you can't compare pirates to sworn testimony, right? Yes. Okay. But you I, can, but as an aside, you can't judge someone's processing speed 
at any time. Like I'm judging yours right now, you're judging mine. We all judge processing speed as a baseline because of what we know about each other. And I would say your processing speed right now is not slow. So, Thank I you. mean, we're judging processing speed, I'm just saying <laughs> to you. Yeah. Um, so, but no, any of Mr. Depp's other portrayals in movies, did that affect your analysis of processing speed? Only I've seen him interact on interviews, right. and that was it. Right. When he wasn't in movies. What, right. But Willy Wonka doesn't matter to you? You, you see him in that movie, Charlie and Chocolate Factory? Did you look at that one when you were comparing his processing speed? Is, is that, do I have to answer that question, Your Honor? You have to answer questions. Yes, sir. No, you'll be happy to know I didn't see Willy Wonka. As a, as I didn't see 21 Jump Street when it happened. Whatever it was about. No, I did not. All right. You'll... You made a, a very kind admission, I think, early on in your deposition, that you're not claiming to be a better actor than Mr. Depp. <laughs> That's correct, isn't it? One hundred percent. All right. But with respect to acting, you know that actors actually rehearse for their parts and work on the language, diction, timing, of their dialogue as part of that rehearsal? If you say that, I'm not an actor, so I don't know what goes on. I can't tell you. I have no idea what goes on in acting. Okay, but you, you don't know enough about acting to know whether actors rehearse? Sir, I am not an expert in acting. I have no idea what an actor does. Okay. During your deposition, what were the circumstances under which you decided to call Mr. Depp an idiot? Under somebody call Mr. Depp an idiot? Yeah, you called Mr. Depp an idiot in your deposition. Why oh, I think. Oh, oh, okay. So I think it was in the context. I think it was in the. I should, probably should read the context of it because I think the context was, and I'm trying to think back, and I'm trying to think back. Okay, and what I thought it was related to was if you're coming to some deposition. Okay, and again, I'm thinking back, so I may, you have it in front of you. I don't. So I'm thinking back where he's coming in from Europe for a deposition, a uh, video deposition that he gave, and he took it overnight the night before. And what I think I said was that if you're going to take a, if you're going to do a major thing to a, a trial that you're involved with, I think you'd be an idiot to come in the night before. All right. So I didn't call Mr. Depp an idiot. I certainly called that planning an idiot. I didn't call him an idiot. So the words, so I mean he's an idiot, are mistranscribed? No, I'm sure, again, if I said it in that, if you're just reading one line, one snippet, I'm sure it was in the context I just said. But again, you have it in front of you, I don't. Yeah. Uh, is uh, idiot a professional opinion? I wasn't writing professional opinion. Yeah. No. Is it a psychiatric opinion? That, that follows the, the Goldwater rule. How does it follow the... Well, you just said that. I'm not rendering a professional opinion. I just said idiot. That's not a... No, so idiot is not a professional opinion. Mm-hmm. Is, is it your practice to describe people as idiots? My practice to describe people... Is my practice? 
No, I don't prescribe people clinical, my clinical cases as idiots or patients as idiots or victims as idiots. No, sir. But you sat for a deposition in this case and, and described the plaintiff as an idiot, correct? Uh, you gave me nine hours of deposition, and if I said the word idiot, it was an idiot in planning. It wasn't making him an idiot. I don't know Mr. Depp's IQ. I don't know his overall functioning. So therefore, if I said it, it was an idiot in planning, which is what I meant to come across as. All right. So you did say you don't know his overall functioning, but you made some testimony today as to some evaluations you made relative to his functioning. You would agree with me that it's probably a good idea to think about the questions that are asked you in a court proceeding before answering them. Am I allowed to answer that question? Yes. Okay. So what I meant by function, what I said by function, I believe that his agent reported how late he was showing up to every movie while the cast is waiting for him. I believe that would be an impairment. If I showed up late for that, I would not be here right now. I would not have a job. Okay. I believe the thing was in terms of, uh, Walking out of treatment for substance rehab that his doctor is prescribing for him. So if you're asking me if that's an impairment of functioning, I would say I'm very much substantiated in that. I'm, I'm trying to understand how you got to this notion of cognitive decline. And I, I thought it was based at least in part on, on the manner in which he testified. On the, I'm sorry, what? On the manner in which he testified. On the manner, I'm sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm not being difficult, I can't hear, I'm sorry, on what? I was asking you about the cognitive decline yes. testimony that you made. Yes. And it was my understanding that at least a portion of that testimony that you rendered was that you derived some evidence of cognitive decline from the way Mr. Depp testified. Yes. Okay. And that's what I said, yes. Right. And so all I'm asking you is you... Don't you think it's a good idea when you're in the middle of a court proceeding to answer questions carefully? Again, professionally, we diagnose patients with a neurocog disorder by gross evaluation all the time with cognitive. On the thought that, again, age normal controls, I'm just saying age normative controls does not put a 58-year-old gentleman at that processing. That's all I'm saying. That's right. all I said. And you derived this without ever once talking to the man. Me, me, me directly talking to him. Because I heard, because we know how I derived it. So you're talking about me directly talking to him? Yeah, you never talked no, to him. No, I never, no, I've never talked to him. Right. And th this exam you gave, well, you did talk about Ms., uh, uh, Dr. Blaustein, right? Yes, sir. And you understand that the entirety of Dr. Blaustein's uh, medical records are 12 pages of handwritten notes. The important part was what I said. For me, as an example of cognition, which I'm trying to prove, which is what you asked me, the important part was what I said. And that was irrefutable. Uh, the important part is that he, give, he gave the mini mental status exam? Yes, sir. All right. That's Let's talk about the mini mental status exam. Scored on a 30-point scale, right? Yes. All right. And it's, it's an exam that basically is most often used for, what, Alzheimer's, dementia, those kind of 
testing? It, it's an exam that tests cognition in all psychiatric illnesses, not just Alzheimer's. It was made for dementia for Alzheimer's, but is the standard has been the standard for testing cognition in all psychiatric illness, substance use disorders included. Okay. Now, there is an element of that exam that requires drawing, correct? Yes. So, you don't know what drawing Mr. Depp did or whether the drawing should have been fully scored. I, I wasn't questioning his visual spatial perceptual skills. Which is what that does. Right. And you don't know what score Mr. Depp received on the exam. I was very specific. I know three words, not remembering at five minutes. That's all I said. Three words, not remembering five minutes, and he, he remembered one of them, right? From what I'm saying, he didn't remember any of them. All right. M memory on the exam, out of the 30 points, what's it worth? Three. Th Three, right? Memory is three out of the third. Yeah, memory is three. Okay. But again, the memory section in and of itself tests memory. That's but, the only question that tests memory, only section that actually tests memory. So the memory section tests memory. It's the only section you testified about. And for all you know, that we're, with respect to the exam that you're relying on, Mr. Depp scored 27 out of 30. And that would be telling, though, cognitive, if you score 27 and 30 and you miss three points on memory. That would be very telling. You don't know if Mr. Depp had been up all night the night before. Again, you wouldn't expect to not recall any words at three minutes unless there's a cognitive issue. You don't know if Mr. Depp was high. And again, oh, now that's, again, now that could affect memory, but I'm not, I'm not refuting that. I'm not refuting that at all. I, he could have been high, he could have been drunk, he could have been using cocaine, and that would absolutely affect his memory, which right. is what I said. Yes, you're right. So ultimately, you have no idea what state Mr. Depp was in at the, at the time he took the exam that you're relying on. Short of what you just said about drugs and alcohol, okay, there shouldn't be a reason why a 58-year-old also with strokes and other neurocognitive conditions, but short of that, there shouldn't be a really good reason why someone at that age shouldn't come up with at least one. But, but an answer, but, but, but wait a minute, you, you, you started that question with short of drugs and alcohol and spent 35 minutes talking about his use of drugs and alcohol. Isn't that right? Oh, I'm agreeing. What, I, I thought I agreed with you. I think I agreed. I said that drugs and alcohol can absolutely affect cognition. I'm not Sure. I, yeah, I agree, but I'm not sure if that's a problem. I agree with you on that. All right. So you don't know, one way or the other, how he scored on the exam. You don't know whether he was, at the time, on drugs and alcohol. But you're going to rely on it in your testimony to say that he's cognitively impaired. Which is what we do in clinical medicine, sir. Okay. You rely on tests that you don't know the, when it was administered, you don't know the score of, of the test, and you don't know the state of the person being tested, but you're going to rely on it anyway. Again, if we had to know every test, when people get the mini mental state exam, we have no idea clinically if they are high, wasted, stoned, 
stroke, we have no idea. So if you're going to say that, that means everybody needs a drug test before they do a minimal study, and that's not the standard of care. And I think you know that. So Let's talk a little bit about this word you kept using, correlation. You know the word, right? Yes. Correlation and causation aren't the same thing, are they, sir? Correlation, no, they're not the same thing. No, how are they different? Correlation is consistent with causation is direct link. Can you say that again? You were so fast I didn't hear it. I'm sorry about that. Correlation is a risk for something happening. Causation is a direct link. Right. So just because something's correlated doesn't mean it's going to happen. 100%. Right. 100%. Like lung cancer, for instance. Smoking is very highly correlated with lung cancer, right? Yeah, and certainly, and there's certainly a link right. to lung cancer and smoking. Right. But, but not all smokers get lung cancer. Not, no, not all smokers do. No one, like I said, no one fits the curve perfectly. Right. And you made repeated testimony to, and to, to all of us. All of us do this. All of us do that. Mm -hmm. your, your suggestion about all of us is you're just looking at the world as a sample and not at any particular individual, correct? What I'm looking at is that I'm not talking about an individual, how they can or cannot be resistant. What I'm saying is invariably, when you substances, this is going to happen. Now, is there a 0.05% chance that someone who does... Absolutely there is. But is that medical degree of certainty? Absolutely not. A 0.05% chance of what, sir? I'm, I... Of developing, eventually developing symptoms. If you're using excessively, eventually you're going to develop symptoms. Right. But risk factors tell us nothing about any one particular individual, do they, sir? No, no. again, risk factors tell us nothing except that they have it, they're at a higher likelihood of developing it. That's right. what tells me. And, and, but you did a, a whole litany of risk, risk factors relative to IPV. Yes. Right. And none of those risk fa factors tell us anything specifically about an individual. Other, right, other than they're at higher risk. Right. Right. Um, so someone could have every single risk factor for IPV and never commit IPV, right? It would be, again, if you're going to say a medical degree of probability, the answer is they will. But if you're saying uniformly, the answer is no. Right. IPV can occur without substance abuse. Oh, sure. Someone can abuse substances without ever perpetrating IPV. Again, absolutely. But, again, you are saying different than what I said. I did not say abusing substance. I said substance use disorder. You are, those are two different things. Because there are surely people who use substances that do not engage in any violence, do not become psychotic, nothing at all. So and that's absolutely. equally true of people who have substance abuse disorder. There are certainly people who have substance abuse disorder who don't commit IPV, correct? They are saying people who have substance use disorders the majority of them, over 50%, do. 
So open shaitu. So that's medical so, so my the answer is yes. As you said, not well, everyone who smokes gets lung cancer. So there are significant numbers of people. You you said it was over fifty. So so you'd say forty percent of the people who have substance abuse disorder don't commit IPV, and those are the ones that do not have. IPV risk factors are right. So we're talking about people wait, wait a minute. who don't. Isn't substance abuse disorder an IPV risk factor? Oh, yeah. These are other people that have don't have other risk factors, right? Right. But again, we're talking about people in general. You don't know anything about any particular individual as to whether anybody's going to commit IPV. If statistics follow through, all we can say is more than 50%, 70% will if you combine more risk factors you have, the more likely you're going to develop the illness. If you smoke cigarettes once, that might not correlate to lung cancer. If you smoke it chronically, that might. Right. So that's all but I'm we're saying. talking about individuals here. You either have lung cancer or you don't, right? If you're smoking. Right. Right. You either commit IPV or you didn't. Oh, I mean, yeah, you either did or you didn't, yes. Right. So you took some issue with me because I was asking about substance abuse generally and you wanted me to talk about the the disorder I'm I asked you earlier about narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. and you you haven't made that diagnosis you've just talked about the traits right yes and anybody somebody can have these narcissistic personality traits and substance abuse disorder and never commit IPV, right? So, along that line, right. about, about 80-90% of people who commit IPV have well, a personality disorder. So the answer is less than about 10% obviously do not. Right. There are more close links with IPV for borderline personality disorder than narcissistic personality disorder. Correct, sir? I'm not going to agree with that. No? I'm not saying there are more links. I would say to you there are absolute. If you're asking me there are links, the answer is absolutely. If you're saying to me more, I can show studies that yes, so studies say that. That has not been absolutely definitively correlated. No. No? Absolutely not. MDMA. What is it? Uh, ecstasy. Yeah. And what's the normal dosage of ecstasy for people who use ecstasy? Again, I couldn't tell you the quote-unquote normal dose because, honestly speaking, no one, no one knows what they're getting when they're using it, right? It's not regulated, so. But the effects of ecstasy enhance sense of well-being? Low doses, the answer is yes. I'm going to gather when you're using it at higher doses and develop tolerance, you develop the sympathomimetic effects, which are not so enhanced well-being. Increased extroversion, that's, that's a symptom. Again, 
at lower dose, you are 100% right. At low amounts, you are 100% right. It is an adaptogen. We feel closer to people. That's what people who use it say. They feel close to people, warmth to people, uh, 100%. But with continual use and higher doses, it could be fatal. Right. So that's not, that's not well-being. I don't know if I'd call that well-being. So continued use at higher doses, MDMA can be fatal, correct? Correct. What if you took 8 to 10 tablets of MDMA? If, what if you took eight? Again, you don't know what it's. It's very hard to say. That. You don't know what it's. Uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, contaminated with? Okay, you, you can't just say, "Hey, let me just take eight to ten pure ecstasy and see what happens." Yeah. That's that's not going to happen. So what I would say to you again, because substance of abuse are unpredictable, they are not regulated. No one knows what they're going to. No one apps has any idea whether it's going to cause this empathic and tactogen effect at very low doses, or is it going to cause the sympathomimetic, I'm sorry, increase, um, uh, uh, it's like a stimulant, like cocaine, something we talked about like that. No one knows what's going to happen. It's not regulated. And no one knows if you're using with other substances either, like other stimulants. Or if you mix it with alcohol. Or if you mix it with alcohol. No but one knows if it's going to be potentially worse. Right. But this is a potentially lethal combination, 8 to 10 MDMA this, tablets okay. this and is a, This is a potentially toxic combination. Right. Can it kill you? Yeah, I mean, it is a potentially toxic combination. That's true. Ever heard of someone cutting off their own finger on MDMA? Have I ever heard of it? Yeah. Uh, no, I can only give you one I example. Hadn't seen that one before. Okay. I I so, Seroquel. That one... Put you to sleep, right? Uh, if you want to phrase a barbiturate putting you to sleep, then the answer is yes. Yeah, you heard Mr. Uh, Mr. Depp talking about sometimes being on the nod, right? And, and again, I think I, expl I think I explained Seroquel very well this morning. Good. I'm going to ask him a few more questions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. You kept making references to street value. Why were you doing that? Because that's why people with substance use disorder use quetiapine and Seroquel. That's why people who use quetiapine and or slash Seroquel can get has it sells on the street because it's so barbiturate like in effect. Right, but you said that Mr. Depp had a prescription. Uh, there are many substance use disorder patients who have prescriptions for Adderall and quetiapine from their doctor. And that doesn't mean they're not getting high out of it. That doesn't take much. Doctors like to believe what patients have to say. They're not going to go in there being uh, expert witness testimony. All I'm telling you is that in people who have substance disorder, it is not uncommon. And the thought was initially that because quetiapine was not addicting, that it's safe to give in people with substance use disorders, when in fact, we absolutely know it has street value. We absolutely know that for a fact. Right, but my point about this is you made a, a, a bunch of testimony about street value, but you knew at the time you made the testimony that Mr. Depp, in fact, had a prescription. He also had a prescription for oxycodone and roxycodone. Is that, does that count? Because that's also probably not a good thing. It's just because you have a prescription doesn't I, I mean that... I think Mr. Depp would agree with you it wasn't a good thing. Just because you have a prescription doesn't mean you can't abuse it. No, I'm not suggesting you could, you're abusing it. I'm, I'm just wondering why your testimony was in any way tied to street value 
when every single drug you referenced, Mr. Depp had legally. Again, you can have prescription substance abuse, and we know that, correct? No, I shouldn't be asking you that. We can have prescription substance use disorders, and that's not uncommon if you look at the opiate epidemic that we're living in right now. We can have that. That's not an uncommon thing. Unfortunate, but uncommon. Not uncommon. So, Seroquel, I think you described as a sleeping agent when used off-label? When I saw what? Sleeping agent, Seroquel, when used off-label? When used off-label, it can be used sleeping agent, yes. Right. So, Mr. Depp's use of Seroquel could account for some of the photos we saw in this, pig, in, in this trial where he's asleep in a chair? Again, what I would say to you is that if you have a substance use disorder, you are using it to be knocked out. Yes, I agree. And I'm, but I'm not sure at the end of the day if you have vomitus over you either, because I've never seen Seroquel do that. So when he was passed out in the chair, he also had vomitus over him. I've never seen Seroquel do that ever. What a, Neurontin is another one of the um, drugs you testified about. That one's also uh, prescribed, right? Yes, it is. And what's the prescription for that? What's it used for? And what's its indication? Or what's its yeah, use? What's its indication? I mean, its indication is for seizures. It may have one pain indication. Again, I'm not a neurologist, so I can't tell you exactly if it does. But but it's chronically used off-label for pain. It's used off-label for anxiety. Right. And what's its effect? That's another. That's another one that'll put you to sleep, right? Uh, well. Yeah, I mean, sure, 100%. Right. And you made reference to a picture. There's been testimony around, the, around that picture that Mr. Depp fell asleep with ice cream in his hand. That's not vomitous, right? I, I was told it was vomitous. Okay. Um, you talked about the fact that Mr. Depp... Uh, indicates that from time to time he uses an earpiece. I was, yeah, I mean, I, I read that, yes. Okay. Um, did you read the testimony of Mr. Wyatt, who told you what was being pumped into that earpiece? Yeah, I mean, if I, if I remember right, I mean, it was, I think it was lines, right? No, it was music. It was music, not his lines? Yeah. Okay. So if... If Mr. Depp was listening to music rather than being fed his lines, does that change your opinion as to his cognitive function? If he was never fed his lines through the earpiece, which I know he was, but read he was, and that may have been that example, Mr. Wyatt may have said that it was music. I guess the question is, were you having the music during the, during the actual talking of your lines? Is that what you're saying to me? Well, you know, if, if you can do two things at once, that's a pretty high cognitive function, isn't it, sir? You know, it's not a very good point, actually. Divided attention is something humans have a lot of trouble in. Yeah. So, for instance, we have trouble driving and putting on the, you know, using our uh, cell phones and direct. So, divided attention, humans actually are not very good at. I'll, yeah. I'll put that out there. But Mr. In, in general, not but, just Mr. Depp, in general. But, but Mr. Depp is pretty good at acting. You, 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 you acknowledged that early on. Absolutely. Well, better than me, so I know that. Because you don't act. In fact, you don't know about acting. You're right. I have no okay. idea about acting. And you don't know 
how prevalent the use of earpieces are in acting. Again, I, do, I, I know nothing about acting. Irrespective of the fact you know nothing about acting, you've testified that Mr. Depp's use of an earpiece is somehow a cognitive deficit? So if I was giving a lecture and I was fed my lines, I would think there's a cognitive deficit. So I'm, and maybe I'm wrong. Like I said, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe Hollywood stars get lines fed to them through earpieces all the time, and I, I don't know. I, I, that could be said. It sounded to me to be unusual if you're doing a movie and you don't know the lines. But like you said, I'm just judging into what I do with lectures, and I, that would never happen. If you gave lectures, you wouldn't use an earpiece, but you're not going to tell anybody how to act. I'm sorry, what was the question? I, I said, if you gave lectures, you wouldn't use an earpiece, but you're not telling anybody how to act. Right, I would not use an earpiece during lectures. Right. But I, again, I don't know what the standard for a care of how, standard as Hollywood is for that. I have no idea. Your use, uh, your testimony about the use of an earpiece as um, maybe you were wrong, you're comfortable with the fact that you may have made a mistake there? No, because I think in the basis of what I've read about it, I'm comfortable that I, I don't believe that actors are routinely given their entire script through earpieces. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, but, and, and but not one whit of evidence that ever, this ever happened I, here. I guess what I said. I just said I find it hard to believe. I didn't say it. Ha I said I find it hard to believe. That's all I said. Oh, yeah, but what you found hard to believe, sir, was that every every line of the script was was pumped through an earpiece where did you ever get the idea that ever that occurred that's what i have been that's what i read and the uh, court review the court evidence that's where i got it from right. and um you know where, whether marlon brando used an earpiece whether isn't he dead <laughs> yeah so the answer is no he does not use one now oh, no I, I i used the past tense so. oh i'm sorry uh i again I know nothing, I will concede to you, I know nothing about acting. I will concede to you 100%. If that is the standard and people are done that acting, then I apologize and that was wrong on my part. If that's the standard, I'm wrong. I don't know. Okay. Let's go with that. No further questions. All right. How long is your return? A, a, a bit. You may want to take a break. All right. Let's go ahead and break for lunch then, ladies and gentlemen. Again, do not do any outside research. Do not discuss your testimony with anybody, okay? So let's come back at 155 then. All right. Is that fine? All right. Thank you. All right. Welcome to a very special For the Record, everybody. I'm Jesse Weber, live in Fairfax County, Virginia, outside of the Fairfax County Courthouse, where we are live in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial, day 20. Clearly a lot to break down, but in this hour, we're doing something special for all of our YouTube viewers, all of our Twitch viewers, all of our viewers on social media, and our network viewers. If you have a question about this case, email us, tweet us, 
pin it on the YouTube channel. We are going to answer your questions right now in real time, me and my very special guest. This is the Johnny Depp case where he is suing Amber Heard for $50 million, claiming she defamed him in a Washington Post op-ed piece. She is countersuing him for $100 million, saying he orchestrated a public smear campaign against her. Amber Heard's side is continuing to present some witnesses. I know there are constant developments in this case, including the fact we learned that Kate Moss, Johnny Depp's ex, will now testify this Wednesday. Pretty big development. So throw in your questions. We're going to answer them in real time. Right now we'll start with the uh, a little bit of some of the recap of what you might have missed earlier in the day. We heard from a psychiatrist, Dr. David Spiegel, whose opinion was that Johnny Depp exhibited symptoms of a, a substance abuse disorder and also signs that he was the perpetrator of intimate partner violence on Amber Heard. Let's take a listen to that testimony real quick. Dr. Spiegel, could you please just summarize for the jury the conclusions you came to with your opinions and then we'll take you through the specifics. So in my opinion, based on my re review of the evidence, based on my clinical experience, based on my publishing experience, based on my teaching experience, that Mr. Depp has behaviors that are consistent with both someone who has a substance use disorder as well as consistent behaviors for someone who's a perpetrator of intimate partner violence. All right, so let's break down some questions. We're already starting right now. I'm joined right now by Anjanette Levy, who was live in that courtroom today and provided us quite the story about a woman picking up her baby and saying in the middle of open court, Johnny, this is your baby. We found out later it was not his baby, thank goodness. But we're also here with um, we're also here with Dina Dahl, who's of course been fantastic with our Q and A sessions. So, uh, Anjanette, I will go first to you. Uh, this is an interesting question. This is from Kaylee from Ness from Facebook. Facebook. Kaylee Ness says, can you explain what the time limits mean for each side and how it relates to cross-examination? Uh, it means the clock is ticking. Uh, the side for Amber Heard really has fewer than eight hours left, so that's basically today. Um, and they, I'm assuming, will finish up today. Uh, so it means that as far as cross-examination goes, uh, they're going to have to maybe tighten it up if they want to get more in and get more out of their witnesses. Uh, so um, it's really interesting and they're going to just have to, um, I think they're going to have to tighten it up. Some of their stuff goes really long and now they're going to, after lunch, call Johnny Depp to the stand. We know having Johnny Depp on the stand is not a quick thing. So uh, they're going to have to speed it up and uh, I don't think that they're going to be able to control Johnny Depp. You may recall Ben Rottenborn was often frustrated with Johnny Depp, and we may see yep. more of that depending on how it goes. Yeah, he has these kind of long, elaborate pauses and, and sentences. Um, I also want to apologize. We have with us criminal defense attorney Karen Felicia Nance. Karen, I'm sorry I missed you there. So, you know what? I have an apology to you. I'm going to throw you a question from LOZ97. This is one of our YouTubers. How are they allowed to have witnesses in that haven't witnessed anything and are only giving their, appearance, their opinions based on hearsay? How is that fair and how is it even allowed? I'm assuming this is in reference to some of the witnesses we've seen today who said that they never observed any kind of violence on their end or they never observed you know, any certain thing. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't there for the injury to Johnny Depp's hand, but they are giving opinions nonetheless. What's your take on that? 
great question. It it's with regard to the experts that testify. So expert witnesses can look at all of the evidence uh, that's presented in the case, written reports, testimony, to give it in a, uh, their opinion based on their expertise, which is why in the beginning of each, uh, when these witnesses are called to the stand, they have to be um, asked certain questions as to why they're qualified to make their judgments, either in terms of a diagnosis or their opinion as to what the, they're specifically called for. So the most recent one, right, is Dr. Spiegel, and that's why he's allowed to ask certain questions or make certain diagnoses, but on cross-examination, he's really being questioned as to whether or not he does have the expertise and the information before him to answer these questions that he's been asked and making these diagnoses, which obviously Donnie Depp's attorneys are objecting to. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Karen, because over to you now, Dina. We have a question, for, a question from Finn Willie from YouTube. Have you ever seen a more combative expert witness? I'm, I'm assuming he's talking about um, uh, Dr. Spiegel. Didn't seem to want to answer one single question without arguing. I was surprised at how argumentative he was. And I think he was so argumentative that it basically didn't even matter what he said on direct. I think some of the things he said on direct could very well have hurt Johnny Depp if the jury had found him credible and wanted to kind of rely on his expert opinion. But his inability to answer any of the questions and to be so argumentative made me as a viewer and probably the jury kind of question like, why he was so defensive like it, it just took his whole professional opinion as he said really into a question it was an excellent cross and i think they did a lot of damage on him yeah it was a little weird when they were asking him well didn't uh, marlon brando use an earpiece and he goes isn't marlon brando dead i mean that's not the substance of the question here i mean he was trying to make the point that a lot of actors had used earpieces before and johnny depp was not kind of this mess that needed it all right uh Anjanette, before we go to um another clip again we are taking everybody's questions right now on youtube twitch twitter facebook throw them in there um this is kind of a follow-up to what i just asked you this is from eight chicago typewriter eight you from youtube does the cross-examination from Johnny's team burn Johnny's clock? We talked about how there was time limits. Um, yeah, I think it does. I, I, and it's not going to be, it does burn their time up, but he's going to be called after lunch. And so he will be there, he'll be, they'll be questioning him on direct. So he'll be what's considered a, an adverse witness. Uh, so it did uh, burn their clock up quite a bit. That's why you have to be strategic in your cross-examination, in this case in particular. Um, again, we're taking more of your questions. I want to actually go back to Dr. David Spiegel, the psychiatrist who testified on behalf of Amber Heard. If you haven't seen some of his testimony, it was quite colorful. Take a look. Has Mr. Depp suggested, based on your review of the record evidence, that alcohol and drugs actually help him? Actually, in review of the evidence, he has suggested that alcohol, Xanax, I'm in the list of medications, do help. Although I will also tell you on review of the evidence that there were at least two times I can remember that uh, Mr. Depp was referring to uh, at least short-lived periods of sobriety, and I cannot exactly tell you what that included, that both times he said that he functioned better and that he recognized that alcohol and drugs was at the root of his problems. Again, this today is really just about dirtying up Johnny Depp and showing that what Amber Heard accused him of, she's having corroborating witnesses. All right, so let me go to you, Karen. Unwired Emmy from YouTube says, 
If Amber Heard wins, will she have to legally hand over the $7 million? I think that's in reference to maybe what the, the money she promised to donate to the ACLU and other kinds of charities. I think I'm reading that correct. What, what do you think about that? That's a great question because we've heard testimony about that. But that was with regard to their dissolution, their divorce. That was the agreement, the settlement agreement was that Johnny Depp would pay her the $7 million. And, and so the issue was, was $3.5 million going to go to Children's Hospital and $3.5 million going to the ACLU? And so even though that's been raised as an issue in this trial, that is not the determinative, determinative factor. It has to do with her credibility, I believe, which is why Johnny Depp's attorneys were asking about that. And, then, and on cross-examination, Amber makes the distinction between donation and a pledge. And so for her, those two things are the same, but in reality, they're not. She has not donated, and she's not obligated with regard to this trial uh, to, to, do, um, to donate, even though she made that promise. It does affect her credibility, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether Johnny succeeds in his claim or Amber succeeds in her claim. I did read I, I, online that I think there was this kind of betting odds, and if she wins, the first thing she's going to do is donate the money to him, because obviously from an optics point of view, it would look much better for her to do that. Um, okay, so Anjanette, I can't have a Q&A session without talking about Ka uh, Kate Moths. Beth, right. Beth Ann Allen, Beth Ann Allen from YouTube says, is Kate Moss testifying on behalf of Johnny or on behalf of Amber? Well, Kate Moss will be testifying on behalf of Johnny Depp. She will be what's called a rebuttal witness for him. And the reason she's being brought in on rebuttal is because Amber Heard opened the door to all of this. You'll recall that when Amber Heard was testifying a couple of weeks ago, she talked about that March 23rd, 2015 incident with Johnny Depp and Whitney Enriquez, uh, Amber's sister, in which they were at the top of the stairs. And she said that was the first time she'd ever landed a blow on Johnny. She hit him because uh, she, all she could think about was Kate Moss and the stairs. And when that happened, yep. you saw Johnny Depp looking down at the table, smiling. His attorney, Ben Chu, turned around, gave a fist pump to Camille Vasquez, who would be cross-examining uh, Amber Heard, because she opened the door. That Kate Moss wouldn't have been allowed to testify in this case at all. Had Amber Heard yep. not mentioned her, she opened the door to Kate Moss coming in because she is claiming that she heard some rumor um, that Kate Moss, that Johnny Depp threw her down the stairs one time. Kate Moss has said in interviews in the past, and she's still friends with Johnny Depp, uh, that she cried for years after they broke up. Uh, she loved him dearly, and she said that Johnny Depp took care of her. So I think we're going to hear that uh, Kate Moss, uh, we're going to hear Kate Moss tell people that Johnny Depp didn't throw her down the stairs. Well, I mean, just adding to that, Dina Dahl, we, fr we have a, a user from Twitch, Tony Scungilly. What can Kate Moss's testimony do to help Johnny Depp's side, or is it more designed to hurt Amber's credibility? I mean, again, it all depends what Kate Moss is actually going to testify to. They believe they are gonna, they're going to use her as a weapon. Well, you know, we heard an opening statement by Johnny Depp's attorney that, you know, no, nobody has ever um, alleged physical abuse against Johnny Depp in, you know, 30 years. And here now, the jury, you know, if Kate Moss does testify and testifies to how we think, we're going to hear somebody who was in um, a long relationship with him say that she, he never physically abused her. That helps quite a bit, especially with the testimony we just heard with that expert 
who really tried to say that because he's a substance abuser, which he's admitted, he's more likely to be a physical abuser. And if you now have a past relationship say, well, he didn't abuse me, it kind of discredits that whole thing that somehow it's tied together because the expert also said it doesn't have to be a substance abuser hits a physical abuser. Right. So every little bit of past relationships that come in showing Johnny Depp never did that before certainly helps him here. So many twists and turns in this case. You know, we thought we were going to hear from James Franco and Elon Musk, but they're like, don't worry, we got Kate Moss. She's coming in this week. So clearly there's a lot of things that are fluid that are happening here. We are taking your questions. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, I will just tease. There's one question from TTBA1878. Fantastic question that we're going to get into. Stick with us. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. We have a very special lunch break right now in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. As soon as it starts up again, right behind me in the Fairfax County Courthouse, we will jump live. But right now in our lunch break, we are taking your questions. If you're on YouTube or Twitch or Twitter or Facebook on our network, send us the questions. We will answer them. You can tweet us. You can pin the questions. We're answering them in real time. So I did tease one question. Karen, I'm going to throw it to you. I said this is a really good one. This is from TTBA1878. This is a very big picture question. Do you think this case has strengthened or damaged the defamation court process? Wow, that is a great question. I think I that it probably has put uh, a light on it. I don't think that most people in the general public have even focused on defamation. So I think that in a good way that we are, we're now aware, the, the public is aware that these type of lawsuits um, exist. So I think in, in that sense, it's it's a good thing. The bad part is it's muddied by the whole um, allegations of domestic violence because now we have to focus on whether or not, if, from a criminal perspective, that these things happen. So I think that from two ways, one, yes, we're now aware that there is such a thing as defamation and how hard it is to prove. And on the other hand, we're coming to light the fact that actually men can suffer from domestic or be victims of domestic violence as well if you believe Johnny Depp's team. So I think that overall it has a, a good effect in terms of awareness and then we just need to focus on um, just their, their nuances to domestic violence. There's so t many different types of, of physical, emotional, sexual. So I think it, it de definitely raises that conversation for more of us to have these type of discussions clearly. Yeah, it's we talk so much about the celebrity aspect, but the legal case is so important all together as well, and whatever the verdict ends up being. So again, great questions that we're receiving from all of our viewers. Keep them coming. I want to play some of the testimony from Dr. Richard Moore, this orthopedic surgeon who said the injury he saw to Johnny Depp's hand wasn't consistent with the story that Johnny Depp gave. And because there's been talk of a, of a glass explosion, um, Dr. Moore, there's there's seems to have been a suggestion that somehow glass may have sliced off the end of, of Mr. Depp's finger. Is that what's going on here? No, uh, this wound doesn't really appear to be a, a sharp glass laceration. You referred earlier to an avulsion, um, which is a term I, I had never heard 
before your opinion in this case. Explain to the jury what that is, please. So, so often with crush injuries, and and um, and we'll see uh, tissue loss that we call an avulsion, or uh, where the the tissues actually um, pinched or or pulled away uh, rather than than sliced or cut. Um, and and it, it's not uncommon with crush injuries to see that. So uh, we're going back and answering some of your questions on Twitch and YouTube and Facebook. Okay, and Jeanette, this is this is a good one. Again, I keep hitting you with the time, but people want to know because it's so, we never really see it in the criminal cases. This is from Angel Cat Life on YouTube. Cat spelled with a K. I just want everybody to know that. If they run out of time, can the judge really stop them? Don't they have a right to give their best case with all the evidence? Can it be a mistrial if the judge stops them? I don't think it can be a mistrial because she told them from the very beginning, this is what you have for your time. And it's up to them to use their time wisely and to budget wisely. It's as, it's as if you get a paycheck, right? You, you know what your take-home pay is. You know you don't go and blow it on you know one thing when you need groceries. So I think it's, it's all about budgeting your time and using your time wisely and getting the most bang for your buck. And the judge has told them repeatedly, if you run your time out, if your clock is up, I will stop you mid-witness, I don't care. Mm, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we could be there. <laughs> Who knows how long? Because you know what? Here's the thing, Dina. The cross-examination that we've been seeing of Dr. Spiegel's, I mean, it's something to watch. And, and we have a question here from Twitter uh, from at Calibroski. Do we think that maybe Dr. Spiegel was put on the stand to fluster Depp's side? I can't seem to find a good reason as to why to put him up there if he never actually gave an evaluation of Johnny. Well, you know, he he was meant to give his expert opinion, which he was right, that that kind of thing happens a lot in these cases. And I do think that what he said in his direct probably was helpful to Amber Heard. He was trying to make this connection between substance abuse and physical abuse, but he was just so bad on cross-examination that... You know, I I think his you I think the jury would probably throw out pretty much everything he said there. I also thought though about the clock because the the Johnny Depp team um, really took a lot of time cross-examining him, and I think they only did that because they know how much more time they really have than Amber Heard. They had that leeway because probably after the first few questions, they had pretty much already I thought destroyed his uh, direct. They probably could have just finished then. You know, it was interesting during the uh, cross-examination, there was one point, point, again, as I said, Dr. Spiegel said, isn't Marlon Brando dead? Johnny Depp actually put his hand in his, you know, his face in his hands like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what's happening here. But we have a question um, for, uh, for Dina, actually for Karen, from Mal. Uh, this is from YouTube. It's on the surgeon that we mentioned that who testified earlier, Dr. Moore. Would the fact that Johnny wrote with his finger in blood after the incident affect the look of the injury and therefore affect Dr. Moore's analysis? Remember Dr. Moore, as he just said, he doesn't believe that this was caused by a vodka bottle being thrown at Johnny Depp's hand. Now, he couldn't actually say what caused the injury, but he said clearly it's not from a, a vodka bottle. What do you think about that, though, if he was able to write with his finger? 
That that's a great question, and so there that was alluded to when we saw the mirrors, right? And we saw the black writing, and we see the red writing, and so that's a question that um, the jurors have to answer. But I I'm hopeful that there'll be more information when, for example, when uh, Amber's team calls Johnny back up there, he probably has an explanation as to that. But I think the most powerful thing of the cross examination of, of Dr. Moore is that. He couldn't definitively say one way or the another. Everyone's just speculating, and so all we have really is what Johnny said and what Amber said. So I do think that he he was a much better witness than Dr. Spiegel, for example. Uh, he he said what he had to say and he was done. But I do think that on cross examination, that uh, it gave some questions for the jury to think about. They had to ponder whether this was was really how it happened. Was it an accordion door or was it through the uh, the throwing of the box? vodka bottle. So I do think that um, was it effective for Doc, for Amber's team? I think it was. A lot of people have questions about this surgeon, by the way, uh, as the first witness of the day. we Dina, we heard from Charlotte C. from YouTube. Why did none of the lawyers ask the surgeon what he thought of Amber Heard's version of Johnny Depp's severed finger? Uh, the mm -hmm. fact that it was with a phone. Thanks a lot for the great Q&A. Well, you're welcome for the great Q&A. But I guess, you know, that's an interesting point. I mean, because he really couldn't definitively say what happened. Yeah, that is a really good question. I mean, sometimes lawyers don't ask questions that they don't know the answer to, right? So whether or not, um, you know, maybe Amber Heard's attorney didn't want him to say that it also, he couldn't say whether or not it was the phone, which would have made his testimony like even more vague, right? Like he couldn't back up what Amber Heard said either. And so that's possibly... And then also Johnny Depp's attorneys probably didn't want to ask him that because they didn't want him to say, well, sure, it's possible that it was the phone. So my guess is, you know, it's that, that they um, were a little bit uncertain. He was going to probably not be able to say one way or the other it was going to be the phone, which could have actually hurt both of them. Well, yeah, I mean, did he cut himself? Was a vodka bottle thrown? It's still kind of up in the air. And how much, whatever the jury comes back with on that, it's not one of the core substantive issues. It just lends into Johnny Depp's argument that he was the victim in this relationship and not the abuser. These are great questions. Please keep them coming. We want to keep answering them. We'll play a little bit more of uh, Dr. Richard Moore, this orthopedic surgeon. This is him being cross-examined by Depp's side. Have you ever seen this picture before, Dr. Moore? No. So you're not aware that this is the bar area where Mr. King testified he found Mr. Depp's finger? No. Okay. Do you see that broken vodka bottle in the back corner near the bottom of the bar? Yes. Okay. Do you see the blood drops on the floor? Yes. Can we please pull up Defendant's Exhibit 1820, which is already in evidence? Have you seen this picture before, Dr. Moore? I have not. So you're not aware that this is also a picture from the bar area where Mr. King testified he found Mr. Depp's finger? Correct. Do you see the bloody tissue on the ground at the bottom of the bar? Yes. Do you see the blood drops around that tissue? Yes. So you didn't consider any of this evidence in rendering your opinion about how Mr. Depp injured his finger in Australia, did you? I did not. 
That's a good point. That was a good cross-examination point right there. What to really take away from it. Okay, so Anjanette, big picture again. I'm not going <laughs> to... It's another time question. It's a little different, though. It's a little different. This is <laughs> okay. from Waleska LeBron on YouTube. How much time will the jury have after Friday? So, again, I think what the question is suggesting is after closing arguments, once they go into deliberations, how long will they have? Well, I think that that's probably going to be up to the jury. So each side gets two hours for their closing. Plus, think about it, Jesse, when we cover these cases, jury instruction, you know, the judge instructs the jury, then there's some, then the closings. We're going to have to have a morning break, likely lunch, uh, then closings from the other side and rebuttal, then um, probably a break. So it could, ha it could happen. It could, you know, they could go back and say, you know what, we'll select a four person, maybe talk about a few things and then come back the next week. Uh, the judge may leave it up to them to, as to how late they go, but we just, we don't know that at this point. Uh, but I, everybody I've talked to seems to think that closings will happen. Think about it. Friday is the Friday of Memorial Day weekend. It's a holiday weekend. These jurors have been here for six weeks. Do you really think they're going to want to hang out here uh, on a Friday night and into the weekend if they don't have to and if they come back the next week? Uh, in, 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 unless this is going to be like a quick verdict and they're going to go back and say, okay, we've made up our minds, boom, 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 boom. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Everyone I've spoken to thinks they will deliberate into the next week. And deliberations can go on as long as those jurors see fit. Can you imagine? They come back, they go, yep, you both lose, we're going home, everybody enjoy Memorial Day weekend. I don't think that's going to happen, but it would have been fun nonetheless. No. All right, so before, before we had a break, before we had a break, um, Karen, this is a good one, okay? This is from Hedgehog the Fencer on YouTube. Don't know what Hedgehog the Fencer's profession is, but just let's leave it to Hedgehog the Fencer. That is great to think about. So, <laughs> hi guys. Is it harder for a public figure to win a defamation trial than for a private individual? Karen. That's a great question. Love the name also. So both in this particular case, right, we both of these individuals, both Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, are public figures. And so there is a certain standard that has to be met. There's a certain amount of leeway that, that in terms of making a determination as to whether defamation has been proved is did it, the harm that, that Johnny Depp is alleging. So we're talking about his case against Amber. Um, has he proven that? Um, one, obviously, the article, um, was it about him? I think that even from Amber's perspective, her, her team's perspective, even though she's denying it, that was clearly about him. So it's step two is, did it cause the harm that, that he's claiming with regard to his career? So we've heard testimony on both sides. It's the alcohol, it's this, it's that. So I think that from that perspective, it's a harder case to prove from Johnny Depp's perspective. So I think that that's where we are at this point, and we'll see how it goes. And that's why we've said at the very beginning, despite all of the support you're seeing for Johnny Depp and how he might be even winning in the court of public opinion, winning a legal case for defamation is an entirely different thing and is a very uphill battle. We're going to take a break. We're going to take more of your questions. Stay with us here on Law & Crime. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone.
everybody. Right now, we are having a very special lunch break in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial because we are taking your questions on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter, any which way you want to send them to us. Please do. We will answer them online. At, we'll answer them on air, I should say. And by the way, just great questions about this case and overall the big repercussions of this case as well. Uh, I'm back here with Karen Felicia Nance, Dina Dahl, and Jeanette Levy. So, Okay, here's, here's a good one. Here's a good one for you, Anjanette. This is from Malfunctioning Zen uh, on Twitch. Malfunctioning Zen, first of all, I, I hope you're okay. I hope you're okay. But uh, wants to know, why did not any of the doctors from the hospital in Australia testify? Obviously, this is in regards to Johnny Depp's injured finger. That's a really good question. Uh, I think we would have all liked to have heard from them because what did Johnny Depp tell those doctors? Uh, we know that he kind of was saying um, that that he did this, right? We know that he was telling people that. And his sister Christy had testified actually that they didn't want this out in the press that Amber Heard had thrown this bottle and cut his finger off. Now, uh, you know, her side, Amber Heard's side is saying, well, of course, you know, he's just saying, uh, he's already said he cut his finger off. He's just kind of trying to say she did this. And he, um, you know, they're kind of throwing some shade at him and saying he's basically accepted responsibility for cutting off his own finger uh, by slamming that phone that was on the wall. Um, but I think it's really interesting. That's a good question. I, I don't have an answer. I wish I knew. Uh, I would love to know what he told those doctors at the hospital. But remember, there was all this discussion about how they didn't want this out in the press. They didn't want this in the press, that there was this blowout at the house in Australia while he's filming Pirates of the Caribbean and the tip of his finger came off. Can you imagine? It would have been big time tabloid fodder. And I will tell you, it's fascinating that his defense was, well, I didn't want to get Amber Heard in trouble. And when she was on the stand and was asked, well, why didn't you say what Johnny Depp really did to you on one incident? She says, because I didn't want to get Johnny Depp in trouble. And so right. they're literally mirror responses to one another, which is, again, this he said, she said. And sometimes I wonder if the jury's going to maybe put away aside some of the testimony and focus more on what we heard, and specifically audio recordings of the couple, which gives us such an inside glimpse into what might have happened. Let's Take a listen to one of those between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. The last time that it got crazy between us, I really did think I was going to lose my life, and I thought you would do it on accident. And I told you that. I said, oh my God, I thought the first time. Amber, I, I lost a finger, man. Come on. I had a I had a A mineral can a jar of can of mineral spirits thrown on my nose. Can you please tell people that it was a fair fight and see what the, ju see what the jury and judge thinks? Tell the world, Johnny. Tell them, Johnny Depp. I, Johnny Depp, man, I, I'm a victim too of domestic violence. And yes. I, you know, it's a fair fight. And see how many people believe or side with you. It doesn't matter if it's a fair, fair, fair fight. My ass. Exactly. Because you're. And that's it. I mean, that's going to be that's going to be it right there. It's going to be important for the jury to really make that determination. It's kind of ironic she said that. So, Dina, I go to you, and and I I apologize to our YouTube fan here because I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce this. Mini P W N A G. I don't know. Mini Mini Padmanabha. Let's go with that. This is on expert witnesses. Okay, when experts like doctors describe symptoms of mental illness or injury for the side that they're testifying for, could the opposing counsel? Ask the expert if they see those symptoms of their own client. What do you think about that? 
Sure. I mean, that would go toward, you know, what's the foundation for their professional opinion. And, and we have heard experts testify, you know, and I think maybe this one might have also that he this was consistent with what he has seen in clients before. So that is possible. I think the most important thing about the experts is, you know, they're paid to give their opinion at trial. And I think that they don't hold as much weight at all to, you know, non-paid uh, people. So I think that there is often this battle of the experts and yes, they could be important, but their opinions are a little bit discounted because they realize, especially here, they brought it out across, you know, they did not personally evaluate whether or not it was the surgeon, you know, or whether or not it was the, you know, the surgeon didn't actually care for his hand after the injury and the person, the psych, a psychiatric person afterwards didn't personally evaluate him. So it's all, it's kind of taken with um, a little bit of a discount by the jury, their testimony. Right. Uh, we have someone, someone, 777 on YouTube, when does Johnny go back on the stand? I'll answer that one. We believe he is going to take the stand today. Uh, could be wrong. Things could be fluid, but we do believe he is going to be called by Amber Heard's side. Okay, so now I go to you, Karen. This is a great one. This is from a first-time chat uh, viewer. This is from Twitch, um, and this is from Nik Nikhil Senkar Chapa Chaplin. Nik Nikhil Senkar Chaplin. Do you think that this trial has hurt the Me Too movement, as many media outlets are claiming, despite the majority of evidence pointing to Depp being the abuse victim? That's an awesome question. And I really do agree that it has, to a certain extent, hurt the movement because of Amber's testimony and the fact that she taped Johnny and we actually heard firsthand how she sounded and how she was reacting to him and actually sounded like the aggressor in many, many of these instances. So I believe that um, if you take it in a vacuum and just look at how she presents in this particular case, I think that it would hurt the movement. It doesn't help it. But if you look at it globally and look at other circumstances and other victims and survivors of domestic abuse, I think that it doesn't hurt it. But this particular case, looking at what Amber's alleging, I don't think that it helps movement at all. We have a question here, Dina, from PerfectR6 on Twitch. Why is Dr. Spiegel saying that NPD, I think this might be BPD, bipolar, uh, I think you're talking about borderline personality disorder. So why, why is Dr. Saying, uh, Dr. Spiegel saying borderline personality disorder and substance abuse is prone to interpartner violence in regards of Johnny Depp, but not for Amber Heard, as she has borderline personality disorder and other personality disorders? Did Dr. Spiegel spend time with Miss Heard because he testified he didn't spend any time with Johnny Depp. How is that fair? You know, I think that actually on cross-examination, it was Johnny Depp's attorney that had him link border personality disorder with this um, violence because he had testified that narcissistic personality was tied to violence and he said that Johnny Depp had traits of it based on not a personal evaluation but all of the um, you know, publicly available information and court information he had seen of him. And so I think as a way of rebutting that, Johnny Depp's attorney said, well, is it also linked with borderline personality disorder? And they, he said that because of the testimony earlier by Dr. Curry, who had diagnosed Amber Heard after personally evaluating her 
with the borderline personality disorder, which I think just continue to kind of, like I said, destroy the direct testimony by this expert witness, because now he's admitted that both of them with their respective diagnosis could have been um, perpetrators of domestic violence. I mean, a lot of our questions today are focused on Dr. Spiegel and how questionable his testimony has been. I'll give you one, Karen. This is from Lauren Johnson Martin from Facebook. Can Depp's team ask to have Dr. Spiegel's testimony be thrown out due to him being a hostile witness? Well, I mean, obviously the question can be asked of the court. Johnny Depp's attorneys could ask that of the court, and it would be ultimately up to the judge to make that determination. But I do think that it, it wouldn't necessarily be to their benefit to strike it, because I think that he was such a terrible witness on cross-examination, and he still has to redirect. I don't know if he's going to be able to, quote, rehabilitate himself. But I do think the fact that he's all over the place and he's somewhat combative, I don't think that it, it rises to the level of being a hostile witness, but clearly he was a difficult witness, and I don't think that um, he did very well for Amber's side, and actually helped Johnny's side, so I would keep his testimony in. Which is interesting, because this is the last week of the presentation of evidence. This is going to be some of the last things that are fresh in the jury's mind as they begin their deliberations. So let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to answer more of your questions. Throw them in there. we still got another 20 minutes or so we can answer them. And we'll be right back, right after this. back everybody to our live Q&A session as we are currently in a lunch break in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Once it starts up right behind me, we will jump live once again. You won't miss a minute, but we're taking your questions right now on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, email, Facebook, wherever you're watching us. Send in your questions. We'll answer them on the air. And Jeanette, I have a, a really special question right now from a Jesse Weber from the Lawn Crime Network. Maybe you've heard of his work. Uh, my question yes, I, I to you is... Than what the time or two? Yes, he's he's fantastic. But let me ask you my question. Let me ask you a question. The question is: okay. What happened with the baby today in court? Because I don't know if everybody heard your report earlier today, and I know we're trying to get it up on social media pretty quickly. What happened with the baby in today in court? Okay, so here's what happened, and uh, it was pretty crazy. So uh, we were going to the morning break. Judge Askarati uh, left the bench, which means the camera, because she's off the bench, goes up to the seal for the Commonwealth of Virginia. So Johnny Depp and his team always walk back then um, into whatever space they're taken to um, outside of the courtroom. And this woman in the back, uh, across the court, uh, courtroom from me, and on the other side, stands up and says something to the effect of, Johnny, I love you, uh, our souls are connected. And he turned around and he kind of waved. Uh, and he has waved to his supporters uh, time and time again. And then she held up a baby, her baby, and said, this baby is yours. And we're all like, what? <laughs> I mean, that's taking things to a whole nother level. And the deputies are like, okay, you're out of here. And they take her out, they, they cut her wristband, she's gone. She is viewed as a, a troublemaker now. I can tell you that based on what I saw in the hallway um, after she left. I know Celia, our production assistant, I told her, um, go find that woman and interview her. And uh, right. Celia was a, a really good soldier and went and did it. And she said that the woman had talked about this with her husband 
and they thought it was a joke and thought it would be funny and that she was doing that. So just FYI, everybody, um, Johnny Depp does not have a third baby out there that was at the courthouse today. So uh, I, it was just a weird thing, and it was just one of those right. things where you're like, whoa, we are in courtrooms all the time. You don't see stuff like that all the time. And Jeanette, real quick follow-up, uh, any comment from the baby? No comment from the baby. Uh, I heard she just Cut. wanted a bottle. Okay, fair enough. Great reporting, as always, from Anjanette Levy. Uh, but I move on to Anjanette because you actually did get some comments from Amber Heard supporters. And, and, that, and that was interesting because we talked so much about there's so many supporters here outside the courthouse, inside the courtroom for Johnny Depp. But you had the opportunity to hear from some people who were supporting Amber Heard. Let's take a listen. Watching this, it just it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart the way that she's being forced to relive all of this in front of the world and they just hate her for it. That breaks my heart. I mean, she already did the trial. I mean, she like leaves court every day and people just shout at her like obscenities saying, I don't believe you every day. People made it into a funny TikTok trend to dance and act out her sexual assault testimony. It's just, I mean, it's just sick. That's why I care. Do you, so do you think it's possible at all that she ever abused Johnny Depp at all? No, I don't think it works like that. What do you mean? Can you explain that to me? I don't really think there is such a thing as mutual abuse. Like the power imbalance, if that makes sense. What, why do you see him as the one with the power and not her? I mean, he's older than her, richer than her, more famous than her. So again, you're seeing mixed reactions across the board. And um, Dina Dahl, I'll go to you. This is a, from one of our followers on Twitch, LLNU. It seems that everyone, including the media, are on Johnny's side. Uh, clearly not. There are Amber Heard supporters. But do you think the jury is seeing Johnny as the victim without seeing everything we are from the outside world? You know, it is true. I, a lot of comments I get about people who are supporting Johnny Depp are looking at evidence that actually is not part of the trial. Some of audio, the UK transcript, and comparing them. And so it is important to note that the jury is only seeing, you know, they're only evaluating this based on what they've seen these six weeks. Now, I really try to keep an open mind uh, on this trial myself, and I wasn't really familiar with the details of this case beforehand. And the thing that got me was the cross of Amber Heard and the putting forward the pictures and, and lining it up with the, her what she alleged the abuse happened at the time. And I think at minimum she had to have exaggerated it because there's just no way some of that abuse could have been covered up with makeup, as she says. I personally think that's when she lost the jury. I think that is and and very you know because. How do you overcome that? You know, the juries also are seeing that discrepancy in the cross. But, but I do think that they're not looking at it in ways of some people who really have dug deep in the details and, and are seeing much more of this case than the jury is being presented with. Well, you know what, that kind of brings me to this next question, and, and it's a really good one that I get asked that a ton. And Karen, I'll go to you here. This is another one of our Twitch followers from I think it's Sh Shaxnon, it's S-H-X-N-N-O-N-V-X-R-K-E-L. How do they keep information from leaking out to the jury when this court case is literally everywhere? 
Well, that is a great question, and, and we're all inundated with all this information from the media every day. Every time you turn on your phone, there's there's some something about this case. So the judge at the beginning of the case instructed the jury, the potential jurors especially, can you keep the, your decisions, right, your decision about the case till the end. Don't look at any social media. And so um, I think it's been said before by um, by a lot of people that it's important to hold them to their honor. It's, it's up to your word that you will not look at anything at the every time the jury's dismissed for a lunch break or for the end of the day. They're told, remember, not to look at any social media. I think it's really difficult since everybody probably has a cell phone that as soon as you pull up your cell phone, there's going to be some information there. So it's they're basically on their honor to do what's best and well, not what's best, but the judge's order. And so it'll be interesting to see, if, for example, if on Friday after the closing and they don't uh, come back till Tuesday because Monday's the holiday, are they going to be able to keep themselves away from any type of social media or people talking about the case? It's going to be a real struggle. And I think it's going to be very difficult, even if they are trying their very best to stay out of the line of social media completely. Yeah, it's a tough case for them. I mean, they've been here for over a month now, and it's just a, a very high-profile case, very serious issues, complicated legal issues. Um, you, you know, Anjanette, we have this question from Twitch. Uh, this is from Ukes3411. As ACLU ambassador for women's rights, referring to Amber Heard, listening to these recordings where she curses and testified that she hits Johnny Depp, do you think she's a good fit for the role? Um, I, you know, uh, there's a lot in this uh, case, and I, I probably don't have time to, to elaborate a lot, but there's a lot that we are learning about that has gone on with regard to Amber Heard and a woman named Jennifer Howell, uh, Nurse Debbie Lloyd, uh, things of that nature, maybe trying to silence people. Uh, the American Civil Liberties Union is all about protecting all of our civil liberties, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, and we're learning more and more uh, things that Amber Heard and her team are accused of doing to try to keep people silent and to shut them down and to harm them. I don't think that that aligns with the views and the values of the ACLU. Fair. Fair, fair statement. I want to thank everybody out there for your comments, your questions on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter. Really, just phenomenal. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Dina Dahl, Anjanette Levy, Karen Felicia Nance, excellent job as always. Thank you so much for breaking down all these questions for us. I am signing off. You are in terrific hands. Michelle Yu is back up here. We're going to jump live once again into the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. We'll be back. seated. Your next question or redirect. Thank you, Your Honor. Dr. Spiegel, uh, you were asked about whether you were able to examine Mr. Depp. Do you recall those questions back and forth? Yes. And so if I understand your testimony, you asked twice for Mr. Depp to be interviewed by you, correct? Yes. Objection leading. And uh, overall. And, uh, and then in addition to that, Ms. Hurd requested twice of the court for Mr. Depp to be submitting to an examination of you, correct? Yes. And those were denied, correct? Yes. 
And now Mr. Depp is contending that it's unethical for you to provide an, eth uh, uh, an opinion in this case because you didn't get an opportunity to interview him. Do you think that makes sense? Objection, Your Honor. I'll sustain the objection. All right. Is that your understanding? That is my understanding of it. Okay. Yes. Um, now, when counsel for Mr. Depp was reading to you the Goldwater rule, there were two words that he kind of went over pretty quickly, and I'm going to go over them again with you a little bit slower. And that was that the Goldwater rule was that you cannot make an armchair diagnosis, right? Objection. Based on, quote, okay. publicly available records. Do you recall that? Yes. Okay. Now, the records that you reviewed in this case were private, were they not? Yes. And in fact, Dr. Blaustein's records were marked confidential, correct? Yes. And his deposition was marked confidential? Yes. Okay. And uh, Dr. Kipper's records were all marked confidential? Objection yes. leading. And, and uh, I'll sustain. Okay. What, what, if any, labeling was there on Dr. Kipper's deposition? Every, all the documents I reviewed were confidential, and I also signed the confidentiality agreement, so everything I looked at was confidential. Okay. So that, in fact, does not even comport. That doesn't meet the uh, restrictions. Objection that we leading. I mean, so would it be fair to say that you have not, or have you rendered any opinions in this case as an expert witness based on publicly available records? I have not rendered any opinion based on any publicly available records. Thank you. Now, you were asked a number of questions about narcissistic traits and your, di your diagnosis or findings that Mr. Depp exhibited narcissistic traits or had that disorder. Do you recall that testimony? Yes. All right. And uh, the question was asked of you of the, uh, whether if you have five of nine narcissistic traits. Do you remember that testimony? Yes. Okay. Now, one of the ones you testified before was in, for narcissism, it requires admiration, correct? Yes. What, if any, record evidence was there that Mr. Depp requires admiration? The, the very people that surround him need to admire him or they're no longer in his employment or his uh, working circle. Okay. The second one that you discussed was sense of entitlement. Do you recall that testimony? Yes. All right. What record evidence is there that Mr. Depp exhibited, exhibits behavior of needing a sense of entitlement? So, again, thinking that uh, Ms. Heard was marrying him solely for his money and his influence and that that was the case was, in my opinion, very entitled. All right. And the third one you discussed was exploitative. Do you recall that? Yes. Okay. And what is the record evidence that Mr. Depp exhibits behaviors of ex that are exploitative? Again, I think the whole concept of abuse is exploitative. Okay. Uh, the fourth one was lacks empathy. Do you recall that? Yes. And what is the record evidence that Mr. Depp exhibits lacking empathy? To be able to... In, uh, commit intimate partner violence and the control you have over someone. I'm sorry? Can I be heard? Okay.
I'm just going to ask you to give the record evidence of Mr. Depp's uh, lacking empathy that you know of. Yes. Am I allowed, am I allowed to elaborate? You, yes, just, okay. just a little different than what you said before. Okay. Um, so, if, if one does, so I'll make it more direct. So if you're not agreeing with what Mr. Depp has to say, you are no longer useful, okay? Therefore, you don't really care about others for others. You care about others for your benefit. So off and on dismissing Dr. Kipper uh, for Dr. Kipper setting some boundaries on substance use protocol, substance detox, is an example of lacking empathy and not really caring what other people have to say. All right. Another one of the characteristics that you cited was envious. Do you recall that testimony? Yes. What is the record evidence that Mr. Depp exhibits envy? I think jealousy is a good start for that. I think that Ms. Heard wanting to have a career, start with that, beyond what she has, and the jealousy parts of with Mr. Franco and um, and I think others uh, commented this week, Ms. Burstyn, com sorry, last week, Ms. Burstyn commented about things about jealousy. So I think it's pretty apparent. Okay. And th the next one you listed was fragile self-esteem. Do you recall that? Yeah. And what is the record evidence of Mr. Depp so, exhibiting that? So fragile self-esteem would be more along the line of a cluster B trait. I should put that in. It's not necessarily the criteria for narcissism. So it's a, a trait. Um, and basically what that means will be that the combination of poor self-control and rapid mood states is fragile self-esteem, fragile personality, so traits. So it goes in the line of cluster B rather than per se narcissistic. All right. Now, we've seen Mr. Depp during this trial doodling and eating candy. Uh, what, if any, uh, evidence would that suggest that he has narcissistic traits? Objection, Your Honor. No foundation. I'll sustain the objection. Okay. Now, you were asked about the cluster B, and counsel for Mr. Depp came back and said, uh, are you aware Ms. Hurd has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or histrionic personality disorder? Now, you reviewed... You, I think you testified at the beginning, you reviewed the therapy and counseling and medical records for Ms. Hurd, correct? Correct. What, if any, uh, evidence was there that Bonnie Jacobs diagnosed Amber Hurd with either borderline personality or histrionic personality disorder? Objection, Your Honor. I, I, that's fair cross. He, he asked the question. That's fair. Re redirect. It's beyond the scope. It's not, overruled. Thank you. So, I mean, if I could start, Ms. Jacobs uh, demonstrated no type of personality, sort of borderline or otherwise. And on a review of uh, Dr. Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Curry's records. Objections beyond the scope of the question. Uh, it is, I'll, I'll, I'll ask each of them separately. And you you also reviewed the medical the therapy records for Ms. Hurd for Connell Cowan, correct? Yes. What, what if any evidence was there at any time that he diagnosed Amber Hurd with borderline personality disorder or histrionic personality disorder? Not only did he not, he referred to Mr. Depp as a narcissist. Okay. Now, you also re reviewed all of Don Hughes' 
records and her testing, correct? Yes. And what, if any, evidence did you find in any of that extensive testing and note-taking that she had found that Amber Heard had borderline personality disorder or histrionic personality disorder? Objection leading. What, if any? None. Okay. And you also reviewed Dr. Curry's notes and her testing, correct? Yes. All right. And what, if any, evidence did you find in any of Dr. Curry's testing that Amber Heard had either borderline personality disorder or histrionic personality disorder? She had traits. She did not meet the full, on her own evaluation, she did not have the full endorse enough criteria to meet the criteria for borderline personality disorder and or histrionic personality disorder. She definitely had traits. She did not have the disorder by going by the strict number of criteria. All right. Now, you mentioned in response to Mr. Depp's counsel's questions, you started to talk about battered wife syndrome. What is your experience with battered wife syndrome sometimes being mistaken with borderline personality disorder or histrionic personality disorder? Objection compound and leading. Overruled. So battered wife syndrome, which is more sub-syndromal or not quite PTSD, has 70 symptoms of PTSD. And if you hear some of them, you'll see why someone might think that. They do have reliving experiences as if feeling as if the abuse is happening, even if it's not upon reminders of abuse, such as getting ready to use something, getting ready to use a substance or something along that line. They do have hyperarousal. They do have hypervigilance, which is very easily mistaken for the emotional reactivity of borderline personality disorder. They do have avoidance symptoms, so they avoid emotions, activities, people. And if that can't be happening, they start becoming much more anxious, much more hyperaroused. They have disturbances in relationships, which clearly can be an issue. Intimacy problems, again, which could also resemble borderline personality disorder. So those description and traits that were there, A, did not meet the full criteria for borderline, and B, could readily easily be explained by a battered wife syndrome, a form of PTSD. Thank you. Now, you also indicated earlier that you reviewed the deposition of Amy Banks, correct? Yes. And what, if any, determinations did you make based on her deposition from her meetings with Mr. Depp and Ms. Hurd? So Dr. Banks is a professor at Harvard, the leading institution in America for medical schools, who is an expert on intimate partner violence. She had a chance to meet them in relationship counseling. Objection, Your Honor, non-responsive. That's not non-responsive. I said, what, if anything, did she find? Sustained. All right. Tell the jury about Amy Banks, the significance of Amy Banks. So what Dr. Banks found was that she fully believed Ms. Hurd's version of what was going on. Objection, hearsay. I reversed those. Let me do it again. Please tell the jury. Sustained objection. Please tell the jury about the qualifications of Dr. Amy Banks. This is the one who saw both Ms. Hurd and Mr. Depp. Dr. Banks is a professor at, I don't know whether it's assistant associate professor at Harvard University Medical School, one, if not one of the two top medical schools in the world, who specialize in intimate partner violence. She is, above all people, who understand if someone is victim, perpetrator, because she does this, researches this for a living every day. 
and that's that's her qualifications. Can I say what she reported? Uh, then I'm going to ask you, what, if anything, did, did Dr. Banks indicate relating to histrionic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder for Ms. Hurd? Dr. Banks didn't mention anything about personality disorder at all. What she did mention was whom she felt gave a more accurate version of... Objection, Your Honor. What's the objection? That's a credibility testimony. I, I think he can testify to that. I'll sustain the objection. Next question. Okay. What, if anything, did Dr. Banks report, not saying what the ultimate conclusion was, what, if anything, did Dr. Banks say about what was reported to her by Ms. Hurd and Mr. Depp and how they responded? So Ms. Hurd discussed the, um, in trying to, again, as a victim, trying to save the relationship, uh, discussed with Dr. Banks, these accusations, these 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 uh, facts of intimate partner violence, um, Mr. Depp. Objection not. hearsay. I, I think he, he's he's entitled to rely on hearsay, and he's not given what ultimately was. I, he's entitled to it. That's why he can rely on hearsay, but you just can't state the hearsay. So he can rely on it. All right. What if anything did Mr. Depp do in response? Mr. Depp said nothing when Ms. Heard accused him of intimate partner violence, Mr. Depp said nothing. And what is the significance objection of that? Objection hearsay. Sustain the objection. All right. And what is the significance of that? Uh, the significance of that is with... Objection, no foundation. Sustain. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll move on. Um, you were asked about MDMA and what the impact could potentially uh, be of taking eight to ten of these pills. Do you recall? Yes. Okay. And now I'm going to take you to Australia 2015. You've reviewed testimony over that, right, from Mr. Dab, Ms. Hurd, yes. and the number. Okay. Um, were you, do you recall that Ms. Hurd also said that she found dime bags of cocaine in drawers at the end of about three days? Yes. Okay. I'm going to ask you, Michelle, can you bring up 1828, it's already in evidence. And if we could publish that, to, okay, we can, thank you. Um, I'm going to, this is one of the pictures that was taken in Australia, and the testimony's been that these two canvases of Ms. Hurd's were painted completely over. Is that something that could be the impact of having eight to ten tablets of MDMA and combining that with cocaine and alcohol? Objection, no foundation, speculation. The, the foundation's already been laid, Your Honor. That's no, same the objection. Next question. Okay. What if anything, if you look at the painted canvases on this one, what if any uh, uh, evidence is that that reflecting behaviors uh, indicative of taking a lot of MDMA, cocaine, and alcohol. Objection, speculation, no foundation. Same question, sustained. You testified earlier about uh, property, destruction of property. Do you recall that? Yes. Okay, could you tell the jury what, uh, what how that relates to the correlating factors of risk factors for IPV? Again, the destruction of property is a form of psychological uh, abuse, psychological uh, mistreatment. And so destruction of property is used as intimidation and as means of control. Okay. 
Michelle, can you bring up 1829? And this has already been admitted. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Um, and what, if any, evidence uh, does this uh, reflect as correlating behavior to risk factors of IPV? I would say that one that demonstrates uh, a good deal of violence and psychological uh, uh, abuse. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that they're trying to be intimidating. I, I don't think. Objection, Your Honor. Thank you. Please continue. It would be it, people who would misuse ecstasy with without coke, without cocaine, are prone to agitation. Suspicion, jealousy, violence. Um, what we're seeing there would be very consistent with that presentation. Okay. Thank you. Michelle, can you now bring up 1830, 30, I guess? And that's already been admitted into evidence as well, Your Honor. I'd ask that it be published. And what, if any, evidence uh, does this uh, 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 correlate with behavior indicative of IPV perpetration? Again, this is intimidation, psychological abuse, where you're solely trying to emotionally... Objection, Your Honor. Can we be heard? Okay, if you want to. Dr. Spiegel, if you, uh, if you can answer the question, what, if any, evidence is this correlating to the risk factors for IPV perpetrator? Again, I, I think uh, the violence comes through. With Objection, Your Honor. Just the evidence we'll of risk factors, All if right. you can. Evidence of, I'm sorry. The evidence of risk factor would be um, accepting a more than average degree of violence, as well as psychological abuse. Okay. Uh, are you aware of any uh, record evidence of Ms. Hurd writing on walls, mirrors, countertops, or painting canvases? No. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. You can take that down now. Now, you were also asked about Seroquel um, and uh, some of the other prescription medications. Um, did you, during the course of your review of evidence, see the lists of medications that Mr. Depp was on at one point? Yes, I read that list. Michelle, I'm going to ask you to bring up Defendant's Exhibit 301. And Dr. Spiegel, I'm, it's not in to evidence yet. I'm going to ask you to take a look at this. Is this one of the documents that you had that reflected uh, the amount of medication that Mr. Depp was on as of October 26, 2014. Yes. Okay. Um, and this was an email from Debbie Lloyd to Dr. Blaustein, his treating psychiatrist, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, can you tell the jury that, that we've got Seroquel, 50 mg? Can Objection you just tell hearsay. 
can you just is tell it, the uh, I mean, I haven't finished asking the question yet. So, yeah. let's approach. Okay. Michelle, can you scroll up just so I can see all of them at the same time? Thank you. So, Dr. Siegel, if someone was taking 50 mega, meg, are those, is that meg, milligrams, milligrams of Seroquel, 25 milligrams of Seroquel, and 50 mil, milligrams of Seroquel and 50 all in one day, how would that impact them? So, obviously, this is not for sleep because I'm presuming you're not wanting to sleep in the morning, noon, and from four to six, although you're sleeping at night. Uh, what I would say is he's using it for one purpose, as I say, with substance use disorder. They're using it to calm down. They're using it just as a down to relax. And given that you're taking 45 milligrams of Adderall a day, uh, to stay awake, and um, that's more than the uh, prescribed for adults and children for that matter. Um, I, the combination makes very little sense at all to me. Uh, all right. And if a person was taking 300 milligrams of Neurotin, I, I'm going to pronounce that wrong again, uh, four times a day and 600 later in the day, how would that impact? Again, you're looking at medications that are there solely for a substance use disorder patient to get them up and to calm them down. That's all this, is, this regimen is about. Uh, Gabapen doesn't have a psychiatric indication other than, actually doesn't have a psychiatric indication, although it does calm you down. And it, uh, as I may have intimated before, similar to Adderall, uh, Gabapen uh, is also abusable, Simidoquatiapine, Seroquel, is also abusable. So you're getting these kind of unusually calming effects from these medicines while at the same time getting what's called a super therapeutic dose or an excessive amount of Adderall. And for the record book, adults are only indicated with Adderall for the extended release, not the immediate release preparation. And why that's relevant is the immediate release preparation is more abusable. You get more high quicker. The extended release goes out throughout the day, the immediate release gets you up right away and then down. Now, in ADHD, this medicine is very effective. But from what this is being used for, clearly based on the combination, uh, no. All right. Do addicts lie? Yes. All right. Now, you were asked about Mr. Depp passing out. Do you recall reading testimony of Mr. Depp passing out in the bathroom in his vomit? Yes. Okay. Was that, does that help refresh your recollection of yes. what you recall? I, was, right. I mean, for the record book, I don't think that falling asleep with ice cream on you is a... Objection beyond the scope of the question. Overruled. Keep going. I don't think Sarah, taking Saraguel at night and falling asleep with ice cream on you is not what Seroquel is indicated for. It's not meant to put you out in the state where you don't even be able to stay awake to put ice cream away. All right. Michelle, if you can pull up Defendant's 1090. That's already in the evidence. If we can publish that to the dirt jury, Your Honor. Dr. Spiegel, uh, does this look like, uh, I, I mean, would this be evidence correlating with 
behaviors consistent with IPV perpetrator risk factors? This would be Carly, a person who is completely knocked out, and it's usually only one way someone gets knocked out that badly, and that's with pharmacological assistance, whether it be legal or illegal. They make it to the bed. They don't sleep with their head on a game box in a furniture. That, that doesn't happen to people who sleep, no matter how tired you are. I've been a resident in the past, and I, I was up for 40, 45 hours. Objection beyond the scope. It's just explained. Sustained. All right. Uh, Michelle, can you pull up 109.5, please? And I'm, this has been, I'm going to ask you the same question, Dr. Spiegel. Uh, what, if anything, does this indicate relating to risk factors for IPV perpetrators? Again, you know, colloquially passed out, and there's very few ways to get like that without pharmacological assistance, okay. legal or illegal, and or illegal. And then let's pull up 1094, please, Michelle. Defense, and that's also been admitted. And now we have the ice cream picture. And what, if any, indication does this have? Probably could see how I could. Objection, that. speculation, no foundation. What, if any, uh, correlation, uh, what, if any, evidence does this indicate correlative with the risk factors for IPV? Again, this proves one of the major risk factors and precipitating factors for IPV. Uh, Intimate partner violence. Objection. You are moved to strike. All right. Sustained. I'll strike it from the record. Next question. Uh, we'll, we'll just move on. Okay. Um, you were asked about earpieces. Did you do you recall reviewing Tracy Jacobs and Joel Mandel's depositions? Yes. All right. And do you recall them both testifying that Mr. Depp had someone on salary to feed him his lines? Yes. Okay. Now, you've testified that you reviewed a substantial amount of evidence in this case. Did you find any evidence that Amber Heard exhibited conduct or behaviors indicative or consistent with any of the risk factors for perpetrators of IPV? Objection beyond the scope. Sustained. Well, it was suggested with the borderline personality. Sustained. Okay. But you did find that for Mr. Depp, correct? Yes. Okay. And did you find record evidence that Mr. Depp had a substance abuse disorder? Severe substance use disorder. All right. Did any of the questions asked by Mr. Depp's counsel change any of your opinions in this case? Did it, nothing, there, no, not, my opinion has not been swayed in IOTA. Okay. Do you hold them all still within a reasonable degree of medical and psychiatric probability or certainty? Absolutely, yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Spiegel. All right. Thank you. So you can have a CD in the courtroom or you're free to go. Thank you. All right, your next witness. My next witness is Catherine Arnold. Catherine Arnold.
right. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Will you please state your name for the record? Catherine Arnold. All right. And what is your profession? I am a entertainment industry consultant, and I also serve as an expert witness. Okay. And can you please tell the jury your educational background? Yes. So I was in the I've been in the entertainment industry for over 20 plus years. I started uh, as an assistant at ICM, which is one of the largest talent agencies in Los Angeles that represents actors, writers, and directors. And I worked with the talent agent there. And then I also worked at William Morris, uh, for William Morris, as a script reader. So I was working on scripts that they were delivered uh, and submitted to for their actors, writers, directors. Uh, after that, I went into development of film and television projects for a company based in New York called the Maltese Company, which actually produced animated television shows and feature films based on Wall Street, you know, animated product, you know, like toys. And then I went to work uh, with a company called the Goober Peters Company. And Goober Peters was, at the time, one of the largest production companies in Los Angeles. They did films like Batman and Rain Man and Tango and Cash. They did TV shows like Witches of Eastwick. And there I was involved in the development of scripts. We worked with the studio directly in terms of what cast would be attached to the scripts and, and brought directors and talent to those projects. Uh, I then went on to uh, work in, um, it's a lot, uh, I went on to work uh, in the independent film world as a film producer. So I found the material, I would get the financing, I would get the cast and the director attached to the project, we call that packaging, and then we would go and, and obtain financing for that either through equity sources or international sales and financing and bank financing. And then I also uh, went on after that, I produced um, five or six films with actors that you may know, including Salma Hayek, Vincent D'Onofrio, Kirstie Alley, Thomas Jane, Ethan Hawke, and then I worked with a international sales and production company where I was the head of production and I worked again on the development of scripts and the uh, procurement of financing. So I worked in both the independent world and the studio world, meaning independently financed or financed by the big studios like Warner Brothers and Disney and Paramount and such as that. Uh, that's, it, and that's the bulk of my work in the entertainment industry. Did any of your films win awards? A couple of them did. So a couple of the independent films that I uh, produced, one of them won, uh, called The Coriolis Effect, won the Venice Film Festival in its category. Uh, and then I also produced another film that won the Heartland Film uh, Festival Award. It's called the Crystal Award. All right. And what other video production projects have you been involved in? So throughout that time, in between those jobs, I also worked in the corporate world. So large studios like Warner Brothers and Disney and CBS would need corporate videos for their live events. So I would interview executives and interview their talent and then edit the piece together to create video and media for their live sales conferences that they had at that time. Uh, and then I also produced some commercials. All right. And what, if any, experience did you have in corporate relations and licensing? So early on in my career, I worked at the uh, Los Angeles 
Olympic Organizing Committee, and I worked in the licensing department um, where we handled the licensing of the Olympic logo, and we also worked with sponsors and suppliers who were funding those Olympic Games. So it was a lot of contractual negotiations with the use of the license of the logo, as well as raising money for the games and working with those uh, corporate sponsors throughout the two years pre prior to the games and then during the games themselves. And what, if any, experience do you have working on film festivals? Uh, well, I've had films in festivals. I've actually been very lucky to travel the world and gone to a lot of festivals with my films, uh, both here in the United States and elsewhere. And at one point, I was also hired to raise sponsorship funds for the Sundance Film, uh, Sundance film Festival. They had a new program that they were uh, starting to do online festivals. And so I raised about a half a million dollars for them in about a month. All right. And do you have a, a degree, a college degree? Yes, I graduated from UCLA with a, deg a bachelor's degree in economics. What does your current consulting practice entail? So as an entertainment consultant, having been in the business in both the independent and the studio worlds as both a producer and an executive, I work with uh, investment companies and production companies who are looking to navigate the various inroads of Hollywood. It's a pretty... Uh, it's a business that's very different and unlike anything else and very relationship-based. So I use my 20 years of experience to help them get cast, get financing, understand the distribution process, the marketing process, and get them set up uh, to be able to produce their films. Have you ever testified as an expert witness in the field of entertainment industry? Yes. Okay. Approximately how many times have you served as an expert? Uh, I've been involved in somewhere between 85 and 100 cases as an expert from beginning stages to testifying in court. And have you ever testified as an expert on damages and defamation cases? Yes, I have. Okay, and approximately how many times have you qualified as an expert on that? On defamation? Yes. I believe three or four times. Okay. And have you ever been admitted to testify as an expert on damages? Yes. Okay. And how many times have you qualified as an expert on damages? Almost all my cases have some form of damage, uh, relation, you know, economic damage related to the case. So I would say in all of the cases that I've testified in, I've okay. been qualified in damages. Okay. Have you ever served as an expert for both, have you served as an expert for both plaintiffs and defendants? Yes, I have. Okay. How much of your current practice involves consulting as opposed to Expert, serving as an expert witness? So over the last 10 or 12 years, it's been about 50-50, so I spend half my time working as a consultant and the other half working with lawyers on their cases. Okay. Your Honor, I'm going to move to qualify Catherine Arnold as an expert in the entertainment industry standards and practices and related economic damages. All right. Any objection? All right. So moved. Thank you. Now, you have a dual role here as an expert, correct? Yes. Now you're, you're going to be testifying with respect to Mr. Depp's challenges to or, or claims of uh, damages, and you're also going to be testifying to Amber Heard's damages, correct? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to start you with Mr. Depp's claims for damages. Okay. Um, with respect to Mr. Depp's claim damages, on what subject have you been asked to offer your opinion? So I was asked to assess the, any alleged damages that the op-ed piece in the Washington Post that Ms. Heard wrote, whether that have impacted his 
career in any way, particularly did he lose any income or any economic opportunities because of the op-ed piece specifically? All right. And have you been asked to limit that to the period of December 18, 2018, with the date of the op-ed, through November 2, 2020? Yes. Okay. Now, what materials did you review in making your analysis? There were a lot of documents. Uh, I reviewed the pleadings of the case, the complaints, the discovery items, the responses to what they call interrogatories, which are the questions that the lawyers ask uh, both sides. I reviewed uh, Mr. Depp's test, uh, deposition testimony, which there were volumes of that, as well as Ms. Hurd's. Uh, I also reviewed the deposition testimony of, of the experts that uh, were proffered that had to do with the entertainment industry, you know, the agents and the management teams of both both sides. Uh, Ron Schnell, the data expert. I also reviewed emails and texts between the parties, between their families, between their management teams, the audio uh, recordings, the visual recordings that have been presented in this case and the previous cases that have been involved in the last couple of years. Uh, I also did my own independent research from general publicity and press and investigative articles, as well as those that are specific to the entertainment industry, and utilize some entertainment industry-specific sources to get some information that was helpful to my case, to our, to that case. Thank you, Ms. Arnold. Please describe for the jury your uh, uh, observations with respect to Mr. Depp's career trajectory. Well, Mr. Mr. Depp has had an extraordinary career over many years, so it's it's a, it's a long one to look at. Um, obviously, he was a rising star in the late '80s and in the '90s, starting with Twenty One Jump Street, and you've heard, you know, all the films that I'm sure he's been in. Um, he he really started to break through when he worked with Tim Burton, the director, and and of course his character Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean was, you know, world renowned. Um, and probably um, his biggest role, and he was, a, you know, a well-liked, um, both critically and uh, within the industry and within the public, as a movie star. Um, and at the same time, his behavior, and uh, both on and off the set, in his personal life and in his professional life, start to interfere with. Uh, what we would say, what everybody saw was his great talent. And it started, you know, there's some stories of, of, of issues that started back in the 80s and the 90s, but I would say really in the mid-2000s, between 2006 and 10, is when the behavior started affecting uh, his work to a certain extent in terms of lateness on set. Uh, and then as Ms. Jacobs, his talent agent, discussed with you uh, in her deposition, uh, it really started to affect her ability to get roles and, and the industry's willingness to work with him given the issues that he was having with both behavior, tardiness, drinks, drinking and the drug abuse uh, and, you know, other issues in his personal life. So it got more complicated for her to find him work and I think it got harder for production companies and studios to hire him due to the challenges that that would put on a production. And when did Mr. Depp's career downturn begin, based on your review of all the record evidence? Well, again, 
According to Ms. Jacobs, his agent, she mentioned that it started getting more challenging for her around 2010. The lateness on set was being made, she was being made aware of that more and more often from production executives and the producers that she was working with on the Pirates movie. And not only Pirates, it continued on um, on the other films, including Mordecai and uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, and in around 2014, when he had the appearance, uh, it was presumed that he was under the effects of alcohol at the Hollywood Film Awards in 2014. Objection, Your Honor. Non-responsive. She's answering the career downturn of the world. Please continue. Thank you. Um, in 2014, uh, when Mr. Depp appeared in the Hollywood Film Awards, Ms. Jacobs received many phone calls from both producers, casting directors, and production executives asking her what is going on with your client, why, you know, what's going on with his behavior, can we get him under control? And then I think it really started to shift around the Pirates 5 movie in Australia with, again, the lateness and the uh, issues uh, with the finger that stopped production and, and things of that nature, and then it just it got harder and harder. Now, based on your analysis, what has caused Mr. Depp's career downturn? Objection. No foundation. Overruled. Can you please repeat the question? Based on your analysis, what has caused Mr. Depp's career downturn? And I realize you've said a number of those, so just, is there anything else? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, we've talked about the erratic behavior, the tardiness, the drugs and alcohol abuse, and the lawsuits have had a really big impact, not just this lawsuit, but previous lawsuits that Mr. Depp has been involved with because there's a lot of publicity around anything that he does. And uh, every time he has filed a lawsuit, it is brought to light various issues with respect to whatever that lawsuit was about, whether it was about, you know, erratic behavior or domestic abuse or drugs and alcohol and even spending habits. So every time a lawsuit has been filed, the press and the publicity has just been charged up and brought everything back to light. And it's, it, it's been an unfortunate problem for, for on, on that level for the industry to continue to work with him even though all this is out in the, in the public. For the films that were shortly before Pirates 5, how successful were they? We're talking Mordecai, uh, uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, uh, I think you, you testified to some of those, the, the Lone Ranger, Tonto. Right. Injection compound. Overruled. Uh, of course, Mr. Depp has had some extremely, obviously extremely successful films, but also in the, you know, the four or five years prior and, you know, through Pirates, there were films that didn't do well at all and were considered what the industry calls a bomb, which could have been uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, The Transcendence, um, the, the Lone Ranger, uh, and Mordecai were films that just didn't perform, although they were valued in their financing based on Mr. Depp's star quality and acting ability. Unfortunately, they just didn't perform. So as many hits as he's had, he's also had a lot of recent what they call failures in the business. And what, if anything, did Mr. Depp do with respect to showing up for a press conference in Japan for Mordecai? 
Uh, Ms. Jacobs mentioned in her deposition testimony that Mr. Depp didn't show up for the press conference in Mordecai, which he was not only an actor for, he was also a producer, and he didn't show up. Apparently, he was sleeping, so he wasn't able to make it. Okay. Now, what, if any, uh, impact did the Brooks litigation have on Mr. Depp's career? Is the jury familiar with this already, or...? Uh, well, I, I think you can, I mean. Okay, so the Brooks litigation was, uh, it was, um, there was a, a litigation around uh, Mr. Deb had punched someone on one of the, I think it was a location manager on the set of a film called City of Lies. Um, I, I don't know exactly what happened to that uh, litigation. However, of course, again, it was written a lot about in the press and unfortunately came to the forefront that he had, you know, violent behavior yet again. So in 2018, and I'm going to say before the op-ed on December 18, 2018, right. were there, was there any negative articles, negative press about Mr. Depp? For quite a while, when you're a celebrity such as Mr. Depp, you're in the limelight and everybody wants to look at everything that happened. So after every movie or av after every incident, there was usually press. But the, the, the ones that were more significant were the ones in the Hollywood, a couple of them in, in the Hollywood Reporter and uh, one in the Rolling Stones. So in 2017, there was an article in the Hollywood Reporter where the journalist discussed, I think the article was called Pirates of the Caribbean, the Diminishing Returns of Johnny Depp. And that Pirates, the one with the last one was five, right? And that one didn't perform nearly as well as the other previous uh, Pirates of the Caribbean films. And there was some discussion that the character. Objection, hearsay, Your Honor. I think she could explain generally. That's sustained. Okay. Um, l let, me, let me ask you this. When was that Hollywood Reporter article on diminishing returns of Johnny Depp? That was in the spring of 2017. Okay. And you said, uh, and I just want to make sure we understand, how well did Pirates 5 do compared to 1 through 4? It performed less well by over $200 million. Okay. Um, uh, what if any other negative press was there in this time frame, we'll take 2017, 2018, before the op-ed? So in 2018, there was the Rolling Stones article that was an in-depth expose on Mr. Depp's life. Um, again, his erratic behavior, the money he was spending on, on wine. Objection, Your Honor, hearsay. I, I think she can give generally, Your Honor, the negative. Sustain. All right. Um, what if any knowledge do you have of how whether Disney saw the Rolling Stone article? There were emails uh, between uh, the publicity department and the co-chairs and some of the senior executive Disney that they would forward the articles as they came out, both the Hollywood Reporter article and the uh, Rolling Stones article, and they would make commentary and Alan Horn, who is the uh, one of the co-chairs of Disney, used the word sad, and I think one of the other executives used depressing, that their film star was now being shown in this light to the public in a Rolling Stones Action hearsay. Uh, I, I just, All right. Um, was there any more articles about the Pirates of the Caribbean prior to the op-ed in December of 2018? 
There was an article in October 28th, uh, The Hollywood Reporter, October 28th, 2018, where the journalist had spoken to two writers of the film, and they were talking Objection about rebooting hearsay. the franchise. Objection hearsay. She, she's entitled to rely on hearsay, and she's just giving the general, she's not approached. So without saying what the article said, say what it's about. Okay. So in October 28th, the article was, it was called, uh, the article was about whether the Pirates of the Caribbean Objection franchise would be rebooted without oh, oh, overrule. Please continue. The, in the article in October 2018 was about whether or not the Pirates franchise was going to be what they call reboot, re, you know, redefined without Johnny Depp. And that was in a, regarding two writers that were on the, the project. Okay. Uh, and there was one other one I'd like okay, to Okay, go ahead, about. please. So there was another article. Uh, there was an expose on uh, the pres president of production. It was also in The Hollywood Reporter. And this is the one that Mr. Marks, Mr. Depp's expert, pointed to um, regarding the op-ed's impact on, on Mr. Depp's career. And the online article was, as Mr. Marks pointed out, published on December 20th of 2018. But the same article was in print on the morning of December 18th, 2018, which is the same morning of the op-ed. So that Hollywood Reporter article that Mr. Marks used to say- Objection, no foundation. Oh, overruled. Please continue. The, uh, Mr. Marks had used that article to show that Disney wanted to let go of Mr. Depp because of the op-ed, but it was actually printed in the reporter the same morning that the Washington Post article was printed. So there's no way that the Washington Post article had any impact on what the Hollywood Reporter journalist wrote. Okay. So they were on the same morning. They were released simultaneously, interestingly enough. And, and the one that was two days later was the same article just online? Same article, it was just online, yeah. Okay, thank you. Now, what, if anything, was there about press in 2018 relating to the Sun and Dan Wooten and any litigation that right. Mr. Depp so, was bringing? So a lot of press was about the U.K. trial in the lawsuit that Mr. Depp brought against the, uh, the Sun in the U.K. about the wife beater um, title that they used. So there was a ton of press around that, both at the time that it was filed and throughout as documents were being shared with the public, and then, of course, during the trial itself. Okay. And what is your understanding of when the the article, the wife beater article, first appeared? I believe it was in July of 2018, about six months before the op-ed piece. And what is your understanding of when Mr. Depp filed suit against the son and Mr. Wooten? Again, in 2018, I believe. Okay. June, would it be? Would, that, would, would it refresh your... Would it refresh your It was in the spring or summer. Of, it was fairly shortly after the article, so it was long before the op-ed piece was out. Okay. Um, and what, if any, impact did Mr. Depp's litigation in the Sun case have on his career? That was a really tough one on, on Mr. Depp's career because everything, every allegation of abuse and every text, every email, all the audio, all the visual stuff was brought to light and made public. And so not only did the public get, get to see it, but the industry was watching closely. And it's hard for studios, especially a studio like Disney, who's family-oriented, be connected to a star that has 
texts about burnt corpses and violent behavior in, in, in video. So it was, a, it was a, a big conflict for a lot of the people in the industry to how to navigate that if they're going to work with STAR. And what, if any, impact did Mr. Depp's other litigation against Mandel and Bloom have during that time period? As I was trying to say earlier, every time Mr. Depp brings a lawsuit, because he's such a well-known public figure, the spotlight goes on him. So every time a lawsuit was filed, whether it was to his business, against his business manager, against his former lawyer, even when he fired his talent agent, it becomes news. And then everybody talks about what could have preceded that. Why? would that lawsuit have happened? And then they look at the details. So again, the erratic behavior and the financial issues and the uh, drinking and drug abuse was all part and parcel of every one of those. And it was brought to light yet again each time. What is your understanding of Mr. Depp's claims regarding Pirates of the Caribbean 6 and how that impacted? Well. Mr. Depp is claiming that he's lost money on Pirate 6, but Pirate 6 hasn't even been made yet, nor is there even a script that has been what we call greenlit, moved towards production. So I don't know how you lose something that hasn't happened. So I think that's what you're looking for me to And in fact, since Mr. Depp's damages are limited November 2, 2020, and nothing since, and that hasn't happened, uh, is there any way he could claim damages for Pirate 6? Well, you, Objection okay. leading. Overall. Again, you can't claim damages for something that hasn't even happened, whether he was in it or not in it or was going to be in it or might have been in it, whether it was 2018 or now, there just is no Pirate 6. Um, not only did he not have a contract even back in the day, 2018 or after that, no contract had been signed for a Pirate 6. It doesn't exist as we... Objection, as we legal today. conclusion. I... I sustain in the last part. How, how do you know he doesn't have a legal contract? Well, Ms. Jacobs said he didn't have a legal contract, and also his agents at CAA said he, did not, he had not yet negotiated a contract for Pirate 6. Uh, and again, there is no script, so they haven't greenlit it, as we say. They don't have it, have it cast or with the director yet. Okay. Um, based on your analysis, what, if any, impact did Ms. Hurd's op-ed have on whether Mr. Depp uh, could claim a loss for Pirate 6? Zero. Okay. And why do you say that? Again, well, many things. The movie doesn't exist yet, so that's one. But m even as important is that Disney in their file for this trial did not have the op-ed piece as part of all of the information they had read and looked about and discussed. The uh, conversations of Mr. Depp not being in whatever new version of Pirates, the, the franchise that goes forward, those were in discussions long before the op-ed piece even came out. And uh, there are other factors that Disney was considering, the lateness on set, the cost overruns at that cost, which can go from hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars when you have crews sitting around for two to four hours, eight hours, or even several weeks to a month when the finger incident happened. So on top of that, Mr. Depp is an expensive actor. Um, he can earn between 20 and $25 million per movie plus back end. So it's very expensive. So when you put that all together, the rising cost of Mr. Depp as talent, the challenges that they had to keep it on budget because of his lateness and his tardiness and all the other allegations that would affect a brand such as Disney, 
right? Someone talks about a burnt corpse does not necessarily coincide with the brand of Disney. So there were many problems. And interestingly enough, there was a lot of conversation in, uh, at, uh, in, internally in the industry. Or Objection that hearsay. She's entitled to rely on hearsay, Your Honor. Sustained. You can't say that's hearsay. All right. Um, please, please continue without saying what the discussion in the industry was. The Jack Sparrow character had been exhausted in terms of where it could go creatively. And I think the studio is looking for a way for it to renew the franchise, but not necessarily base it entirely on the Jack Sparrow character, which is where it had ended up the last couple of years. Okay. And, and, and evidenced by the, the, the lesser uh, box office of Pirates 5 compared to the earlier ones. Right. And, and was there any article that came out on November 5, 2020, three days after the damages are cut off relating to Pirates of the Caribbean and Mr. Depp's chances of being Jack Sparrow? I think they reiterated the fact that he was probably not going to be in the movie. Okay. Now, what impact has the op-ed had on Mr. Depp's career? Very little. Hardly anybody even knew the op-ed existed before he filed suit. Okay. If anybody that I know, but certainly not Disney. Okay. And um, what impact has the op-ed had on Mr. Depp's Q scores? According to what I read of, of Mr. Alan Jacobs, an expert in uh, statistical analysis, and from my own research uh, on websites that are available to us, Mr. Depp's Q score, or if you're familiar with IMDB, which is uh, Internet Movie Database, which is available to public and to the professional side, uh, his Q score did not change uh, uh, dramatically. It was kind of in the middle of exactly the high and low of his Q scores overall. It was in the middle. It was at like 113, which is where it was a couple weeks before and a couple weeks after. So the op-ed didn't have any effect. Uh, on his Q score, and that was reiterated by Mr. Jacobs in his, his deposition testimony. And then you testified in response to an earlier question I had that that people or that nobody seemed to notice the op-ed until Mr. Depp filed suit. Now that was on March 1, 2019. Do you recall? Yes, that's when okay. the lawsuit was filed. And, and why do you why do you say that they didn't notice until then? Because the op-ed piece for most people in the industry kind of came and went without much fanfare or much, much conversation. It was much more about the, I don't think very many people even know it was written uh, until the allegations were made by Mr. Depp in the lawsuit. Uh, it kind of came in and out of the radar very quickly if anybody even saw it at all. All right. Between December 18, 2018 and November 2020, November 2, 2020, our, our window here, has Mr. Depp continued to star in films? So Mr. Depp, so the article came, the, the op-ed piece came out December 20, 18 and 20 of 2018. In December, uh, I'm sorry, in January and February of 2019, 
he shot a film called Minamata, which was an independent film that he, it was what, what we call a passion project. He loved the, the script and wanted to do it. So he was able to film that after the op-ed piece. And then the Dior campaign, Sauvage, uh, I don't know the exact dates of filming, but I know that it did air throughout 2019. And uh, it's my understanding that he, he still may have that contract with Dior. So he continued that product endorsement. And then in uh, April, or sorry, in the spring, in the fall, I believe it was, uh, Mr. Depp was able to do press uh, for the film Waiting for the Barbarians. He went to the Deauville Film Festival. He went to the Venice Film Festival. He was well received at the press conferences. You know, life was at the same level for him in terms of his popularity over in Europe. They were still, uh, he was still working on press for the films. And then, of course, he was scheduled to film uh, Fantastic Beasts in, in early uh, November of 2020. And that's no longer the case, is that correct? Objection, Your Honor. What's the objection? Can we approach? Okay. And that's no longer the case, correct, on Fantastic Beasts? It, I don't want you to say anything more than that. That's no longer It's the, no longer the case, correct. He's no longer in that film, correct? He was paid for it, but he does not star in the film. Okay, thank you. Now, what, if any, effect did the op-ed have on Mr. Depp's fan following? I don't know if it, I don't think it had any effect on his fan following. Again, his Q scores didn't shift, and he clearly has a strong fan base. In your opinion, what or who has caused the damage, if there is any, to Mr. Depp uh, on his career and reputation between December 18, 2018 and November 2, 2020? Objection, speculation. Over, overruled. Mr. Depp. And why do you say that? Well, again, filing the lawsuits, bringing to light the issues, is Mr. Depp doing that uh, on his own accord? Uh, and any statements that were made uh, by his team, Mr. Waldman or anyone else, is associated with Mr. Depp. And those statements that came out, the defamatory statements, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, were also Action. put out by Mr. Depp's team. So in actuality, he's causing his own demise by bringing these lawsuits forward and continuing to kind of ignite the fire of negative publicity around both of them. Okay. Are all of your opinions to within a reasonable degree of probability or certainty with respect to Mr. Depp's damages? Yes. Okay, thank you. Now I'm going to move you to Amber Heard's damages. Um, with respect to Amber Heard's claims for damages, on what subject have you been asked to offer your opinion? So I was asked to look at the reputational harm and economic loss that Ms. Hurd incurred due to the defamatory statements that Mr. Waldman, on behalf of Mr. Depp, made in April of 2020 and again in June of 2020. And what materials did you review in forming your opinions? Again, many of the same materials that I reviewed uh, for Mr. Depp's case, which was the deposition testimony, the pleadings, the discovery, all of that was included, as well as 
expert testimony that was based on statistical analysis of negative social media campaigns that were created as well as what happened. I talked to Ms. Hurd's agents. I read their depositions. I talked to her publicist. I read her deposition. I talked to Ms. Hurd herself to get a first-person accounting of what happened from her perspective after those defamatory statements were made. And then I looked at the, you know, again, uh, emails back and forth and texts back and forth uh, with uh, the studio Warner Brothers and other producers that the management team is working with to get Ms. Hurd more work. Now, before I go into the questions that I'm going to ask, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of define this so that the, we're all on the same page going through it. We've The jury has seen the three defamatory statements, their defendants, 1245, 1246A, and 1247. Um, and I'm just going to refer to them as the Depp slash Waldman statements in asking you all these questions. Will you understand what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, good. Um, Please describe Amber Heard's career prior to the publication of the Deb Waldman statements. So Amber's had uh, a long career for someone who is not, you know, is, is fairly young still. She was in over 50 productions, uh, in, I believe including Aquaman and Justice League, but let's just say close to 50 productions. Uh, well, certainly 50 productions before the uh, defamatory statements were made. She had, you know, a consistent working actor's career. Her agents were strategic as she started getting more work that they wanted her to work with better and better directors to have, you know, the Danish part. The Danish Girl is a, a film that had a, a strong director and a strong uh, critical acclaim. And then she went from that to getting Justice League, which is on the bigger budget, is the bigger scale movie, and then, of course, Aquaman and Aquaman 2. So her career was following a very nice, steady rise, and she was on the precipice of a meteoric rise with, the, you know, with Aquaman and Aquaman 2 prior to the statements. Was Aquaman a successful film in terms of box office sales? Uh, Aquaman was an extremely successful film. It made over a billion dollars, and I believe it is the highest grossing DC comic film ever. Okay. Now, what if any accolades did Amber receive for her role in Aquaman? And I'm going to call it, sometimes I'll call it Aquaman 1 just to make sure we don't get confused. But. Right. So in Aquaman 1, there were many emails from the director and the producer and objection hearsay she's just characterizing your honor she's not quoting them well i don't know where it's going i'll overrule at the moment thank you uh, she got emails from the director and the producer stating that they loved her performance objection hearsay you, you can't say what the emails say but you can summarize them or characterize Is them can you do that accolading emails emails mm -hmm. of accolade from her, uh, from the director and the producer. Objection, hearsay. Overruled as to that. Thank you. Okay. Um, what type of press opportunities did Amber have prior to the Depp Baldwin statements? So the, the press really loved working with Amber. She was on the cover of many magazines after The Danish Girl, after Justice League, after Aquaman. She was the cover girl, I think it was, of. Um, Marie Claire or Elle in, in the UK. 
she had a cover story of a big magazine in Mexico and Australia. They were, you know, some magazine, one magazine called her Woman of the Year, another one called her Role Model of the Year. So she got a lot of press. You know, she did a lot of press, both in magazines, but also on the press tours and the press junkets that she did for the films. And, and were some of those California style, Marie Claire, Elle, uh, Shape, Glamour? Yes, there was a lot Objection of them. leading. Overall. And there was a lot of them, so I, I, mean, I you know, don't remember all of them. But it was, you know, GQ, Elle, Marie Claire, you know, the big magazines, both here, the UK, um, East Europe, Eastern Europe, in Latin America, and in Australia. And what about after the release of Aquaman, which was December 2018? How was her press then? Well, the press tour was doing well, and they wanted to give her a lot more press. And I think up until the defamatory statements came out, she was on deck to do a lot of press. Uh, and then it, it Objection, kind of, no foundation. Overruled. Please continue. So the press and the request for press went silent after the defamatory statements were made, and which then the negative social media campaign ensued after that. Now, what factors relating to social media does the enter entertainment industry rely on when considering an actor for a role? Social media becomes a big part of how studios decide to use an actor or an actress in a film because they want to know how the general public feels about them. They want to know what the consumer feels about that actor. So when there's positive social media, that's a good thing for the actor. When there's negative social media, it can be very bad because not only can social media be directed at the actor or the actress themselves, but it can also be directed towards the movie, towards the movie company, towards the product that the actor or actor is working with. So it becomes very complicated and it can get very messy to continue working with an actor or an actress if there's a lot of negative social media around them. Okay. And after the Depp Waldman statements, what happened on social media? After the Depp Waldman statements, social media blew up with negative tweets and Instagram posts and, you know, Facebook posts and Snapchat and trolling, as we call it. It was just negative. Uh, according to Mr. Schnell, there was over 1.2 million negative tweets about Amber using hashtags that used the words in the statement of the Deppwald statements, uh, Depp Waldman statements, excuse me, um, that 1.2 million negative statements between April of 2020 and November or January of 21. That's a lot of negative publicity. And it, and there was just a lot of what we call noise around um, Ms. Heard and her work of any kind. Can you please describe to the jury what negative, what a negative social campaign is? So a negative social campaign would be when a, a fan base or in this case, according to both the forensic statistical analyst, as well as Ms. Hurd's agents and pro uh, the product that she was working with, L'Oreal, and her publicist, it was a campaign that included both live uh, accounts, live Twitter, you know, people that actually have our individuals, as well as what we call Objection. Plots. May I be heard? All right, here I come. All right. Other than the bots, please describe the rest of the social media, the negative social media campaign. What's the fan base was very energized by Mr. Is it the Deppwald 
state deputy. Yeah, let me let me just Deb Waldman. I'm 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 yeah, sorry. I, I got my brain I, right now. It doesn't matter. Why don't I do this? Let me formulate a different question. How has the negative social media campaign been used against Amber Heard since the Deb Waldman statements? Great. So the negative campaign has been used both to, you know, let's fire Amber off of Aquaman to the product that she was had an endorsement contract with with L'Oreal the makeup and every time that L'Oreal mentioned Amber Heard and the product together they would get harassed her publicist company was harassed uh, any kind of movie that she was related to or television project that she was related to got negative attention from the social media world even the uh, the charities that she was involved with were getting hammered, if you will, or bombarded by negative social media, which made it difficult to work with Amber on any level because negativity was brought to their product, service, or uh, film. Okay. And is that negative social media campaign ongoing to this day? Yes. Okay. And you were talking a little bit before, I think, about. Uh, remove Amber Heard from Aquaman 2. What were your observations with respect to that in connection to the Waldman Depp's, the Depp Waldman statements? Again, the, the, the statements, uh, I'm sorry, the social media campaign, whether called, you know, remove Amber from Aquaman or, you know, neg negativity for her relationship in that film, it always tended to use words that were inside the defamatory statements. They became hashtags. Right, so you know, if it was said in this in the in the defamatory statement, they were often reiterated in the tweets and the posts. Okay, how difficult is it for an actor to repair this type of negative social media? Well, first of all, it has to stop. Okay, so once it stops, then an actor and their team can work slowly and patiently in both. Maybe it's press interviews, maybe it's relationship with charity, maybe it's a small role in a movie and they do well and they, they kind of rebuild their career. But it can take two, three, four, five years or more to rehabilitate your career. But first and foremost, it needs to stop. The, you know, it, it just needs to stop so that they can, the, the consumer can get beyond it and then they can reactivate their career by doing their work again. Describe Amber Heard's reputation after the Depp Waldman statements. Well, the reputation, I guess, depends on who who you're talking to. But in the public, it's been very negative. Um, in the industry, they like her work, but it's very they can't work with her right now again because every time her name is mentioned, the negativity flares up again. So it doesn't make sense for them to try to make a movie which costs millions of dollars and then have a lot of negativity towards the film or the TV show or the product. So her world has been silent in terms of opportunities and even things have, that she wanted to work on are no longer available to her. Has Amber been able to obtain roles after the Depp Waldman statements? For a long time, no. Uh, very recently she was able to do a small independent film um, from some people out of um, who get their financing out of Europe, uh, but up until that, no, she has not worked. Now, based on the fact that Amber came out of Aquaman, what should her opportunity? What would you have expected following the release of Aquaman, December two thousand eighteen, uh, up 
to what's going on now. I like to call Aquaman really, you know, Amber Heard's star, star is born moment. It was that moment where not only was she a good actor, but she was now world-renowned because she was in the most successful film almost of all time, if not all time, and certainly for DC Comics. She was on the poster with the very handsome Jason Momoa, and they were this couple, and she was strong and beautiful, and it was just this extraordinary moment for her to, for her to career to take off, right? You know, her agents were excited, the producers were excited, uh, everybody just wanted to hit the ground running and let's do more, let's do more work. What if anything happened to Amber's participation in Aquaman 2? So for a moment in time, in February 2021, uh, there were conversations that Amber's, I'm going to be technical with you, her option for employment was not going to be exercised. So they may not have hired her again, even though she had a contract for it. There was some question as to whether she was going to be hired again on Aquaman 2. All right. And did ultimately then she still get hired for Aquaman 2? She did. Her management team fought very hard, and they ultimately uh, ended up hiring her, but also not only because of what her management team did, but Jason Momoa, the star, and James Wan, the director, committed to her in an email saying, if we are involved in this movie, you Objection, will Objection, no foundation, hearsay. I'll sustain the Don't say what the email said, just summarize it or describe it, please. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand this world. Um, so... Her management team worked hard, and Jason Momoa and the director were adamant that she was in the Objection film. Objection hearsay. Worked hard. I think that's, in the Your Honor, she has to be able to say that. Well, sustain as to hearsay. Okay. Right. Question. So what, if any, uh, assurances did Mr. Momoa and Mr. Juan give Amber that she would be in Aquaman 2? Objection hearsay. Sustained. What, if any, are you aware of any chemistry issues uh, between Amber and Jason Momoa from Aquaman? According to the fact that they did a chemistry test with Ms. Heard, Ms. Heard and Jason Momoa in order for her to be hired, that is a good indication that they thought the two of them had good chemistry. Uh, obviously, when you look at the movie, they have good chemistry, and the poster, they have good chemistry. So I think it's general awareness that they had great chemistry. And what, if anything, uh, would also suggest, uh, with respect to Aquaman 2, uh, that Jason Momoa believed they had good chemistry? He wanted her in the movie. Um, okay. Here's the I think she, she has to be able to rely on Sustained. I'll strike it from the record. Uh, in your review of all of the record evidence, what, if anything, did you say see in writing anywhere that there was ever any chemistry or creative issue with Amber Heard and Jason Momoa from Aquaman 1? There were no communications whatsoever that there was no chemistry okay. between the two. And, and what, if anything, did you, in all the record evidence, did you see that the producer or Jason Momoa did not want Amber Heard in Aquaman 2? I did not see any evidence of that. Okay. In fact, the opposite, correct? Correct, again. I, Overruled. Thank you, Your Honor. 
Now, what, if any, leverage did Amber Heard have to renegotiate her salary under the circumstances of the discussions you were talking about with not exercising her option? She had zero leverage. She was fighting for her life to stay in the film. Okay. Now, is it typical for an actor to be able to negotiate an increase in their salary after a successful franchise? So you may know this already, and so I apologize if you've heard it before. I don't know what's been brought to your attention, but in a franchise such as a potential franchise as Justice League and Aquaman, the customs and practice is that the uh, studio will make a an agreement with the actor that incorporates potential future films. So if Justice League does well, they want to know what they're going to pay the actor for the next one and the next one and the next one. And in those uh, successive terms in the contract, the fee for that actor customarily goes up. It can go up by 10%, 20%, 100%. It could double, what have you. And in the case, as um, uh, Ms. Uh, Kovacevic stated in her testimony, that in a successful franchise, that a movie that's made a billion dollars, the actors, uh, agents will go back and try to renegotiate that upcoming price tag. So if it was going to be X, they might want it to be 2X or 3X. And that's very standard in the industry to renegotiate your contracts when there's many films in one single contract that each have their own price points. What if any other actors in Aquaman 1 were able to renegotiate their contracts? Uh, Jason Momoa renegotiated his contract very significantly from Aquaman 1 to Aquaman 2. Do you know roughly how much more? Uh, it went up from the, you know, let's, uh, somewhere between 3 and 4 million to 15 million. Okay. Did Amber have a contract for Aquaman 1? Yes. How much was she paid for Aquaman 1? Aquaman 1, she was paid $2 million. Okay. And if. It, and did that same contract uh, provide for if she was in Aquaman 2? I'm sorry, I, I apologize. Aquaman 1, I believe she got $1 million. Aquaman 2, she was supposed to get $2 million. I apologize, the numbers, there were a lot of numbers in that one contract. So Aquaman 1, it was $1 million. Aquaman 2, it was going to be $2 million. All right. Now, based on your experience uh, and knowledge in the industry, how much would Amber Heard have been able to negotiate uh, her contract, but for the Depp Waldman statements. For Aquaman 2, I'm asking. Right. Well, as you can see from Mr. Momo's contract, that went up exponentially, up to $15 million. Miss um, Heard, I don't know if she would have gotten $15 million for the movie, but she certainly could have increased it by $1 or $2 million or even doubled it. So if it was two, it could have been four or even five or six, depending on the enthusiasm if it had just rolled from Aquaman 1 to Aquaman 2 without any of this negativity that was created by the, Walman, the Deb Waldman statements. What if anything happened to Amber's role in Aquaman 2 after the Deb Waldman statements? It was diminished. Okay. Now, why would Amber have been featured uh, more prominently in Aquaman 2? Objection, no foundation. It's only a foundation. Okay. Um, what usually determines, or, 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 are you able to speak to whether Amber should have been or would have been more prominently featured in Aquaman 2? Well, a couple of things. Just Wait, I, I'm trying to get your foundation. But are you able to speak to that? Yes. Okay. And please tell the basis of that and then your opinion. 
So there's two things. When two actors do well in a romantic relationship and, you know, they get married or they're going to have a baby, you know, you want to follow that through because part of what did well in Aquaman was not only the action sequences, but to have a strong female character having a relationship with a strong male character, it's very empowering, right? So that was working for them in the first place. The poster of Aquaman that went around the world was the, one of the main posters was of the two of them together standing proud and strong, right? Being that couple. And so naturally, as you go and develop scripts in the industry, you want to follow on the things that are working. And according to Ms. Hurd, when she read the first script for Aquaman 2, she had a strong romantic arc for the entire film. And then she also got to do some great action sequences at the end of that storyline in that script. So she was per featured predominantly throughout the script of Aquaman 2 when she first read it. All right. And then what happened? Well, she didn't hear anything, so she wasn't getting the scripts when everyone, her colleagues were getting the scripts. She heard that through her agents. And then when she got the script, um, it was pared down from the first script dramatically. They had her in the hospital very shortly in the, in the first part of the movie called Act One. They had her in the hospital, and they pretty much had her in the hospital, and then she was going to do this action sequence in the end. She trained five hours a day for several months for the trainer to do this big action sequence. And then when she got to set, two things happened. One, the costume designer said, I don't know what happened to your role. It got diminished. Objection hearsay. And more importantly, though, this big action sequence that she was going to do in, in, at the end of the movie, in the third act, was cut out, and they took it away from her. So it was radically reduced from what it was in the script and what she even trained for uh, while she was preparing for the movie. And what, if any, changes were made to the storyline? I haven't seen the movie yet okay. specifically, so I can't really speak to that yet. All right. And when you say she was in the hospital, what do you mean by was she injured in the first scene? I believe that in the in the first act of the movie, she was injured somehow or had something to do with the baby. I don't know exactly. I'm just going with what Ms. Hurd told me about was that she ends up in, in the hospital early in this new Aquaman 2 movie and doesn't really come out till the end to kind of wrap things up. But all of the interactions with you know Momoa's character and the certainly the action scenes were taken out. Okay. Um, how has Amber typically been involved in promotions for her films? As we talked about earlier, actively involved in the press and the promotion, whether that was on the press junkets, what we call when they tour the world and, they, and the actors tour together and, and answer questions from the press at various screenings and film festivals. And then also she was you know, on the cover of magazines, usually after her, her movies, especially after Justice League. And how was the promotion of Aquaman 2 affected by the Depp Walden statements? Amber has not been involved in any of the promotion that's been done to date, or very little, particularly in a, in a teasers that I've seen, we call, you know, short little films about the making of and so forth. She's not featured in them. And also, very specifically, there was a big event that Warner Brothers um, put on during the fandom. I think it's a DC fandom event, which is a big kind of like Comic-Con style event. And they invited all of the actors, or the majority of the actors that had strong roles in film to participate, both in the posters and the artwork, and also participate at, at, at DC fandom. And Ms. Heard was not invited to either be in the poster or be at the event. And in fact, they told her she cannot come. Now, can, can this hurt Amber's career, not being allowed to be in any of the promotional materials? Absolutely. I, it means that 
nobody knows about her. She doesn't have the same part in the film. It's not going to take her on to her next movie. She's not being associated with the tremendous amount of promotion that's going to be made for this, you know, movie that everybody's looking forward to see. So she's not a part of it because of this negative campaign. How have the Depp Waldman statements affected any other films or TV project promotions for Amber? So uh, prior to the defamatory statements, but either around the, you know, after or around the time that Aquaman 1 uh, came out, she was in the, the TV show called The Stand. It was based on a Stephen King novel. So big book, you know, going to be a big TV show. And again, Miss um, Heard didn't do any press or promotion for that for the same reasons. And what if any plans were there to have Amber Heard on the cover of L.A. Style of relating to Stand before the Deb Baldwin statements? Right. So Ms. Heard was in, and uh, they had done an article about her participation in this TV show, The Stand, the Stephen King novel-related uh, uh, TV show, and they were going to give her the cover picture and cover story, and they took that away. I don't know if it even if the article existed, but they certainly took away the cover picture and the cover story. Okay. How have the Depp Waldman statements affected press requests for Amber? There aren't any. So, so yes, they affected it because there used to be a lot of press requests and now there are, aren't any. Has Amber Heard obtained any roles since the Depp Waldman statement? Again, uh, uh, for many years, no. For a good period of time, or a year and a half, two years, until she got this small movie called the uh, Into the Fire. Has Amber obtained any studio movie roles since the Depp Waldman statements? No. How, if at all, have Amber's philanthropic opportunities been affected by Depp Waldman statements? Again, she had some passion projects. She was invited to do some charity work, and she also had her own passion projects that she, you know, loved and wanted to be involved with and even travel for. Uh, but they decided it wasn't going to be a good idea because every time she appears anywhere, the social media negativity cam you know, campaign starts up again. So she hasn't been able to do any for charity work. What is an endorsement? So an endorsement is when a, an actor associates themselves with a product, either for print promotion or commercials, you know, like Jennifer Aniston doing the water, you know, or uh, Matt McConaughey doing the car commercial. That's a product endorsement. He's paid to say that the product is good and be associated with the product. How, how important are those endorsements to the actors in the entertainment industry? Well, very, very important on two levels. One, they bring a good amount of income to them when they're not shooting a movie, so it's a good way to make money in between film roles. And then also, it shows the studios and the production executives and the financiers that the actor is relevant in the community because they're being associated with the product. So if it's a well-known product, that's really great. If it's a medium product, that's great, and so forth and so on. So you want to be, if you can, and if that's something that you like to do, not everybody does, but if they like to do that, then they can get a lot of um, value out of those product endorsements because then the studios see that there's a connection with the consumer, not just on the film, but also with product. Did Amber have any endorsement activities prior to the publication of the Depp Waldman statements? Yes. Please explain. So Amber was hired by uh, L'Oreal to be a product and uh, endorse their product, the makeup line. And she had a $1.5 million contract for two years. Um, and they were able to 
uh, work. They had 20 days of her work. You know, they had the right to, to work with her for 20 days. And uh, she started the work. And then when the defamatory statements came out, they essentially put a pause on working with her. So they no longer brought her to photo shoots. They no longer had do her do public events for the product. And it basically said, we love you, but we can't work with you right now because it's just too objection much. Objection to hearsay. All right. I, I'll sustain the objection. No okay. question. Um, have, Mr. have the Dick Waldman statements affected that deal in any way? With L'Oreal. Well, A, they put it on pause and haven't done any of the work, so she's not out there in the public eye uh, related to the product. And they uh, have decided to continue working with her at some point once, as I said, this all quiets down, this trial is over, and, and hopefully the negative campaigns will stop. Uh, so they extended her contract, but they did not pay her for that extension. Okay. And has Amber been hired for any other endorsement deals since the Deb Waldman statements? No. Now, did you assess Amber's losses as a result of the Depp Waldman statements? Yes. What did you do to assess those? Well, first of all, I looked at Amber's career directly, so I wanted to see, you know, as I said earlier, she worked consistently, and then she was on this kind of very large upswing with the big movies, Justice League and Aquaman and, and all of that, and the stand with the Stephen King project. Um, and then it stopped, right? So her work stopped. And then I looked at other actors that kind of grew up at the same time frame, grew up meaning they started their career and had the same time frame to start going from the smaller projects to the well-known director projects to the big movie projects. And I looked at those actors and I then saw after they had their stars for a moment, if you will, I wanted to see where their careers went. So I looked at several actors to see, including Jason Momoa, his, her, her co-star, to see what happened in their careers after such a successful film as Aquaman uh, came out. And why did you use that method of analysis? It's a very common methodology in the entertainment industry to work with what we call comps. I think Ms. Kovacevic even used that word comp. Um, for, so you, you know, with films, you try to find comparable films. With actors, you look to see comparable actors. So you can kind of, it's not a distinct actual, this is going to happen, but this is the probability with a reasonable certainty that with the right management team that she had and her acting ability and her looks and the press that she was getting and should have continued to get, that her career would have been similar to these other actors. Have you used that method in other cases in which you've been an expert on damages? Yes, I have. Who did you select as comparable actors for your comparison? Well, I wanted to look at actors that were in superhero films that had done really well at the box office. So I, I looked at Jason Momoa, her co-star. I looked at Gal Gadot, who was, uh, is, is in Wonder Woman. Uh, I looked at um, Anna de Armas, who was in um, uh, bah, 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 bah. Blade Runner. Thank you, Blade Runner. Um, I looked at Zendaya, who was in Spider-Man, and I looked at Chris Pine, who was in Star Trek and also Wonder Woman. About the you know similar age range, all attractive actors, all with good acting skills, all able to do stunts. So I was. It's not. There are not that many actors to look at who do superhero characters. So it was a small pool to work from, but I took a wide range from those actors, both men and women, to see what was what could potentially happen to Ms. Hurd's career. Do you consider all of them to be identical for purposes of measurement? Oh, absolutely yeah. not. I mean, no two actors are identical. You can only look with that within a range of characteristics and uh, work history, management team, and so forth. 
And, and we've heard from Mr. Banya. Uh, did you review Mr. Banya's Q-score analysis regarding the comparables you used? Yes, I did. And what, if any, opinions have you formed in reviewing Mr. Banya's analysis regarding the comparables you selected? So Mr. Banya looked at calendar years to assess so what happened in December of, you know, 2017 or 18 or 19, what happened in June, what happened in a very specific time frame, which works on some statistical analysis, but when you're talking about actors and their relationships to Q scores, Q scores are related to the actor's viability in the consumer's mind, if you will, how well known or how much they're coming up in conversation. And so Mr. Banny did not look at time periods of the actors that I compared them with to the film when it came out, so like right after the success of their big film, what was their Q score, but moreover he just looked at them in a year range. So it doesn't coincide from actor to actor just because you look at it over time. You have to look at it specifically after each of those individuals box office success with a particular film, you look at the Q score high or low during that, and then you look at how low it drops, say a couple months afterwards, and then if it comes back up, if they have another film or another event that brings them into the, 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 the limelight again. So it's not about time, it's a, a related to a specific activity or event, and he did not do that. Okay. What did your comparison show in terms of films that those actors had been in since their breakout roles? I'm talking about the comparables. In terms of their, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand. Uh, well, what what happened with these other actors after they had their? So oh, unrelated to Q scores, were, right? Right. right. Uh, okay, sorry. So all those actors' careers, the ones I mentioned, they all either were a steady rise or even a meteoric rise in in terms of where their career went after their Star is Born moment. Then they got some other good films, and maybe they got another film that performed extremely well. So it was a range, but they all were on an upward trajectory, without a doubt. And what does this mean for Amber? With a reason, I mean, the way that the, the, the kind of industry works is usually, unless there is an, a force majeure or some really negative event, her career should have followed that same upward swing in, in about the same time frame, give or take six months to a year, but you, it would be very reasonable to, to believe that her career would have been on an upward trajectory within the range of those other actors. What, if any, comparisons did you make respecting endorsement deals of these actors with Amber? You know, again, all those actors that we've talked about all did multiple endorsement deals after their big movies or after their big series of movies. You know, Jason Momoa is on, you know, Rocket Mortgage and Harley Davidson as well as, you know, five or six other companies. Zendaya is Lancome and Fashion and Water and Jewelry and Gal Gadot and Chris Pine and, 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 and Anna de Armas. They've all done either a couple or many and all of them have associated with a large brand. Uh, unlike Amber, who hasn't done even been able to work on the one contract that she had. She certainly didn't get any others. So what did your analysis show with respect to Amber Heard's losses but for the Depp Waldman statements? They were significant if, if we follow the trajectory of her, you know, colleagues. Well, let's start with at Aquaman 2. What would she have realized there? Well, as I stated earlier, so um, from Aquaman 1 to 2, it went from a million dollars to two million dollars, right? So that was a pre-written contract. It doubled. So the agents 
were very excited after the success of Aquaman to go and negotiate a much higher uh, fee like they did for Jason Momoa. They weren't able to do that. So in that instance alone, it was more than likely a $2 million loss just from that movie alone. So two to four, you'd said before? It could have been four. Could Objection have been leading. Sustain. Okay. Um, what about other films? So once, as as Amber's agent, Ms. Kovacevic, Okay, Kovacevic. Okay, I was doing okay. Uh, Ms. Kovacevic said that once you get that quote of the $2 million from Aquaman 2, that kind of was like the baseline for any other movie she would have done. So any other studio movie would have started from there, and depending on the success of Aquaman and how much press she did, maybe she worked on another great director, independent film, whatever, that $2 million for a studio film and had it jumped to $4 million, uh, with the renegotiation, that then would have been the basis. So any future studio film uh, that she would have done, any big budget film, would have been the basis at $4 million and then most likely have gone up from there if she was able to get others, which she should have, just like the other actors. Let's talk about TV for a minute. What would those losses have included? Well, on The Stand, which was, you know, about the same time as Aquaman, but got the press and the promotion got cut off because of the defamatory statements and the negative campaign. She got paid $200,000 an episode on the stand. So on a TV series of nine episodes, it's $1.8 million. So if she had, again, done other TV shows, it's very likely that whether she worked with a streamer or with one of the networks, that that fee would have gone up from there. Her agents would have been able to use the leverage of the success of Aquaman 2 to put her, if she had done another television show, given rise to even a higher episodic fee. Some actors go up to $1 million an episode. Jason Momoa uh, in, in his TV show got $1 million. So there's a, you know, an exponential range of where she could have gone. All right. What about endorsements? Same thing. You know, all the other actors were doing over the course of a couple years period, you know, anywhere from five, six, seven other endorsement deals and Ms. Heard realistically should have gotten endorsement deals in other categories. L'Oreal is makeup, so probably not in makeup, but maybe water or clothing or jewelry or wellness or it could have been anything else. And so she too should have, with a reasonable degree of certainty, gotten other contract deals based on the success of the films that she's been associated with and the TV shows she's been and associated with. And what would that have translated into in terms of dollars? So in terms of dollars, okay, so if it was $1.5 million for L'Oreal for a two-year contract, and let's give her four other $1.5 or $2 million deals, which all those other actors, you know, especially the ladies, have gotten, then you're looking at an additional $8 million of income over time. I'm not saying this is in one period. We're looking at as far back as the defamatory statements of 2020 to now, which is almost two years. And again, as I said earlier, even when this is quiet, it will take three to five years for her to rehabilitate her career if she can. So we have to look at it as a period of a minimum of five years. So when I say, eight million dollars for endorsement contracts it would have been over time okay. uh, what if any losses relating to production or film activities well again these other actors that we looked at uh, and there's a wide range of them some of them did bigger films and some of them did gigantic films but 
it is very reasonable to assume that once you are in an, an Aquaman-style film, you'll either continue to do those, right? Some of these franchises, as we know, go for five, six films, or she would probably have been in another studio film that had nothing to do with Aquaman. But again, so over the course of five years, it's very reasonable to consider that she would have been in at least one film a year at a minimum of $4 million, because that's what her precedent would have been had she renegotiated. And it's important to note that in her, in her Justice League contract, had there, if there is a Aquaman 3, her price is set at $4 million. So it's very reasonable to assume and to believe that if she did a film a year for five years at a minimum of $4 million a year without any negotiation, which probably would have happened, but let's just say that baseline that would be another $20 million over that time frame. What, if any, opinions do you have about Amber Heard's earning power over time? That it, it would continue to rise. It's, it's customary in the industry, as I've talked about earlier, that the negotiations, um, especially with her agents at William Morris, her fees would have gone higher. So I'm just using the baseline without any ability to foresee in the future that I already know she got negotiated for $4 million from Aquaman 3. So if we use that as a baseline minimum, but it very well would have gone up had her agents done the work that they wanted to do. So combining all of these opinions and calculations that you've had, what if any range are the losses you are estimating for Amber Heard but for the Depp Waldman statements? Right, so again, it's really important that, that I looked at, and, and hopefully you understand this, that it's over time, right? So let's just say a minimum of five years that we're going to talk about these losses, and it could be more, but at minimum, if you look at the film, the television, and the endorsement contracts, it's very likely that Ms. Hurd should have earned between 45 and $50 million over that time period. Are all your opinions to within a reasonable degree of probability or certainty? Yes. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Let's go ahead and take our afternoon recess, ladies and gentlemen. Do not do any outside research and do not discuss this case with anybody. May I step you, down? Yeah, you can, you can step down. That's fine. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. That's all right. I appreciate it, ma'am. Go ahead. The minor court is still in session, please. All right, so let's come back at 4 o'clock. We can do that, all right? Thank you. Your sound mixer? Excuse me? Your sound mixer? Yes. All right, we're ready for jury? Do I stand? It's up to you. All right, you can be seated. 
All right, cross-examination. Good afternoon, Miss Arnold. Hello, how are you? Uh, so you repeatedly testified about what uh, you were asked as the Depp Waldman statements. Miss, you don't have any knowledge whether Mr. Depp knew of the statements that Mr. Waldman made. Do you? Only with association with Mr. Waldman, correct. You don't know when the first time Mr. Depp learned about those statements? I don't know. No. And the association you're talking about is that Mr. Waldman worked from time to time as Mr. Depp's attorney, correct? Action, Your Honor, may we approach? Okay. All right. I understand that you're uh, testifying as a damages expert and wear two hats, talking both about Mr. Depp's damages and about uh, Ms. Hurd's purported damages. Um, let's talk about Mrs. Her Ms. Hurd's damages first. You understand that you have to testify as to damages that resulted from the Waldman statements, correct? That was my analysis. Most of your testimony, however, was just simply testimony about things that occurred after the Waldman statements. That's what I was tasked with, yes. Right. The, the mere fact that the mere fact that there were activities after the Waldman statements doesn't establish that the Waldman statements caused any damages, does it? When you look at the time frame of when the Waldman statements came out and you look at what was going on with Ms. Hurd's career prior to the statements and what happened after the statements, it's very clear to make that correlation that they were caused by those statements and the campaign that followed afterwards in terms of the negative social media. Well, all right, that's an interesting thing because the witness this morning uh, actually described the, the, uh, the notion of what's correlation and what's causation. And Correlation does not imply causation, does it, ma'am? I'm not an expert in semantics. Okay. But you're an expert who is purporting to say that uh, Ms. Heard lost between 45 and $50 million. And I'm trying to understand where you put the link between the Waldman statements and all the other activity that occurred since them. As I stated and very clearly wanted to make sure that, that everybody understood was that it was a time frame under, you know, between which the Waldman statements were made and the negative decline in her career started happening and, and in discussions with her agents and her publicists, there was a very tight timeline and a very close link to when those statements came out and when everything started pulling away from Ms. Hurd. Right, but the what you're talking about is, a, is just a link in time. You, you do not put any causal connection between what Mr. Waldman purportedly said and the damages that, that Ms. Heard purportedly suffered. You have no idea whether Mr. Waldman's statements uh, caused any damage to Ms. Heard, do you? Well, actually, both the words in the statements were used as hashtags in the campaign, as well as when the statistical and the investigative analysis was done on the social media campaign, it turned out that one in four of the statements were had Wald 
men or walled minion in them. So that was another connection that I was able to make between the defamatory statements and the negative negativity that the studios and the product endorsements and the television and the press connected as well. All right, let's start with first principles. If they're true, they're not defamatory, correct? Again, that's outside of the scope of my uh, okay. expertise. All right, let's then go back to what you just testified to, and I think you said the Waldman statements appeared in hashtags. I said words from the Waldman statements appeared in hashtags. Right, and the hashtags that were analyzed, however, don't have the Waldman statements in the hashtag. I've also seen them online myself. Well, but the, the analysis that Mr. Uh, Schnell did, he looked at four of them, right? That was Schnell's analysis, and I do believe I remember reading that, yes. All right. And the 25% that you just raised, that's Mr. Schnell's analysis. You didn't do that. He did it. Correct. All right. So you know what Mr. Schnell did, and he didn't look at hashtags that contained the Waldman statement words. He looked at justice for Johnny Depp, right? That's one of them, yes. One of them, of the 1.2 million hits that we, that you talked about, that was 900,000, 984,000? Well, also in my conversations with Mr. Schnell, we talked about all of the words that were in the statement that also appeared. So what he wrote in his report and what I had in my conversation may not have been the same right. thing. Ma'am, I don't want to hear about your conversation with Mr. Schnell. It's part of what I relied on, and I'm okay. allowed to talk about that. All right. So your conversation... Uh, with Mr. Schnell, let's move beyond that. Let's talk about what the other hashtags were. Amber Heard is an abuser. That's not in the Waldman statement, is it? The fact that she was called a hoax can be related to Amber Heard as an abuser, but no, those words were not used, correct? Right. And we don't, we just don't like Amber. That's not in the Waldman statement. Correct. An Amber Turd is not in the Waldman statement. Correct. Right. None of those things are. And in terms of the use of the words fraud and hoax, that appeared in only 6.5% of the uh, millions of, of uh, tweets that Mr. Schnell analyzed, right? I don't have his definition or his report in front of me, but we can look at it together if you'd like to. Right. And uh, and you said Waldman appears in 25%. Waldman or Waldminion. According to Mr. Schnell, yes. No, all right. But you st if, if that's your only evidence, however, that any of this activity has any link to Mr. Waldman. Is that correct? Well, no, we also look at the timeline because those those campaigns were not active prior to the Waldman statements and then they started appearing, so there is some connectivity there as well. Mr. Depp bears no responsibility for for the social media campaigns. He doesn't if the social media campaigns caused Ms. Heard to lose her ability to generate income. That's not the Waldman statement. Okay. That's a social media campaign. I'm going to object, Your Honor. May we approach? Okay. All right. So I'm I'm just looking for all evidence of the causal connection that you claim exists 
between the $45 million in damages that you assert and the three statements made by, made by Mr. Waldman? Well, you also wanted, I also looked at Ms. Hurd's career after the divorce proceedings and other lawsuits that she was either involved with or was discussed. And her career might have had a pause, but she was able to overcome that when she did Aquaman and she did The Stand, both very prominent productions. And there was no dramatic downturn in her career after any publicity. Ma'am, I don't mean to interrupt you, but do you have notes with you? No, I, there's dust. Oh, okay. There's <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> just dust, and I'm just distracting myself. Well, I guess, I'm know, sorry. I, it's just I, I nerves, nerves. It's really just that. I just, I, yeah, there's no, just that's okay. dust. Sorry. So you looked at her career, but and you looked at the way her career was moving. Right. So as I was saying, her career was moving forward, and even she had been able to overcome the negative publicity surrounding the divorce or the initial filing of the UK lawsuit and the other lawsuits, anything that she was associated, she overcame that. Uh, she did Justice League, and she did Aquaman, and she did The Stand, and she got the L'Oreal contract all after that. The only time her career slowed down and stopped was at the same time that those defam defamatory statements came out. So... But there was a lot of other activity that happened following the defamatory statements. You said every time Mr. Depp files a lawsuit, it ignites the fire around the both of them. Right? No, I actually said it, it ignites the fire mostly around Mr. Depp. That was no, in well, context. That was, excuse me, please. I'm sorry. That was in context of when I was asked about Mr. Depp's career. That was not in context of when I was asked about Ms. Hurd's career. It's not the same fire? It is and isn't. Who's the, the protagonist in the case in the UK was Mr. Depp. Ms. Hurd was a witness to that case. She was not a part of the case. So but most of were, the negative press went. There was enormous amounts of negative activity around Ms. Hurd as a result of the UK case. Isn't that true? There was negativity, yes, about remember both of them in the case, yes. Right. It, substantial amounts of negativity. Right. Right? And so you can't tell me that that negativity isn't the thing that keeps your or, or misheard from working. Well, again, it was a close time frame. The negative statements were a much closer time frame to the press and publicity around Aquaman and The Stand than the UK case, which was months later. So, again, I will look at the, the defamatory statements as kind of the igniting force, and it was promoted and, and kind of more oxygen was... Uh, put on the fire when the UK came out. So it kind of became a snowball effect of, of, you know, the match was lit and it kept getting stronger and stronger. Right. But, but Ms. Hurd isn't claiming a causal connection between the UK case and her damages, right? No. All right. And you can't distinguish between the UK bad publicity and the bad publicity that derived after the Waldman statements. What time frame are you talking about with the bad publicity from the UK case so we can at least be specific on time frames? Well, you talked about a five-year time window. 
a five-year time window from 2020 to the two years that we're at now, plus the three years moving forward, is what I talked about in terms of the time frame that it would take someone who's been under this much duress to kind of rehabilitate their career. That's when we talked about the five years. Right, that's when you talk about the five years. So you look over this five-year window, and during the period that precedes this window, there's lots and lots of negative press about Ms. Heard, irrespective of the Waldman statements, correct? Before the Waldman statements, as I said, she was able to overcome that and she got great jobs and was getting endorsement contracts. Right, but after the Waldman statements, there is more activity in the press, there's more social media activity, and you cannot put a causal connection between that activity and what Mr. Waldman said. It can be the instigating event, if you want me to call it that, we'll call the Waldman statements the instigating event of a torrential rain of social media tactics that went on, has gone on for years, yeah. The instigating event, and, and therefore, you, your damage analysis with a degree, some degree, I guess, of reasonable certainty is that once there's an instigating event, um, everything that happens thereafter is fair game for damages? Well, it's like a fire. If one tree burns and then more air or wind is added to it, then the next tree burns and the whole forest burns. But if that first fire hadn't started with the one tree, there would have been no loss of acreage. So you can look at it with that same analogy. Burn, trees burn one at a time, don't they, ma'am? You know, I'm not a firefighter. I'm not going to go there with you. But obviously, know we know that a single match can cause thousands of acres to right. burn. So we can leave it at that. I, I think I went there with you. All right. Let's do this. Um, you decided that there were a number of persons that you described as comparable in order to determine what your what Ms. Heard uh, was likely to make over time, correct? Yes. All right. Of those comparable actors and actresses, is there a single one who has had any press suggesting that they defecated in the marital bed? I don't know. <laughs> I have okay. no idea. You would agree with me that that is a negative influence with respect to Hollywood. If one believed it, yes. Yeah, if one believed it, you know it was reported. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it certainly has been discussed. We don't have any proof or video of, of anybody defecating on the bed. I, I certainly do not have proof or, I mean, a video of anybody defecating in a bed. I'll, I'll give you that. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so, but what you, what you know is that Mr. Wallman didn't say anything about defecating in a bed. Correct. Right. So all of the bad publicity around that activity has nothing to do with Waldman, right? Uh, Waldman, as you said, didn't talk about defecation. Okay. And you haven't considered how that 
story has adversely impacted Ms. Hurd's career. That story, you're going to ask me for a causational link between that poop story and her demise of her career. I can't. No, I'm not going to do that, nor can I. You couldn't do it? Can I make it? No, I can't. Right. And you can't do it with Waldman's statements either, can you? Well, again, I did, and I have, and I stand by them, so... You, you did by just pointing out the time frame are relatively close. The time frame and the instigation and, and if you will, the rallying of the forces. Again, it's like a lit tree. It's going to ignite everything. It's like free game afterwards. So it was the instigating event, if you will, I, you know, and that's what I looked at, yes. Uh, all right, so from your perspective, Anything that happened after Waldman that was negative to your client is attributable to Waldman and therefore attributable to, to the damage analysis that you made. I was tasked with looking at that specifically, and that's what I was asked to limit it to. I was not asked to look at anything else. All right. Uh, Jason Momoa, that's one of your comparables, right? Yes. He's been prominent since 1999. It was Baywatch in 99. 44 episodes on Baywatch, do you know that? You can look it up if you did, I, I'll, I'll go with that. Right. But you remember him on Baywatch. Actually, I didn't watch Baywatch, but right. he certainly had the physique for it, so... Stargate Atlantis, he was on that. Many episodes. Right. Did you know that? Yes. Okay. He played Conan the Barbarian. In TV or film? Film. Okay. I don't. I don't have Mr. Momoa's uh, resume memorized, so. No, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to understand how you came to the conclusion they're they're comparable, because I, I'm I'm just want to spend a few times a few minutes talking about uh, Mr. Momoa's career. Um, Game of Thrones was one of the most popular things on TV for a period of three years, correct? Yes, he was. And he was in Game of Thrones. Yes, he was. Yep. And he's Aquaman, right? Yes, he is. Right. And he's the title character in Aquaman. Yes. Yeah. And he was actually Aquaman in a movie before the Aquaman movie started. You, you mean Justice League and other things like that, yeah. Batman versus Superman. Dawn of Justice. What, wasn't he in that as Aquaman? I didn't see that one. Didn't see it? No. Miss Heard wasn't in that movie, was she? Not that I know of, no. No. And he was in both Justice League movies. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and he's in Aquaman 2. Yes. They used him in the second Lego movie. Right? Yes. Um, he's one of the most heroic characters in the recent Dune blockbuster. Which happened post-Aquaman. Right. In fact, likely he's... He's not the lead, though. No. In Dune, no, he's not the lead. Did you ever read Dune? Pardon? Did you ever read Dune? I know, but I've seen the movie. No. Do you understand whether his character will come back from the dead in the third movie? 
As again, I didn't read the book, so he might. I don't know. I'm just talk, just, we're just talking about that one movie. That so might that's be a bit of a spoiler. Oh, man. Dude. <laughs> He's one of the principal leads in the new Fast and Furious franchise movie, Fast X, right? I, I don't know that for sure, no. Okay. Uh, but that's not the career path that... that that Ms. Hurd has had. She's never been the title character in a movie. She hasn't spent uh, years on television. She did, what, eight TV shows? Eight single episodes of TV? Again, I don't have the resume. If you want to show it to me, we can count them together. All right. Um, Mr. Momoa remains well-liked, even though he's engaged in a recent divorce from another actor? That's correct, right? I don't know. I don't follow his fan base. You don't follow Jason Momoa, but you use him as a comparable to, to come up with a 45 I said I don't follow game. his fan base. I, I understand him as a prominent actor in the business, but I don't follow his fan base. Isn't, the fa isn't fan base one of the things that you analyze? Of course, you can look at numbers, but I don't keep a watch on his social media feeds. All right. All right. You indicated that uh, Gal Gadot is in Wonder Woman. Yes, she's a star. She's, in fact, Wonder Woman. Yeah, no, she's good, too. Yeah. All right. She's the title character, and there have been now multiple Wonder Woman movies, right? Yes. And even before that, she was in franchise films. Which one are you referring to? Fast and Furious. Excuse me, I honestly don't don't remember her being that as a, one of the main characters. I know it's The Rock and you, you, you didn't even know she was in the Fast and Furious franchise. I've seen it on a resume, but I didn't. I again, right. I'm not a fan of the fan of Fast and Furious. All right, you'll agree with me that Wonder Woman is a more prominent role than Mira. If you're going to talk about apples, apples in that exact movie, yes. Right. What about, does Mira have any, you know, self-titled franchise films? Not yet. No. And Ms. Goodell played a much bigger role in the movie they were in together, the Justice League movie. In what movie they were in together? Oh, in Justice League? Yeah. I haven't counted the screen time, so I can't really say. Okay. You indicated that another person that you uh, compared Ms. Hurd with is uh, Zendaya. Right? Zendaya, yeah. yeah. Person so famous she goes by one name. I guess when you have a name that's a Z, it works, I guess. Right. She's, she's been on the Disney Channel since she's 13 years old. Right. Right. She won an Emmy. Yes, she did. Right. She was singing and dancing and swimming from trapezes in The Greatest Show, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she's now been in multiple Spider-Man movies. Yes. She's 10 years younger than your client. Right. Yeah. But this is a person that you deemed a comparable. 
Well, as I, I was explaining to you how I chose them, when you look at superhero characters, there's not that many to pull from. So I just tried to, I worked on pulling characters that were in superhero movies that were about the same age range within 10 years, as you've noted to me, thank you. Uh, and also just where her career would have gone. I said that they were comparable, they're not identical. So you can just look at what their career has done either before that superhero movie than in others, or the one they were in, and then you look at where her career should have gone. Even though she may not have been at the stature of a Zendaya at that time, you can still look at it as a comparable trajectory of what happens when you're in a blockbuster movie. It's just a reference point. It's not meant to be identical. They're not meant to be the same people or not even have the exact same career. It's meant to be a reference point. Simple as that. So far, everybody we've looked at, had been in more blockbuster movies than, than Miss Hurt. But Miss Hurt was also in the biggest blockbuster movie, and the light that shines on Jason Momoa will also shine on her. So you have to look at it in context of the biggest movie that DC, in the DC Comics universe. is. And also one of the biggest box office films ever, probably within the top 10, because I've looked at it, right? So that light was going to shine brighter on her. Um, than someone who wasn't in that movie. And again, it would have just helped her in her career move forward, not stalled it and be at, in her world be silent afterwards. For the jury to accept your damage analysis, they would have to agree with you that Ms. Hurd was on the precipice of a meteoric rise. That's the word you use, right? Actually, no, I didn't. I, I did use Meteoric with someone like, let's say, Gal Gadot or Zendaya, but I, I actually gave you a range and gave the jury a range that they weren't all going to have a Meteoric rise. Some of them would be smaller, right? And so I, what the numbers that I gave you do not represent a Meteoric rise. A Meteoric rise is when Jason Momoa goes from, I don't know, $4 million, $5 million to a $50 million payday. That's a, that's a meteoric shift in our business. But when someone has contracts that actually go from $1 million to the first one, $2 million, and then $4 million, that is standard for a franchise that is perceived to do well. And so I based those calculations on very specific numbers that were already contracted. I wanted to stay within reality and look at the numbers that were already contracted for Ms. Heard and just move out forward on one film a year, maybe a TV show here or there, and some endorsement contracts, which is very typical for an actor in our business to make that kind of money. It just is what happens. So the example you just used is somebody went from $1 million to $2 million to $4 million. Your client has never had a contract that exceeds $2 million, correct? Incorrect. In the Aquaman Justice, it's actually the Justice League contract because they're associated. So Justice League, uh, Aquaman, she was paid one million. Uh, then in Aquaman two, it was written that she was going to earn two million. And if there's another one, it was written in the terms that she would get four million. So it actually was a contract that Miss Heard signed with the studio. Right, but the movie hasn't been made. Was, Aquaman two hasn't even come out yet, so the right. third one is still on deck, as they say. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's put it differently. Your client's never been paid $2 million for a movie she, she, she appeared in. She was paid $2 million for Aquaman. Right. Two, Aquaman 2. And she's never been paid $4 million. She was contracted to be paid, and when the movie goes, that's what she will be paid. So that's what I said. She was if on she's the in the movie. Right, but if, if Aquaman 2 does even nearly as well as Aquaman 1, there's going to most likely be a third one. So we can look at that as a precedent that was set 
In, in writing, actually. If a movie makes $795 million, you think there's likely to be a next one? Um, the, if it was the first or the second one, but if it's the fifth in the series, I assume that you're referring to Pirates 5. It performed well at the box office, yes, but certainly not in comparison to some of the other ones. And that's what a studio like Disney will look at to say, has that franchise had its run? Or do we need a to change it? A studio like Disney wants to walk away from an $800 million payday? Well... An $800 million payday has to be put into context to the budget that it costs to get that movie and then the marketing thereafter. And with the increasing costs of not only Mr. Depp's fee or any of the, and plus the other actors' fees, plus general production costs that are getting more expensive, then you put in the marketing costs, which are sometimes one, two, or three times the budget of the film. A film like that, a studio can spend six, eight hundred million just making and marketing the film. So it, $795 million is a lot of money, and it seems like a really good box office, but you have to put into perspective of what's spent on production, marketing, and the overhead costs that the studio takes. So you have, again, it's all in context of what the budget of the film and the marketing of the film is. All right, let's put some more things in context. Ana de Armas, that's another one you used. Yes. All right. She's... Um, most recently, I guess, in Deep Water with Ben Affleck. Well, I, I don't, again, I know some of the movies that she's been in, I don't remember about Deep Water. I don't, is that, a, I don't even know if that's out yet. Okay. To be honest. Um, she was in the last James Bond movie. Yes, she was. Yeah. They were talking about making her the next female Bond, right? Right. After her big Stars, moment, Stars Born moment, yeah, she's gotten a lot more um, big roles, which is what we had hoped for Miss Hurt. Yeah. Um, and you said that her breakout role was Blade Runner? It was, it was like the first big, you know, studio movie that got a lot of attention. I believe that was the one that we can look at as a, as a marker for her, sure. Did, did you watch Blade Runner 2049? I did. Do you know what she did in the movie? It was years ago. I don't remember exactly what she was in, what, what, what role she played, but she was in that movie, and from that, her agents used that as leverage to get her more movies. You have no knowledge that her principal role in that movie was it's a gigantic naked billboard. Are you saying that's the only thing she was? She was a gigantic naked billboard. She was in that's the, the principal role in that movie. I, I don't. I don't remember the movie well enough to know. Okay. Um, and did you know that she was? We, we, I talked a little bit about Ben Affleck, right? Right. Uh, he's an interesting example because it, it, he's been in a role that's been recast multiple times. You know that role? Are you talking about Batman? Yeah. Yeah. Batman. Sure. All right. So the title character in that DC series has seen how many actors? Several. Right. Michael Keaton. He was Batman. Val Kilmer. You're a movie buff, yeah. Yeah. Christian Bale was Batman. I think he was, you're right. George Clooney was Batman. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I guess Robert Pattinson is now Batman. Don't know. Okay. Um, but you're taking an absolutely iconic role 
that the DC universe has recast four, five, six times, correct? Correct. So just because you have the role in the first movie or the second movie doesn't mean it, you get it in the third movie or the fourth movie. Unless it's contractual. Right. Unless it's contractual. So, now, let's look. Oh, Ana de Armas, she's like the new Marilyn Monroe on Netflix, too, right? I, I believe so. She was also in Knives Out, which is probably even a bigger breakout role for her. But right. again, I chose Blade Runner because it's a similar thing. You have to start somewhere. But Knives Out probably was her big moment in time. Yeah. All right. The other person you picked was Chris Pine. Uh, Chris Pine is in a superhero movie. Two Wonder Woman. He is in Wonder Woman. He's also, well, Star Trek being a blockbuster, but not necessarily a superhero, right? Yeah, um, he was in both Wonder Woman movies, right? Uh, yes, he plays the love interest to Gal Gadot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on Star Trek, in, in the Star Trek franchise, he plays Captain Kirk, right? I don't remember exact role, role that he played. I didn't see it in the movie. I just know it from his resume, to be honest. Uh, do you know who Captain Kirk is? Yes, I do. Right. Well, I. But you didn't know that Chris Pine is is Captain Kirk in Star Trek? I hate to say I'm not a Star Trek fan. Okay. But you used Mr. Pine as an example, irrespective of the fact you didn't even know he starred in this franchise film? I didn't know that he starred. That's why I used it. Again, in fact, we, he was we, the most we can, we can go over I, We can go over this a couple more times, and I'm happy to do so. All I wanted to do was look at from a small pool of people that have been in huge franchise movies or, or superhero movies and, and give you a sense of what the range is or what someone's trajectory can be. Again, they, they are not apples and apples. They're not both green apples or both red apples. I just was looking at a range. It's what we do. It's what we do in the industry. It's, it's what you do to kind of get a sense of how much you're going to pay an actor, what they're worth in the foreign markets and the domestic Ma markets. I think my question was, did you know whether he was in Star Trek? Yes, and you okay. were asking me why I chose him, is which is what this conversation is about. And again, I chose him because he was part of Star Trek and Wonder Woman, but mostly because he was in Wonder Woman. And I don't know the exact time frame of which came first, but the fact that he's in both of them is consistent with what actors of this ilk tend to do once they're in a movie like this. But you, you talk about breakout roles, but you don't know which, which was his breakout role. Chris Pine's been an actor. He's been a well-liked actor. He was in both Star Trek and in uh, Wonder Woman. And Did a Star movie Trek, with Denzel Star Washington. Pardon? Did a movie with Denzel Washington. He's had a good career. Yeah, great career. Yeah. Yeah, much longer career than than Ms. Hurt, right? She was on the precipice of a great career. Yeah. You, she hasn't had the chance to negotiate that for that yet or be in those yeah, movies yet, so we don't know yet. We're getting back to precipice. Didn't you just deny precipice a few minutes ago? I said... I thought your testimony was she was on the precipice of meteoric rise. You said, I guess. I, I didn't say meteoric. I said consistent. I don't know. She could have a meteoric rise, but I was talking about consistent with Ms. Hurd. All right. Um, so of the, of the actors you selected, two of them are the title characters in their DC movies. One of what? them... One is Aquaman, who's the other title character? 
Gal Gadot. Wonder Woman, right. right. She's Wonder Woman. Yeah. And, oh, and you mean Jason Momoa, sure. Yeah. 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 So you get two title characters. You got James Kirk. And those are the people that you thought were most representative of Ms. Heard. Again, there are not that many in the pool to pick from. I'm not going to put comparable actors that haven't been in either large, what we call tentpole movies, or franchise movies, or superhero movies. So I, I wanted to work within those parameters, and that's what I did. So those are the actors I chose, yes. And to One of the actors you chose had a much longer TV career than you, than Ms. Heard. Again, they were all in superhero or, or franchise movies that did very, very well at the box office. And there are tons of actors and actresses who are in superhero movies that don't have meteor, meteoric rises thereafter, correct? Not when they're the lead character with Jason Momoa, but to your point, there are many actors that have no career prior to a breakout role and then have a meteoric career and have had no career prior. So you don't always just look at the past, it's helpful, and with Miss Heard, she had good reviews, so that's what I looked at. But if you look at other actors and they have their first role and all of a sudden they become a superstar, from one role. So that happens in our business. It just does. All right. With respect to your comparable actors, you have no personal knowledge as to how much any of them were compensated over I, the period you reviewed. Incorrect. You have personal knowledge as to who? Jason Momoa. And you derive that personal knowledge from talking to somebody? Yes. He didn't tell you. His agent did. Okay. So what you will rely on what Mr. Momoa's agent told you, but you have no you didn't see the contract. No, his agent is at William Morris as well, so they told me that. Right. And you've never seen anybody else's contracts as to what they were making. No, but in 25 years of being in this business, I understand the basis of which actors are paid when they're in blockbuster films and then they're in large budgeted studio films. So it's it's not a leap to kind of understand where, where the actor's making. And again, I really didn't want to try to be speculative in my analysis. I wanted to work with the numbers that Amber had contracted for already and just take it from there and said if she had done one movie a year and one series and done product endorsement, that's how I got to the number. So I wasn't looking to take her on a meteoric rise. I wasn't looking to give her the same career as Jace Momoa. I took her numbers that her agents had, had actually negotiated and worked from there. When you say you weren't trying to give her the same career as Jason Momoa, the, the TV program that she most recently did, The Stand, she made 200000 an episode. That's what you testified to. Correct. And in your damage analysis, you give her a million dollars an episode had the Waldman statements not occurred. And you do it only because you believe Mr. Momoa has gotten that in, in, in something that he's in. Right. So you are giving her the same career as Jason Momoa. Well, again, with someone like uh, 
Ms. Hurd, who was in a blockbuster film with the team at William Morris, in my discussions with William Morris, that's what they were looking to negotiate for her on other projects. So I got some of that information from her management team directly. So her agents were looking to get her as much money as possible? I think that's the job of an agent. They usually right. try to they, get the most money as possible. Your, tes your testimony is that they were looking to get the money for her, but you, you need somebody willing to pay on the other side of that deal, don't you? Right, but agents are working with people in the industry and have a pulse on what, uh, have a finger on a pulse of what's going on, so they know who's marketable and what the prices that all the streamers are paying these days. You haven't seen a single one of the endorsement contracts that you referenced, other than Ms. Hurd's? No, other than again, what I was talk, I was talking to William Morris in terms of the pricing that they are aware of, not only for their own clients, but what's out in the marketplace, and is pretty consistent. And I've also worked with other actors on other cases that have gotten similar contracts, so I'm familiar with the rates of endorsement contracts. You, you haven't made any reference to the actual earnings of any of these actors. Again, as you do an analysis, you put together the numbers that you know from both your experience and the marketplace and the agents that are working in the marketplace. So together, that's how I created those numbers. And mostly using Ms. Hurd's numbers specifically and giving her a very steady career, which is what she had had prior to uh, Aquaman. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have the prior earnings of any of the actors you looked at other than Ms. Hurd's. No, I don't have all the contracts now. You don't have any of that information. I'm sorry? You don't have any of that information? No. Okay. In fact, that information, I guess aside from Mr. Momoa's, is confidential, right? Usually it is, yes. Yeah. And the only reason you know anything about Mr. Momoa is that you, um, Ms. Hurd shares an agent? Right, but I, look, I've, I've also been in the industry for many years and I know what actors get paid. I talk about budgets constantly, so it's not a secret within the industry the amount that actors are in those types of movies are paid very, very well. You're not currently working as an agent for anyone, are you? No. Alright. So, the salaries of these comparable actors, did they form some basis for your opinion? No. Okay. So your opinion, as I understand it, is that Ms. Hurd should have been able to renegotiate an existing contract. Which is standard in the industry as well as with her agent specifically. Do you know if it's standard with Warner Brothers? I'm sorry? Do you know if it's standard with Warner Brothers? I don't know if it's standard at, at any of the studios, but it is standard for agents to renegotiate and oftentimes are successful when the film is done so well. Right, but what you're talking about is there's an existing contract where Ms. Hurd has made a promise that she will do the next movie for, in this instance, $2 million, right? Right. And what you, the agent is trying to do is to get Warner Brothers to say, hey, you should pay her more than your contract says because you like her? 
Well, as Ms. Kovacevic said, also, it's standard in the industry. Again, I've been in the industry. I've worked with agents, and I've worked with lots of lawyers. And, you know, we have conversations about what is an actor getting or what can they do or what are they going to do the next time. So, again, it's a standard in practice in the industry, especially when a film is as successful as Aquaman, that the agents will go back and renegotiate. Uh, in fact, that was conversation. Isn't the standard practice is that they would try to renegotiate, but it's up to the studio? Sure, but oftentimes in a movie of such of nature of Aquaman, they're very successful, usually. But, but the entirety of your analysis assumes a renegotiation with a studio for terms that are double what the studio had already got a promise from Ms. Heard she would work for. Correct. Have you talked to Walter Hamada? Have I spoken to him? Mm -hmm. No. Do you know who he is? Yes. Who is he? He's a senior executive at Warner Brothers. Or, yeah, I, I think he still is there, but certainly <clears throat> at the time of the renegotiation, he was a senior executive. Then, do you know whether he's the president of DC-based film productions? I think that's exactly his title, yeah. Who's in a better position to determine whether Warren, Warner Brothers would renegotiate, you or Mr. Hamada? As again, I based this on the, on the agents that were talking to Warner Brothers about Mr. Momoa, and they were wanting to talk to them about Ms. Hurd as well. Okay, I'm not so sure. they, I based my information on them. So you, the, the, the connection should be Mr. Hamada or the agents, not Mr. Hamada and me. All right. Who's in a better uh, position to to know whether Warner Brothers would renegotiate. Objection, Your Honor. Calls for speculation. Just asking. I'll sustain the objection. Next right. question. Do you review any testimony from Mr. Hamada? I did. Did you understand that Mr. Hamada says that they don't? that they want to hold the, the lawyers, I mean, hold the actors to their deals? That was a philosophy that he said Warner Brothers had, yes. Yeah. Did you understand that Mr. Hamada said that nothing Mr. Depp did impacted her compensation? I don't remember that part of the testimony. You have it available for me to read? You don't know whether Mr. Hamada testified. Did anything Mr. Depp, Mr. Depp said about Amber Heard affect her compensation? Again, I don't. I you don't, don't remember. I don't, I don't recall that testimony. Right. No. Do you know whether Mr. Hamada indicated whether he even knew who Adam Waldman was? Again, I, I don't remember the conversation about Hamada and Waldman or Depp. And you don't remember whether Mr. Hamada uh, made any statements as to whether anything Mr. Waldman said affected Ms. Hurd's compensation? In my experience, studios don't talk about what, how or why they make decisions based on publicity or conversations. They're not going to try. They're, they're going to be very protective of all their relationships. So that's just natural. 
unless you can get them to testify under oath at a deposition, right? Well, even so, they're not going to say anything negative. They may bypass it by being positive, but they're not going to do anything that could potentially damage a relationship that may change or be worthwhile in the future. So that's just what a studio person does. It, Mr. Hamad is in the best position to determine whether there were chemistry issues with Ms. Hurd. Objection, right? Your Honor. Calls for speculation. He's the president of the company. Right. Overruled. I don't know how involved Mr. Hamada was on a daily basis in, the, in terms of chemistry, but I do know that Warner Brothers did a chemistry test with uh, Ms. Hurd and Mr. Momo before they even, she even got the role. She went in and did a, what they call a chemistry test. So that was to actually see whether there was good chemistry between them. And evidently there was good chemistry because she was then hired to be the romantic interest. So whatever Mr. Hamada said during his deposition, I look at what actually happened in real life, which is she got the chemistry test and then she got the job. Yeah, let's look what happened in real life. She went in before and took the test. Then she made a movie. Then there was an existing movie under which Warner Brothers could then decide whether there was chemistry, right? The movie worked. It made over a billion dollars, and they're all over the poster. If they didn't think that there was chemistry, they wouldn't have put Ms. Hurd on the poster next to Mr. Momoa. So... You know there were multiple posters for the Aquaman movie. Yes, and there three, always are. That's, that's, that's standard. And that three out of the four posters, the standard posters for Aquaman, didn't even feature Miss Heard. Right, so when you, when you make a poster at the studio, it's normal to have three or four variations because you want to appeal to different people's perspectives. So you want the romantic poster, you want the action poster, you want the superhero poster. So it's normal for them to have many posters, but the romantic poster was of Ms. Hurd and Mr. Momoa. Right. And everyone, and all the others are just of Mr. Momoa. Like we talked about, it's Aquaman, but she was prominent in the ones that she, that Warner Brothers wanted to appeal to women and to the romantic interest of the consumer. Right. What movies would Ms. Heard have gotten absent Mr. Waldman's statements? Well, the ones we know about specifically that she was in conversations with was a movie with um, Gail Garcelle Bernal, I believe that's how you say his name, at uh, Amazon, which is what Ms. Kovacevic said. And she was also in consideration for a movie called Ambulance with Michael Bay. Um, but again, at, at, after the Waldman statements, nobody would talk to the agents, and so they weren't able to garner more. Oh, she also had a, a movie that she was interested in producing that a good friend of hers, uh, or a friend of hers or colleague, was was doing. So um, there was at least those three um, but that I read about. Those were three movies that she was being considered for, but you don't know what movie she would she was going to be in. Well, again, they stopped the conversation after the statement, so we don't know where they would have gone, of course. But they, she was in consideration for all of them, and, and given her fame from Aquaman, she would have con that would have helped all those movies. So it would have made made a lot of sense. You're projecting movies way out into the future that you have no knowledge would ever have gotten made. Well, that's what we do when you talk about comparables and and economic damages. You talk about the future. That's standard in our industry as as a forensic expert and in the industry. That's how movies are financed, as a matter of fact, is by forecasting what happens in the future. What connection do you draw 
between Mr. Waldman's statements and the reported reduction in Ms. Hurd's Aquaman 2 role? Again, it's just the timing of it all. It's the timing of it all. And also they were going to take her out of the movie after the statements and then they put her back in. Can I talk about the emails that I read? I'm not sure at this point. So when you say they were going to take her out of the movie, when you have an option, you literally have the option whether to include the actress, right? That's what it means. Correct. So they can choose to exercise the option or not exercise the option. Entirely up to them. Correct. And they have that particular studio, to your knowledge, has repeatedly recast even major figures in their DC movies. We talked about Batman. What about Superman? You know, I think I'm more familiar with the Batman actors. I think there have been a couple actors in Superman, but depending on how the movie performed, if the movie doesn't perform, they'll look for other actors. If they want to go a different direction or reboot a franchise, they will look at different actors. So if the movie's successful, they're not likely to change the actors, especially not in the second one or the third one. Another reason they'll look for a different actor or actress, if the actor or actress is asking too much money to play the role again, correct? Yes, not in figures under $10 million, but yes. If you're asking for too much money, you might not get your role again. And your analysis assumes that Ms. Hurd could double her money. Well, her contracts doubled her money from each one to the next, so it wasn't that large a leap to do that, especially when the agents had told me that that was what they were considering and what they'd been discussing. All right. Have you seen the script of Aquaman 2? Personally? Yeah. I did see a draft. I don't know what the date was or when it was or where in the succession of the rewrites it was. I did see one draft, yes. You don't know what Warner Brothers has in mind for that movie in terms of the kind of movie it's going to be? It's a superhero movie. Right. It's supposed to be like a buddy comedy, right? I don't know. I don't know about a buddy comedy. It's an action movie, superhero movie. Who's Patrick Wilson? Patrick Wilson. I've heard that name in terms of an actor, but I don't know Mr. Wilson. Do you know if he appears in Aquaman? Again, I don't know him by name. If you want to show me a picture or a clip from the movie. All right. Do you know if Mr. Wilson appears more frequently in Aquaman than your client does? I didn't count the screen time when I watched the movie. It was a long, you know, even when I watched it again, I didn't count the screen time of anybody else. Did you read the testimony of Mr. Hamada? We discussed that, yes. You disregarded all of it in your analysis as to her ability to renegotiate, correct? Well, I remember the part where Mr. Hamada said that from time to time they will break their philosophy and renegotiate just what they did with Jason Momoa and with Gal Gadot. So, you know, 
it's it, it, that just goes it coincides with what we know in the industry, which is it can be done. It's what they did with the two title characters in the DC universe. Again, I've worked in the business for a long time, and I've seen a lot of actors uh, renegotiate their careers. It's I'm sorry, not their careers, renegotiate their uh, their fees. It's it's common practice. And it's certainly what the agent will think about first when a movie makes a billion plus dollars. Right. Again, focused on the agent, but it's the studio that pays the bills. Yes. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. I have a fair amount more to do. Is to Can continue. I'm sorry. Continue. Okay. I didn't know if we were going to five thirty today or not. Every day is 5.30 day. Okay. <laughs> no, we may not even need to get there. Every day is 5.30 day. All right. Perfect. All right. You talked about Ms. Herb's endorsement deal with L'Oreal. Yes. Right. And that L'Oreal has concerns about using her because every time they try to use her, people re respond negatively to her. Uh, people don't. the The Depp fan base has responded, uh, has been, has troll, uh, have posted negative things about Ms. Heard on their campaigns. So, did you say the Depp fan base? Well, people that were using the hashtags that were consistent with the rest of the the Depp fan base. Yeah, but there, there, there are people posting negative things that, other than things that came from Mr. Waldman, correct? I haven't seen all the. I haven't seen all. The, that was. I was just looking at what L'Oreal, what L'Oreal discussed, and what L'Oreal said in in um, their communications. All right. They made. Do you see L'Oreal make a word cloud of the words that were most uh, commonly associated with with Ms. Heard in its uh, marketing campaigns? I knew they did that. I didn't see it myself actually. Right. Do you know what words there were? Again, no. You didn't talk much about this, but in order to get to the damage analysis that you got, um, the $45 million, I, I think at least in initially you suggested that Ms. Heard would have a role producing and starring in a movie and that she would make $12 million. I, I've talked about that, but in the in the latest calculation, I'd, that was really less what I considered and more about what films and TV and endorsement deals that which she would do. The producing was something that she had wanted to do, and again, Mr. Momoa got that, so that's where the agents were discussing those figures with me. The last movie that she has a production credit for is in 2013, right? Again, I don't. I haven't memorized her resume. It was a movie called Syrup. Did you ever hear of it? No. Okay. Aside from having probably seen it on her IMDb. Yeah. And Soon the Darkness, that's her other production credit, right? I'll, I'll, if you say so. If, if you're reading it off of her resume, I will believe you, yes. 2010? Okay. Right. 12 years ago. But you, at least at some portion, of the, at some point in this uh, analysis, were up of the mind that 
she would recover $12 million with a producing uh, role and a starring role in a movie? Because that's what Mr. Momoa got. Again, the agents were just saying that those are the kinds of numbers they were looking at to help her as she moved forward in her producing career. Right. Those are the kind of the numbers the agents would like her to get. Right, but again, I didn't use that in the final analysis of my $45 million, so it was just a, a discussion point because that's what the agents wanted me to consider. All right. All right. You have testified that the breakout role for Ms. Hurd was Aquaman, right? I, I didn't say the breakout role, but I used it as the, you know, a movie that it was a superhero kind of super box office success. Um, I think that you know some of her other critically acclaimed movies probably helped her break into that role, which would have been the Danish Girl, and then her work in Justice League, which was a natural progression to getting to star in Aquaman. Uh, all right, but I used Breakout. Perhaps you didn't, but this is the movie that springboards her to the kind of money that you are suggesting she should earn. It should have, yes. And either, I mean, other than Aquaman, which was released in 2018, how many movies has she booked? Well, she booked Aquaman 2. Right. And she did The Stand, which was a significant television show. Right. Uh, but... Outside of the Aquaman franchise, she obtained only one role, movie role, since 2018, right? Right. The industry also knows that she's planned to be on the next move, and they understand her production schedule, so she's not going to go after films that would conflict with a mega box office movie. So there's scheduling and conflict issues as well that her, she and her team would consider. So from when was Aquaman released in 2018? December. I, it was either December 2018 and, and then, it depends on where it was in the world. It was started in December 2018 and then it, it moved out, you know, into 2019. How many months between December 2018 and the Waldman statements went by? Oh, uh, 12, I think, 15 or 16 if my math is correct. She got one role during that that 15 or 16 month period during the entirety of the post Aquaman boost, right? She got stand. Right. And then she was in discussions for the films as they were getting ready to go. But she didn't get another role for 16 months between the release of Aquaman and what you say are the Waldman statements. Well, she got the stand. She got one TV role. A pretty significant TV role, yes, for a Stephen King novel. Right. She was in a movie, though. I'm sorry? She was in a movie that was released after Aquaman. What movie are you referring to? Gully. Oh, well, I don't know when that was shot, so you'd have to tell me when it was shot. Movies get released at different time frames. Like, they can be shot in 2016 and not get released till 2018. So you'd have to tell me. We'd have to look at, you know, the actual filming dates of, of the Gully for, to, for me to talk to you about that. She wasn't initially cast in Gully, was she? 
I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the casting process of Gully. Um, do you know who Alice Eve is? M who? Alice Eve. Alice Eve. Sounds familiar, but I'm not. I'm not recalling who she, she is. She's an time. actress. Been in any number of movies. You don't know who she is. Again, I know her name, but I, I don't know her resume. She's in Star Trek. Great. Right. Uh, she was in one of those breakout roles, Star Trek, but you don't you don't even know who she is. I I talked to you about Star Trek before. I'm not a big Star Trekian. Okay. Ms. Hurd replaced Alice Eve in the movie Gully, right? I don't know the casting process. I don't know who's starring that movie. Do you know what? She was paid. Who? Ms. Hurd. Uh, for Gully? Yeah. Can you tell me when that was in? No, no, I don't. But what, what was the filming date of, and what was the start date of Gully? Do you, you didn't look at the Gully contract when you were making an analysis of uh, Ms. Hurd's damages? I don't recall whether I looked at it or not. <clears throat> did, did you understand that she was making $2,190 per week for Gully? Can you tell me when it was shot? When does that contract get negotiated? It's relevant. The contract is negotiated prior to the release of Aquaman. Okay. So she signs this contract for twenty-one ninety. Is there a? Do you know what the Screen Actors Guild low budget agreement minimum scale is? It changes from year to year. It depends on what year and what the size of the budget. There's actually three or four different scale, num uh, you know, benchmarks. So. When there's a low budget, it can be a micro budget, it can be a minimum budget. At low budget, it, there's there's like four or five different scales that they use when it gets to anything other than a studio film. Yeah. And oftentimes actors do passion projects and that has nothing to do with, or something that they really love to do or they think that would be good for the career. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the fee made on the, on the film. All right. What's a loan out? A loan out? A loan out is the corporation that a, an actor will use so that their money comes in through a corporation and then that corporation technically loans out the actor's services uh, to the production. So they, the loan out is the corporation that the actor uses and then they loan out the services to the you know, production company. It's just a, really for tax purposes. Do you know of any movie that Ms. Heard booked immediately prior to Aquaman other than Gully? Well, I know she did Justice League. Right. Um, I, I, I don't remember the dates and times of the filming of the other ones. You, you always have to look at the filming dates. Right. <clears throat> um, you talked about Mr. Schnell. Gully was in his chart, right? I don't. I don't remember where Gully was. Right. Did you look closely at his chart? Pardon? Did you look closely at his chart? At Mr. Schnell's chart? Yeah. Um, 
I looked at the numbers with respect to the social media campaigns is what I was looking at Mr. Schnell for. Okay. Um, do you know whether any of the dates of the Waldman statements even appear in Mr. Schnell's chart? I, I don't remember. Okay. You talked a little bit about Q scores and Mr. Banya. Do you remember that? Yes. For Ms. Heard, Mr. Banya used Q scores from immediately after Aqua, right? Again, if you want to show me something, I can, I can answer it. I don't remember every word of Mr. Banya's, but I remember talking about the dates with you earlier. Right. But do you, you don't know as you sit here today whether the Q scores that Mr. Banya used were, were after Aquaman, but before the Waldman statements? He used a couple different scores based on, on dates. He didn't, I don't remember if they were uh, correlated to the statements or not. I remember years more than anything else. Again, I looked at thousands and thousands of pages of documents, so I don't remember exactly what he said. Even before the Waldman statements, Ms. Heard had very high negative Q scores. Isn't that correct? Very negative high Q scores? No, very high negative Q scores. As I said, very high negative Q scores. Um, we, I remember discussions of a lot of Q scores. I, I don't remember exactly what what or when, which score, or whether it was net. So in your analysis, you didn't consider Ms. Hurd's negative Q scores as a restraint on what she might earn on a going forward basis? No, Q scores change all the time. Ms. Hurd's, Q's, Ms. Hurd's, Ms. Hurd's IMDb score has been one, and it's been 300. Mr. Depp's Q score has been one, and it's been 253. You know, Q scores change all the time. Scores change all the time. They're based on current events and, and movie releases. You talked a little bit about Mr. Depp's damages. Um, did you talk? Who's Jerry Bruckheimer? Who's Jerry Bruckheimer? The producer of uh, the Pirates franchise. Well, he's a huge producer of a lot of movies, but he happens to be the producer of the Pirates franchise. You didn't talk to him prior to your testimony? Personally, no. No. And you didn't, you didn't have other people talk to him on your behalf, did you? I, I, uh, me personally, no. I did no. not talk to Mr. Bruckheimer. And you've never spoken with Mr. Bruckheimer about why Mr. Depp has not appeared in a sixth pirate movie? There has been no six pirate movie. There is not a pirates movie titled Pirate Six yet. Right. Right. Forever. But you haven't talked to Mr. Bruckheimer as to whether Mr. Depp was going to appear in the movie? Mr. From things that I've read in, in uh, newspaper publications and emails, I've read that Mr. Bruckheimer was uncertain whether Mr. Depp would star in. Right. But you haven't talked to him. And you've never spoken with Sean Bailey about this, right? No. Or anyone at Disney. I actually spoke. I actually put a call into somebody at Disney, and they didn't want to talk on the record. Are right, you? You called somebody at Disney, and they didn't want. They didn't want to talk to you. 
No, again, as I said, studios don't want to talk about their stars, whether they want to preserve a relationship that may or may not be used in the future. So it's, it's their tendency not to talk about people they are in business with. So you have no personal knowledge why Mr. Depp hasn't made a six pirate movie? Well, as I said, there is no six pirate movie. Right. You, but you don't know why. You have no personal knowledge why. I don't work at Disney, no. Did you listen to Mr. Wiggum's testimony in this trial? I read Mr. Wiggum's testimony. And Mr. Wiggum said he had, Mr. Depp had a deal for the movie, right? I, I've, I think Mr. Wiggum did. The other agent, uh, Mr. Carino, said he did not. And as there is no, uh, as there is no Pirates movie, there have been no deals negotiated, and that's what Ms. Jacobs also testified to. But Mr. Wiggum testified to something else. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, correlate, as we say, to the other two agents' testimony. You've indicated that a portion of the reason that uh, Mr. Depp has, get a, has received a negative, has received a variety of negative uh, comments in Hollywood is that he engages in lawsuits. One of the, one of the uh, elements that has contributed to a lot of negative press and attention is due to the lawsuits and the activity and the behaviors that we talked about earlier have been brought into the limelight. Mr. Depp's lawsuit here has generated negative publicity for Ms. Hurd, correct? Yes. That lawsuit, until she's filed a counterclaim, didn't relate to the Waldman statements, did it? Mr. Depp's lawsuit? Yeah. No, it, it, we talked about that. It, it was pertaining to the uh, her op-ed piece. Right. It, it related to what? Pardon? Ms. Hurd said. I'm sorry? This, Mr. Depp's lawsuit relates to what Ms. Hurd said and, and not to what Mr. Waldman said. That would, well, it related to the op-ed piece that Ms. Hurd wrote. Right. So Mr. Waldman's statements have no connection to the negative publicity that Ms. Hurd has uh, received relative to this trial, correct? Objection, calls for speculation, foundation, hearsay, and outside the scope. Any response? Yeah, we're looking for a causal connection here. I'll sustain the objection. Next question. Yeah. When was the last time you met with Miss Hurd? I only met Ms. Hurd at lunch today. Okay, that's the first time you talked to her? First time I met her. Okay. Um, what's your compensation for testifying here today? Uh, for, t for a testimony, it's $650 an hour. What has been your compensation to date for providing uh, the assistance that you have in this case? I've been working on the case for about three years. 
and over the three years, I believe it's around sixty thousand dollars. You said sixty. Yeah, over three years. All right. I have no further questions. All right, redirect. Thank you, Your Honor, and I'm going to make it definitely fit within that five thirty. Okay. Um, Ms. Arnold, you were asked a number of questions about the different social media, the negative, uh, and how do you know that it relates to the Waldman Depp statements? Do you recall all those questions? Yes. Okay. The the social media that was connected, and, and some of that was your testimony, some Jessica Kovacevic, and some of it was Mr. Schnell, actually tracked the language from the three statements from Waldman, correct? Objection leading. Okay. What, if any, uh, uh, efforts were made to track the negative social media that caused the damages that you've attributed? Objection leading. Overruled. So L'Oreal did a lot of research. Um, William Morris did a lot of research. Mr. Schnell did a lot of research. And in those conversations, those were also connective tissues to the negative social media campaign and the Walden statements. Right. And they connected back to those three statements. Yes. Objection leading. And what, if any, Sustained. connection did they have to those three statements? Again, they, we, we talked about this earlier. We talked about some of the hashtags being similar. We talked about the Wald or Waldman or the Waldminion. So there were a lot of connective tissues between the uh, negative social media, social media campaigns and the Waldman statements. And I'm going to jump because I think this is part of this. So you were asked some questions about Mr. Hamada. Do you recall that? Yes. And asked whether he testified that um, uh, whether anything Mr. Depp said or anything Mr. Waldman said had anything to do with their initial decision not to exercise the option to Aquaman to. Do you recall that testimony? For that I recall the those questions. The questioning, yes. Okay. Now, the testimony from Mr. Schnell tracked the 1.2 million um, tracers to January 2021, correct? Objection leading. Do, do you remember what month that was until? Right. So when Mr. Schnell did his analysis, it was from April of 2020 to January 2021. And when did Warner Brothers tell Amber Heard and her agents they were not exercising her Aquaman 2 contract? It was in February of 2021. All right. And what, if anything, did Mr. Hamada say about whether the reason they did that was because of the 1.2 million uh, negative social media tweets and Instagrams and, and, and other communications? Objection, no foundation. Had any impact? Sustained. Right. Next question. Do, do, are you aware of whether he said anything about that? I recall in the Warner Brothers. Objection, five. hearsay. Sustained. Do you know? whether that had any impact. Objection Warner, hearsay. I'm asking now, she's allowed to rely on hearsay. I'll sustain the objection, next question. All right, you were asked a whole lot of questions about the different comparables. Um, and so I'm just gonna go to this again. Of all the different movies, of all of those comparables, which movie was the highest grossing of all of them? Again, I believe it's Aquaman. I mean, everybody talks about Aquaman being 
one of the highest, if not the highest grossing films. Certainly the highest DC comic film or in that superhero world. But again, I don't want to say it was the highest, but I think it was very close to it. Do, do you know whether Walter Hamada admits it was the highest grossing uh, DC film? Yes, he said that, yes. Okay. So when you're looking at all the comparables, what, if any, relevance is there to the degree of success of that DC superhero movie? Objection, foundation. I, she can speak to that, Your Honor. That's the foundation. Do you know the answer to that question? Do you know? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I forgot it. No, I have to admit. <laughs> okay, so let, let's go backwards. Um, so, what if, do you know whether it makes a difference? Whether how successful that DC superhero movie is in uh, what types of films they'll be able to get in the future? Objection, foundation. I'm asking the foundation. If you want to ask the foundation, go ahead. That, I'm sorry, that's what I thought I was asking. Do, do you know whether that plays any role? The degree of success? Customarily, when a film... Objection, foundation. Ask her how she knows. How do you know? In 20, 25 years of being in the film industry, it's customary for when a movie does such an extraordinary amount at the box office, it shines a very bright light on the actors, especially if they're in lead roles. And it's customary that they will get... Not customary, it is... Uh, I don't want to use the word standard, but it, 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 it is very frequent that a star in a movie that has performed so well at the box office and with a role model character that Mira was, that she would have gotten uh, other roles and worked quite a bit afterwards and that movie would have helped her career. I mean, that's, that's no question. Okay. And with all these comparables, uh, when you uh, gave the range to this jury of 45 to 50 million in estimating this over this period of time, did you put Amber Heard's estimated damages ranges above all those other comparables? No, again, I was very specific in using the actual negotiated rates that Ms. Heard's agents were able to get for her in that contract and use that as a precedent. So again, I always wanted to be grounded in what Ms. Heard actually was in contract for and what her agents negotiated. And I used that as the baseline for the financial numbers of her loss. I used the comparable actors to show how consistently they all worked and how their careers moved forward after being in a box office. Okay. Um, uh, you were asked about Disney and uh, the Pirates 6 again. Uh, what, if any, knowledge do you have of whether Disney is willing to pay Mr. Depp $300 million and a million alpacas? Objection, no start? foundation. I'm asking her what, if anything, does she know about whether Disney is... If you can lay a foundation. Okay. Did, did, you, did you listen to or did you read the Disney testimony in this case? I did, yes. All right. What do you recall... Disney saying about whether they were willing to pay Mr. Depp $300 million and, a, and give him a million alpacas. They would not be willing to pay $300 million and give him alpacas. Thank you. You were asked about the defecation. Uh, what, if any, recollection, recollection or knowledge do you have about whether that social media negative campaign that you've testified had the words defecation in it or poop. Objection, no foundation. I know that the word poop and the hashtag poop is used. Okay. Was that Mo in any of the ones? Strike. 
Sustain the objection. Okay. Move to strike. Next question. Okay. Um, in your review of the social media campaigns and the negative social media campaigns that you testified to with this jury, that include the L'Oreal, that include the WME, that include Mr. Schnell, and include what you've done, what, if any, recollection do you have of how many of those that are influencing your connections to the defamation statements include the words poop or defecation? Objection compound. Overrule. I don't believe poop was one of the hashtags that was connected to the statements. Okay, thank you. You were asked about the time period between the defamatory state, between the release of Aquaman 2 uh, in December 2018. Aquaman 1. Aquaman 1, thank you. And the defamatory start statements that were in April 2020 and June 2020. Do you recall that testimony? I remember that questioning, yes. Okay. Um, during that time, were you aware of whether Aquaman 2 was in discussions with Amber Heard about scheduling the filming of Aquaman 2? In the period between the, the statements and... Before. I'm going before. Okay, I'm sorry. talking about the period of time when they released Aquaman 1 okay. and the April 8, first of the defamatory statements. Right. Do you know whether Aquaman, whether Warner Brothers was in discussions already with Amber Heard about scheduling her for Aquaman 2? Objection, hearsay. Do you know? I'm asking her whether you know. If you, I'll sustain it as the hearsay. Okay. Do you have knowledge of whether Aquaman was in discussions with... Amber during that period? Objection, hearsay. I, I don't know how to, I, I, I'm asking going to foundation. Ask foundation. Right, right. Um, I, um, how would you know? Uh, well, Amber received an early draft of the script. Amber's agents were in discussion. Objection, hearsay. I, I think she can say that. Sustained. Okay. Um, what is, in your experience, based on getting scripts, what does that mean? I'm asking for experience. In my experience with the movie as high profile as something like Aquaman, they keep the scripts very tight. You know, they don't let anybody read them. They're numbered. They have your name on it. So if you're getting a script for a movie such as Aquaman that's kept tightly, tightly close to the vest, if you will, by the studio, you are going to, they're, they're, they want you to be in the movie. Otherwise, they would never give you the script. Okay. And so if a script was given to Amber Heard before the first April 8, 2020 uh, defamatory statement, what would that suggest? Based on, your, based on your knowledge that you've just testified to. Objection, speculation. It's not speculation. It's overruled. <laughs> Again, if she got the script, they were going to use her in the movie. That was their plan. Okay. I have no further questions. Thank you. All right, thank you. Is this witness subject to recall? Uh, yes, Your Honor. All right. So you're still an expert, so you, you can have a seat in okay. the courtroom. I'm, I'm sorry. still thinking. Okay, you sorry. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, this comes to the end of our day. All right, so please do not do any outside research tonight and uh, don't talk with anybody about the case, okay? And we'll see you in the morning, bright and early at 9 o'clock, right? Okay, thank you.
All right. Just a few planning notes. Okay. Um, after testimony tomorrow, and we've excused the jury, we'll go ahead and have the proffers that you requested, Mr. Rottenborn. We'll do those tomorrow after. Is that okay? Does that sound good? All right. We'll do those. Uh, right after, like right now, tomorrow. Okay. That should give you with all with the proffers that you need to do for the record. Okay. All right. And then whenever all the testimony is done, possibly at this point, it would be Thursday afternoon after the jury is excused. Uh, we'll go over the remaining jury instructions. I have three under advisement. We'll take up those. And we'll also, if there's any other from the evidence this week that we need to talk about, we can discuss those as well after the jury's gone on Thursday evening or if earlier if the evidence is done before then. Okay. And just as times up to this minute, uh, the plaintiff has used 45 hours and 24 minutes. The defendant has used 57 hours and 6 minutes, which means the plaintiff has left 15 hours and, five, and 51 minutes, and the defendant has 4 hours and 9 minutes left, okay? So that's where we're at. All right, anything else for this evening? Your Honor, the last witness I, it appears that is on the plaintiff's witness list is Mr. Depp, and I was just hoping we would get an answer as to what... defendant's witness list? Oh. Yeah, defendant's witness list. I don't know. Are you still changing an witness? I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Making a decision in the morning. Okay. All right. Everybody have a good evening. All right. Thank you. Straight ahead on Law and Crime Daily. It's week six of Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. In actuality, he's causing his own demise by bringing these lawsuits forward and continuing to kind of ignite the fire of negative publicity around both of them. How experts say this lawsuit has affected Depp's career. And an expert witness gets argumentative on cross-examination. If you want the jury to believe that expert witnesses are unethical, then I guess that's for them well, to decide. Yes, and that's no, for them sir. to decide. No. Plus, does Depp's finger injury match up with his story? Did Mr. Depp's finger injury happen as a result of a vodka bottle being thrown at him? Uh, no. Hear the expert testimony. And later, we can't ignore the beautiful chemistry her and Johnny have together in the courtroom. Who is Johnny Depp's attorney, Camille Vasquez? Law and Crime Daily covering court cases from coast to coast. Welcome everyone to Law and Crime Daily. I'm your host, Brian Buckmeyer. As week six begins in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial, Heard's team calls a series of expert witnesses to the stand. Law and Crime Network correspondent Jesse Weber is live at the Fairfax County Courthouse in Virginia with the key takeaways of Monday's testimony. Jesse? Yeah, Brian, today was very much about Heard's side hammering away at Johnny Depp from a number of different angles. You know, the day started with the testimony of orthopedic surgeon Dr. Richard Moore, and he was of the opinion that the injury to Johnny Depp's finger was not consistent with Depp's account, namely that Heard threw a vodka bottle at him that shattered while in Australia in 2015. But then again, on cross-examination, he couldn't really say how Depp injured his finger, and he admitted he didn't consider certain photographic evidence in his analysis. From there, psychiatrist Dr. David Spiegel took the stand, and his conclusion was that Depp exhibited behavior consistent with substance abuse disorder and that of a perpetrator of intimate partner violence. He talked about Depp's cognitive deficits, narcissism, harmful patterns. But I will say on cross-examination by Depp's attorney, it was a bit tense and even a bit comical, especially when he defended his criticism of Depp using an earpiece on movie sets, because when he was asked if actor Marlon Brando used an earpiece, he responded, 
isn't he dead? Now, I'm not sure that really was the point there. Uh, but from there, we moved on to entertainment consultant Catherine Arnold, who testified about the downfall of Depp's career. An important point, because Heard was argued that it wasn't her Washington Post article that ruined his career and reputation, but Johnny Depp himself. What, if any, impact did Ms. Heard's op-ed have on whether Mr. Depp uh, could claim a loss for Pirate 6? Zero. Okay. And why do you say that? Again, well, many things. The movie doesn't exist yet, so that's one. But m even as important is that Disney, in their file for this trial, did not have the op-ed piece as part of all of the information they had read and looked about and discussed. The uh, conversations of Mr. Depp not being in whatever new version of Pirates, the, the franchise that goes forward, those were in discussions long before the op-ed piece even came out. And uh, there are other factors that Disney was considering, the lateness on set, the cost overruns at that cost, which can go from hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars when you have crews sitting around for two to four hours, eight hours, or even several weeks to a month when the finger incident happened. So on top of that, Mr. Depp is an expensive actor. Um, he can earn between 20 and $25 million per movie plus back end. So it's very expensive. So when you put that all together, the rising cost of Mr. Depp as talent, the challenges that they had to keep it on budget because of his lateness and his tardiness and all the other allegations that would affect a brand such as Disney, Right? Someone talks about a burnt corpse does not necessarily coincide with the brand of Disney. Now, we've also learned that Amber Heard will no longer be calling Johnny Depp as a witness for her side. But we also learned in a change of events that Kate Moss will take the stand and testify for Johnny Depp's side. Brian? Now, Jesse, you just said it there. We're not going to hear Johnny Depp back on the stand again. But what did you make of these witnesses that we thought were leading up to Johnny Depp taking the stand? They seem to be doing a lot of pointing the finger at him, both in his career and his mental health status. Yeah, remember, this is the last week of the presentation of evidence. So they're trying to show that Johnny Depp is not telling the truth to the jury, that he had wild, erratic behavior, and he was an abuser to Amber Heard. All important points, and also that he destroyed his own career, all trying to defeat his claim in this last week. Yeah. Now, Jesse, we've already heard witnesses testify about damages uh, to both parties. What does Catherine Arnold bring to the table that we didn't hear before? So she did two things. She really articulated what exactly Johnny Depp lost as a result of the Washington Post article, which according to her was really not what uh, what he's claiming. And number two, she also articulated what Amber Heard lost. I mean, she said due to Johnny Depp's uh, you know statements through Adam Waldman that make up the counterclaims, Amber Heard lost 45 to 50 million dollars. So again, we're trying to understand how is she getting to that 100 million counterclaim? That's what Arnold did for her. Yeah, but she was comparing, and I know this is a side note, she was comparing Amber Heard to Zadaya, Disney to Marvel. I'm not sure if I'm following that, but go for it. But Kate Moss, she's supposed to testify. How's that going to affect this case? Okay, other than this being a huge headline, remember Amber Heard opened the door by making a reference to Kate Moss and the infamous staircase incident that Johnny Depp allegedly threw Kate Moss down a flight of stairs. She's going to take the stand. We understand that she's a close friend of Johnny Depp and probably say that is a complete falsehood that she probably that he never did that to her and that is going to be detrimental to Amber Heard's case that Johnny Depp is an abuser across his life.
Yeah, this is going to be an interesting summation, putting all these pieces together. Jesse, stick right with us. We're going to be back with you in a few seconds. Still ahead on Law & Crime Daily, did Depp display warning signs of intimate partner violence? What those signs were and why an expert witness got tense when questioned by Depp's attorneys. Welcome back to Law & Crime Daily. After some contention at the start of his testimony, Dr. David Spiegel told jurors Johnny Depp has narcissistic personality traits and the warning signs for a perpetrator of intimate partner violence. After it was all said and done that he would apologize uh, for letting this monster out, letting this anger out uh, almost routinely. Um, and there's very well record evidence of that starting as early, early on in the marriage. And the other part of this is, again, when you can recognize that when you're sober, even short-lived sobriety, when you can recognize that, that things are better, things are happening better, life is better, then even that should show you that, hey, there's an issue here. There are issues here that when I don't use, can be resolved. On cross, Dr. Spiegel became argumentative with Depp's attorneys about the ethics of being an expert witness. I asked you whether under this rubric, under this principle of medical ethics, have you acted unethically? Yes I, or no? At, no, as an expert witness, I have not acted unethically. And if you want the jury to believe that expert witnesses are unethical, then I guess that's for them well, to decide. That's, yes or that's no, for them sir. to decide. Said no, let's go to the next question. Joining us today is law and crime analyst Dina Dahl, co-host Terry Austin, and law and crime zone Jesse Weber. Dina, I actually thought that Dr. Spiegel's direct had some merit, but that was all seemed to be overshadowed by his attitude on cross. Did you get the same feeling? I did. I mean, his how he acted on cross, he was so argumentative to the point that I thought he appeared unprofessional and it completely discounted what I thought was also possibly a good direct for Amber Heard to the point that he didn't know how to why he wasn't willing to answer the questions about whether or not I was unethical. It's, it was odd. It was very argumentative, and, it, and it, I think it destroyed his whole testimony. Yeah, I mean, it's only 50% of 20% of his practice. I did the math. It's only 10% of his practice. Maybe that's the issue. Terry, evasive when answering direct questions, his descriptions of traits and diagnosis somehow reminded me of Heard explaining donations and pledges. I'm pledges, sorry. Uh, so who did this witness help? Well, I think overall, the witness did not help Hurd's case. He was called for Hurd's case, of course, and I agree so much with Dina. On direct, he was much better. He wasn't arguing. He laid out some facts. But on cross-examination, we did see that there is a distinction between just listing traits and giving a diagnosis. And he had to admit he didn't do a diagnosis. He did not look at depth. He just listed traits, which may or may not be related to this intimate violence. And so I definitely think he was not that helpful. And I think that on cross-examination, Heard's team definitely lost. And I think Depp's team definitely won some points there. 
All right, Jesse, as two gentlemen who have uh, IFBs or feeding information to us, I know this came up during the testimony, uh, Dr. Spiegel had a lot to say about Depp, but now he's not going to take the stand. Depp isn't testifying. So how is that going to affect Hurd's counterclaim? Well, here's the thing, right? The counterclaims are asserting that Adam Waldman, Johnny Depp's attorney, uh, was making all these public statements, calling her allegations a hoax, and that this was defamation. The thing that we didn't get from Adam Waldman, because there was only so much he could testify due to the attorney-client privilege, is how much did Johnny Depp authorize him to make these statements? So calling Johnny Depp to the stand, we might have gotten some indication. Did he tell Adam Waldman to do this or not? And for the fact that he has not taken the stand, the fact that he will not be called, now the jury, will they, will they be able to make that connection to find the counterclaim. Maybe by inference, maybe they'll think he authorized Adam Wallman to make it, but that's the missing piece here. And it might be difficult now for Amber Heard to be successful in those counterclaims if they don't get that confirmation from Johnny yeah. Depp. Yeah, it makes, it makes you think, was this about being a court, uh, a public opinion or a court of law? What do they try to get at if they can't reach that basic standard that you laid out so beautifully for us, uh, Jesse? Well, Jesse, thank you as always for the great reporting. We'll see you next time. Coming up on Law and Crime Daily, we take a closer look at day 20 of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Heard's team calls an expert orthopedic surgeon to testify about the severed finger injury. Does Johnny Depp's story line up with a doctor's opinion? This is prime crime. Had you discussed alternative methods of killing your mother? Yes. We take you inside the most fascinating cases that the nation is talking about. I don't understand. Real footage from interrogation tapes to body cam video. We dig deep. Join us on the Law and Crime Network Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays at 10.30 p.m. Welcome back. The Johnny Depp v. Amber Heard defamation trial enters its final stretch, with the first witness of the final week being an orthopedic surgeon who told Johnny Depp's story of how, or told jurors Depp's story of how his finger was severed. Doesn't line up with the review of the injury and x-rays. Did Mr. Depp's finger injury happen as a result of a vodka bottle being thrown at him? Injection no. leading. Overrule. I'm sorry. Uh, no. The medical data is inconclusive. Uh, it's it's uh, not consistent with what we see in the in the described injury pattern or in the uh, the clinical photographs. And there are there are several elements. There's there's uh, you know the description was of the hand being flat on a bar and the and the bottle crushing the finger from the top. But looking at the images, there's really no no significant injury to the dorsum of the finger, and to create the type of injury with that with that uh, uh, type of a crush injury, we would anticipate both injury to the fingernail um, and other parts of the finger. In the statements of Mr. Depp that you reviewed, how did he describe what happened to the alleged bottle when it hit the bar? Uh, I believe um, he said it exploded, shattered. If a bottle had exploded near his finger um, in the way that he alleges. What would you expect to see in the documents that you have reviewed? Uh, well, I, I think that, that the uh, physicians uh, did a good job of documenting the presentation, the appearance of the wound. Uh, they, they did not document the presence of any glass shards. 
um, and there were no other associated injuries elsewhere on the hand. All right, Dan, so just peeling apart from what he said, we can't say if it was a knife or a bottle. So what's the takeaway from this witness for the jury? I don't think this witness was all that helpful because, again, he's this paid expert evaluating it. But he wasn't the doctor who was treating him. And he, you know, kind of admitted to not looking at all the photographs. And also this, he was treated actually in a foreign country where maybe the note taking could also be a little bit different. So for him to really, he couldn't definitively say what caused the injury. Another thing actually a viewer in the lunch hour pointed out was the fact that Johnny Depp wrote on the wall afterwards, which could have changed the appearance of the finger by time we got medical care. I think that was kind of a really interesting point. But I think the biggest takeaway for me is he wasn't the one who cared for it. And he didn't really know how the note taking in Australia doctors were like. Yeah, with Terry, with all of what Dina is saying, with, with Hertz team running low on time and the judge swearing she'll stick to that time limit, was this a smart witness to have? Well, I do think now the judge is probably going to stick to that time limit because I think the attorneys are trying to abide by that. But we'll see what happens. But yes, it was a waste of time. I think that Dr. Moore wasn't very definitive. And again, Camille did a great cross-examination. She definitely made it very clear that this was not a doctor, like Dina said, who had any sort of personal knowledge about what occurred. He never examined Depp himself. And the best point that Camille did was the fact that the fingers were over that rail, not just laying flat. Great point. Yeah, and he, and he can't tell us one way or the other. So is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak, in terms of this witness? We'll see when the, when the jury makes her decision. When we come back, who is Camille Vasquez? Following a strong cross-examination of Amber Heard, Depp's attorney takes center stage in the case. We take a closer look at her role in the trial. Welcome back to Law and Crime Daily. We're taking a closer look now at one of the key players in the Johnny Depp v. Amber Heard trial, who has recently taken the internet by storm. Law and Crime Network's Sierra Gillespie joins us now to explain who Camila Vasquez is and what her relationship is with client Johnny Depp. The world was introduced to Camille Vasquez during her opening statement for Depp. And the truth will come out in this trial. But Vasquez really made her mark with the cross-examination of Amber Heard. This was a, a multi-day assault that took place over three horrible days. Ms. Heard, the worst thing ever Ms. Heard, happened to me. we're not talking. Ms. Heard, that's not my question. Entertainment attorney Mitra Ahurian says Vasquez asked the right questions in the right way. I think she really stepped up during cross-examination of Amber Heard and everything we saw about her was good lawyering. Um, she came in with the right attitude, the right confidence, and really had what we call good control of the witness. And that's key when you're trying to get your narrative across, is making sure that you're controlling the testimony of the witness so that they're not veering off into the version of the story that they want to tell. Law and crime legal analyst Dina Dahl agrees, saying Vasquez was a standout on cross. Camille Vasquez did an excellent job on her cross-examination. I mean, that's a really hard cross-examination to do. You're cross-examining some 
somebody who's alleging domestic violence. It's a very serious allegation. And but yet she has to ask these really tough questions to be an advocate for her lawyer. That's a very fine line. And I thought she was perfect. I can't see anybody having done it better. She was firm. She was really great with the type of questions, just the style of her questioning. I thought that she was so effective that I don't know how Amber Heard, quite frankly, could come back from the cross that she did. Experts say the female direction in this case is likely a strategic move. It's probably not a coincidence that they had the two females cross-examine the two females. I think they just don't like that image of a man cross-examining a woman on these very sensitive topics of domestic violence. And what about that noticeable friendship between Depp and Vasquez? We can't ignore the beautiful chemistry her and Johnny have together in the courtroom that's really lovely to watch. But is the relationship something more? I don't think they necessarily have a relationship. I have a lot of clients that I've represented for a really long time that I'm very affectionate towards and I care about. And when they're going through an emotional time, part of what you are, as one of my clients calls me, consigliati. Like, part of it is you're a counselor. Law and Crime Network has reached out to Camille Vasquez for a comment, but hasn't heard back yet. She and attorney Benjamin Chu are expected to present closing arguments for Depp this Friday. Reporting for Law and Crime Network, I'm Sierra Gillespie. Thanks, Sierra. Dina, you touched on this a bit in the story, but let's dig a little deeper. How do female attorneys play such a large role in this trial, and why is that so important? You know, it may be this outdated stereotype, but they certainly, you know, lawyers are certainly aware of how they are going to be perceived by the jury. And so they don't want to appear as if they are, you know, attacking a female victim who is you know, alleging something that's really disturbing. And so they will often use a female attorney to do that questioning in a way to maybe try to not make it look like there's this man attacking this woman. Again, whether or not this is this outdated sexist notion, it does happen for strategic reasons. Do not think it is outdated at all. I would never personally, as a 6'4", 200 plus black man, come hard and cross-examine Amber Heard. Definitely I'll let Dina or Terry do it. Terry, uh, I don't think it will happen based on seniority and the fact that she did the opening statement. But if you had the choice, would you put Camille Vasquez in place of doing the closing arguments? Well, absolutely. And I think what they are going to do is split it like they did with the opening. I do think that when Camille did part of that opening, she wasn't as strong. She did get her legs when she did that cross-examination. And actually, I think all three of the attorneys for Depp are excellent. I think Ben Chu has a role there. I think Wayne Dennison, even though he is not as strong in my opinion, I think all three of them have had their part in making this so far successful. The star, the breakout star, no doubt about it, is Camille. And I think she will have a stronger voice when she does this closing. And I think she will help them pull it all together. So if I were them, I would have her do the closing and maybe, you know, at the end of the day, um, be the last voice that anyone can hear at this trial as far as Depp's team is concerned. All right. So Dina likes her, Terry likes her, I likes her. But the major question is, does the jury? We'll find out as we continue. Thank you for joining us here on Law and Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America.